Type style. You guys are cool. So I can just break into it. Poker, Poker is fun for everyone except for my opponents. They should have practiced avoidance. They ain't big proponents in thinking just at the moment. It helps problems. Sometimes tough times to solve them. Then I awaken to a dream where I shield you be and make people lose $22 million and big hypocrite. Poker is fun for everyone except for my ex-wives. They should have run for their lives. Okay, welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Janjoff Wittellis, and this is being broadcast on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, September 11th, 2021, barely, and only in this time zone, 11.27 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time is the time right now. I was thinking of opening with something much more serious than that, much more somber than that about 9-11, but... This is going to be depressing enough to discuss, which I'm going to do, but it's going to be depressing enough to have that discussion here. So I figured we might as well open up with some comedy with Prahlad singing Poker is Fun for Everyone in 2006 and then me singing as him and modifying the song a bit and also forgetting some of the lyrics. So we have a free roll, which is beginning minus two minutes ago at 11.25, but Do not panic. You have 23 more minutes to get in on the No Fraud Online Poker Room, which is located near the top of the screen on PokerFraudAlert.com. It is $50, and it's $25 for first, $15 for second, and $10 for third, which I can pay you by Zelle, Cash App, Bank Transfer, Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, Ethereum. Probably not Ethereum. Gas fees are too high, but any cryptocurrency that's not too expensive to send you this small amount of money. And even... Other methods you might be able to think of to receive payment on the internet. PM me Dan Space Druff on the forum, which is preferred, and you need a valid forward account to be able to qualify for it, so you should have that. And you can also da- email me dandruff at pokerfraudler.com, dandruff at pokerfraudler.com, or text me at the number I'll give out shortly. Came from three sources this week. I actually kicked in nine bucks. I usually don't do that, but uh, I kicked in nine bucks. We do have another 50 behind this, but uh, there was some confusion about how it's going to be used. So I held that over to next week, threw in nine myself, and then used the existing 41 we had that we had not used yet. So $21 came from a very generous man. I think he's done quite well for himself. Hunter Biden's crack dealer gave me $21 for this. So I thank him. And I know that he didn't, get the money through very honest means, but, you know, the bottom line is the guy's rich and he has money to spare. So thank you, Hunter Biden's crack dealer, for $21. And uh, I got $20 from a listener who wanted me to open with that Prahlad song and sing it. This was his idea, not mine. I almost said, you know, let's just do this next week because it's 9-11. Then I said, you know what? It's 9-11 where we need something like this more than ever. So we did it this week. So thank you to him. And then, of course, the final nine is for me. 50 bucks total, 25 for first, 15 for second, 10 for third. It's already started, but you can get right in there with a full stack right now. But you do need to have a validated account in good standing to play the free roll. 
and go to pokerfraudler.com slash free roll to understand all about the free roll. And you can text me at 775-372-8355 if you have any further questions about it. 775-372-8355 is our text number. It is also the main number to call the show, which also spells out 775-FRAUD-55, which is why we have that number. We also have the Mount Charleston line, which cannot be texted but can be called during the show. That's 702-430-1808. 702-430-1808 is the Mount Charleston line, and it is located in a cabin near the top of Mount Charleston, which forwards to me wherever I go. So keep that in mind that we have the Mount Charleston line, but do not text it. If you want to listen to the show... You can also call a phone number to do so. It does not require a smartphone, a data plan, does not require the internet. No, 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 none of that stuff. All you need is a phone that can dial, and it never buffers and never freezes, and it doesn't use up any of your data. It's very simple like that. It's just a phone call. That phone number is 605-313-0736. 605-313-0736 is the call to listen line, and the alternate call to listen line, which works the same way, 641 741 one zero nine five unless you have t-mobile it is free if you can call within the u.s for free so leave it as long as you want i don't care but if you have t-mobile it's going to be one penny a minute so maybe you should care the penny i don't get though i wish i got it i would pocket all your pennies and walk around with change clanking in my pocket by the way when i used to run, run cross country for high school which i did i was a cross country runner in high school I used to have 50 cents in my pocket so I'd get a slushie after. And those slushies were real good. I mean, that, those machines were, that, that really made the best slushies I've ever had before or since. So I had to have a slushie every time. It tasted great. Only problem was the change annoyed people. <laughs> when I would run, because I would be running with the team and I wouldn't be right next to everybody. But whenever I get near them, they hear ting, 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 ting. And it really pissed some people off. So finally someone said something like, don't run with that change anymore. It's, it, I, I can't stand hearing that when you're near me. So I listened. I put the change in my locker. And I can understand how that's an annoying sound here over and over and over and over again. If you want to chat during the show, you can do so by going to the chat room. You need a form account in good standing to do that. And don't bother unless you're listening live. And we are on pretty late right now. So I understand if you can't listen live, we've been going on pretty late. In fact, last week we were so late that we didn't even have a free roll. And this week I said, you know, I'm not going to miss the free roll two weeks in a row. So it's probably going to be a small field, but, you know, we're going to have it anyway. But there are some people in the chat room. I see them. And I can't really chat with you while I'm doing the show. It's just too much for me at once. I do everything with this show. I talk. I think about what I'm going to say next. I go through information on my screen that helps me with uh, what I'm saying. And also, I run the technical aspects of the show, and I do all the sound effects. So what normally would be like five different people or more controlling the show, this show, everything's done by me, okay? It's like I, I'm operating with like six hands here. So I, the chat room, I'll check every so often, and I will read your comments on air and respond to you if I think it's uh, worth doing. And I will read your text during the show unless you ask me not to at the beginning of the text. But you can text me at any time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Also, if you want to hear the show when we're not live, you can listen to the archives. The archives has every show we've ever done, more than 400 of them, going back nine and a half years. And 
we are on pretty much every major podcasting platform. We have iTunes, Stitcher, the TuneIn app, which you can also use to listen live, Spotify, iHeartMedia, the Bullhorn app, which has its own call to listen line. Pretty interesting if you want to use that to listen to the archives. And we also have a way for you to download the MP3 file of the show and listen that way. So a lot of ways to listen to Poker Fraud Alert Radio in the archives. Even Alexa works. You just say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio podcast. Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio podcast. All you have to do is say that. Make sure you say the word podcast at the end. Make sure you say Poker Fraud Alert Radio slowly so it understands you. And it will play the last episode. If you want to go to the episode before that, say next. So we have all these ways to listen. If there's anything I've missed, then let me know. And if there's an easy way to add it that doesn't cost too much money, then I will do it. But I need something that's automated. I don't want to have to upload it myself every week because it's a pain in the ass. And I don't feel like the burden of this because this show doesn't make money. This is, in fact, something I lose on every year. The only income stream I really have is the, the banner that's at the bottom of Poker Fraud Alert. If people click on it and buy something, I get 3 to 6% of whatever they uh, spend. But aside from that, that's the only thing I get, and it's not very much money. It doesn't support the site, so I lose money, and this site isn't really designed to make money. I've had opportunities to where I could have taken sponsors, but uh, I didn't like the quality of some of these sponsors. Shady online casinos and such, and I could have gone the affiliate route with things like uh, Bovada and ACR, and I'm not totally against that. I just said, you know what? I just don't want to be under any kind of pressure not to report things that are unflattering to them. And by being an affiliate, you are kind of representing them in a way. So while I am not against playing on those sites, and I do play on Bovada, but uh, still, I said, you know, I'm just going to skip doing that. So there really are no sponsors here, as you've probably seen. Every once in a while, we get one, but it's not for very long, and we don't get very much money. The site is not a lucrative venture, let's just say that. That's the uh, opposite of that. Here's the agenda, and then we will get going. We will do a 9-11 retrospective, and the 9-11 retrospective, which I'm going to do first because it's not going to be 9-11 for much longer. Uh, 24 minutes is going to be 9-12. In fact, by the time I finish, it'll be 9-12, but it doesn't matter. Most of you will hear this on 9-12 or later because that's when the show will finish. I'm not going to do this the same way as what you're going to see on TV or on YouTube, there's a lot of retrospectives out there that show videos, which obviously we're not going to do on an audio show, or they talk about individual stories from then. We're not going to do all that. We're going to have a retrospective which talks about the events leading up to it, and then shortly after it, and also a long time after it. We're going to talk about some things that are rarely talked about involving 9-11. Not conspiratorial stuff, though I'll briefly touch on that stuff too, but facts, verifiable facts that are rarely discussed anymore about 9-11 that you may not know. Then our next story will be about the WSOP again changing their minds. They have removed the mask mandate. So we're going to discuss what's going on with that and whether this will affect whether I play at the World Series of Poker or not. Andy Trombley, the owner of Fox Poker, the disgraced Fox Poker that went down because they basically stole all the money, he has communicated with me. We've been emailing back and forth, and uh, I've been encouraging him to pay back players. And while I can't take full credit for the idea, uh, he is paying back players. 
it's going to be very slow, but he's at the moment making an effort to do it. So we'll discuss all that and what's going on with Fox Poker. And if you lost money on there, how to get your share. I have a Mike Possel update for you. He filed an opposition to our involuntary bankruptcy motion that was done jointly by my attorney, Eric Benzamokin, and Veronica Brill's attorney, Mark Randazza. So he filed a response, and you may wonder if he had a lot of bad things to say about me in that response. Well, you're going to be surprised what was and wasn't said about me in that response. Andy Stacks is someone you might know if you watch Live at the Bike. Pretty well-known player on there. Mild-mannered guy, pretty likable, but not that notable. I mean, he's a good player, but he's not uh, a big personality or anything. He kind of stepped out of character and called out a fellow player, a female player actually, for stiffing him on a 16K loan and then jerking around about it. But then he deleted the video. What is going on here? We're going to cover the Andy Stacks situation. I don't have the video he deleted, by the way. Unfortunately, that's gone. Then we will have another story. Druffy Time Theater is the new name of it. I keep changing the name, but it's now called Druffy Time Theater in honor of Story Time Theater. Except it's Druffy Time Theater because I'm the one telling the stories. And this is a story from 21 years ago where I did battle with a predatory towing company in Las Vegas. And I'll tell you about this battle. I'll tell you if I won the battle and... I will give you tips today how you can avoid and beat predatory towing companies and why predatory towing is so wrong. I appeared on a podcast regarding debate about tipping, casino tipping specifically, with Vital Vegas. His girlfriend has a podcast. Her name is Melissa. She lives in Vegas as well. She just started a new podcast, and uh, Vital Vegas is her live-in boyfriend, and he joins her on there every week. And this week, I joined them, and it is currently up on iTunes. It is called Melissa Does Vegas, but we're also going to play you a copy of it so you can hear my debate with Vital Vegas. Prahlad Friedman, we have an update on him. Remember, he came out as bisexual, but that wasn't enough. That was not enough He posted a bizarre story. He lives in Brazil now, supposedly. He posted a bizarre story that he walked around Brazil with bodyguards because he was getting death threats because he was wearing a skirt at the time. Did this really happen? We will discuss it. There's a proposal on the table for banks to report all accounts with transactions of a total of $600 or more per month. I don't mean 600 cash. I don't mean 600 at once. No, a total of $600 of transactions in or out in one month. The accounts and their activity will be reported to the IRS if this proposal goes through. There's a lot of confusion about this, and I will explain from the best of my understanding what's really going on with that and what the goal of it is. Could a futuristic city of 5 million people be coming to the remote Nevada or Arizona desert? And we haven't seen that in a very long time, where a city just springs up out of nowhere and becomes millions of people. That's something you just don't see anymore. But that is being proposed, and there's efforts to make this happen. So not only is it going to be a big city in the middle of the desert, but it would be a futuristic city that would be more advanced than any other city 
in the U.S. So we'll talk about these ambitious plans, and I'll give you my opinion whether it's going to really happen. Arizona has joined the legalized sports betting market. There is a court challenge by an Indian tribe that has failed, so I'll tell you a bit about that. Resorts World. Remember I told you about the Rolls-Royce display there, the iconic Rolls-Royce display? That is gone. I'll give you my reaction to that. Brandon may or may not come on. I want to tell you the reason for that. Brandon is a huge NFL fan, which I am not. I'm a huge baseball fan. I'm a fan of the NBA, but not as much as baseball. NFL, I could take or leave. I'm not a big NFL guy. I never have been. Brandon is a huge NFL guy, and he's a big fan of his uh, home Las Vegas Raiders as well. So he does not want to miss uh, NFL Sunday. He loves NFL Sunday, and uh, NFL Sunday begins pretty early. So when I told him we're moving the show from Friday to Saturday this week only, he was a little bit concerned that he wouldn't be able to make it because he kind of wants to wake up early and watch uh, the NFL. So... He may miss the show, but it's not because he wants to miss the show. It was because I moved it from Friday to Saturday. And uh, so if, if for whatever reason he's up, when we're still on, he'll come on. Otherwise, he is missing it because of uh, my moving the show to Saturday, and he doesn't want to miss this uh, weekend of NFL football. Finally, the coronavirus. Yeah, we're going to have a coronavirus topic. How safe should you feel without a vaccine booster at this point? And... If you have a booster, if you got that third shot, should you feel very safe or should you also be a little bit concerned? I'll give you my opinion on that subject because the boosters are going to be available not too long to the general public. But I want to begin with the 9-11 retrospective. Now, first of all, it was an extremely tragic event and it was very sad that 3,000 people lost their lives, roughly 3,000 people lost their lives on that day. And it was a senseless act of murder and terrorism. And it was extremely tragic. And it was one of the uh, darkest days in recent American history. And that can't be forgotten. And the people who died were ripped away from their families. Many of them were nowhere near the age that they thought they would have to worry about dying. And I, in fact, I'm going to play you one of them. I'm going to play you a call from uh, Kevin Cosgrove, who was uh, trapped in one of the towers and eventually perished when the tower collapsed. And you get to hear his final words as the tower's collapsing. It's, it's actually very depressing, but I'm going to play it anyway, because I think it's important to listen to that call to really remember what was going on on that day. Because the, uh, over 20 years' time, you can start to get a little numb to it, especially with all the comparisons of, uh, well, you know, there's this many people dying every day of COVID and you keep hearing, well, you know, we've had this many 9-11s die in the last week of COVID and it's, it's not the same thing. It's, it's a totally different thing. COVID is very tragic as well, but it, it's a totally different thing. We're going to discuss a lot of angles about 9-11. When I think of 9-11, I really, really feel bad for those who died that day because they had no idea it was coming. They went to work, or they were boarding a plane for a routine flight, and they were not expecting that this was going to happen. They thought it was just going to be a regular day. Some people, in fact, almost everybody who died 
had no reason to believe there was any more danger on that day than any other day. Like, I guess the people boarding the planes, they, they know that there's a higher chance of dying than on a day when you're not on a plane. The truthfully, flying major airlines is very safe. Only a tiny percentage of them crash. But yeah, there, it does add a little bit of danger compared to when you're not flying. But when you're just going into work, uh, you, you're not expecting that uh, something like that's going to happen and you're going to die that day, even though you're many decades away from the age you would expect to die. So it was a very tragic event, and it wasn't something that was unavoidable. It was something committed by other human beings who were evil and terrible. And also, this could have been prevented, even with these evil human beings doing this. I should say subhuman beings. Really, I don't want to call these guys human beings. But there were ways to have avoided it, and we didn't due to a number of mistakes, and we're going to discuss that for sure. And then there's after effects, which still resonate today. In fact, the very botched withdrawal of from Afghanistan that just happened recently is a result, an indirect result, but still very much a result of that day, 9-11. So let's start from the beginning because I think it's best to do this in chronological order so it can be best to be understood. And some of this you may know, some of this you may have once known but forgot about or forgot the details, some of this you may never have known. We don't have that many young listeners to the show, but we have a few. And if you are someone who's under 30, you probably don't know very much about 9-11 other than what you may have read in the history books or read online, but you really don't remember living it very well because you were either not born or you were a kid. I was not a kid when 9-11 happened. I was almost 29 years old. Or sorry, I was 29 years old. In fact, I was close to 30 years old. And my memory of this is very sharp. And it was something very shocking. And it really changed so much. Some things that changed that weren't even related at all to the terror attack. So, of course, Osama bin Laden was the mastermind behind this. And he was the founder of Al-Qaeda. He was the number one figure in the whole thing. He was killed by U.S. forces in 2011. He should have been killed way before that. There were a number of uh, chances that the U.S. military had to get him, but he always slipped through their fingers, which was too bad. He, he really didn't deserve to live another 10 years, but these weren't very pleasant years. He was hiding out constantly and uh, wasn't particularly happy. He, was, he knew it was just a matter of time till they found him and killed him. I mean, he was a super, super wanted man by a very powerful country with allies and semi-allies that knew that if they cooperated with getting him, that they would get favorable treatment such as Pakistan. Pakistan is no friend of ours, but they, they uh, were willing to help because they needed help from the U.S. and other areas. So bin Laden knew that it was a matter of time before he was going to be caught. And bin Laden actually was an educated man. He actually was in... Uh, he got educated in uh, Oxford, England at one point. He was someone who uh, was not just a typical terror figure. This was someone who just, uh, 
at some point became very radicalized and became very fanatical. He was from a rich family. His family is still rich. So this wasn't a terrorist who rose to prominence because he had a bad life and resented the West and wanted to take it out on them. This, this was a guy with a lot of privilege. Some people think that 9-11 came out of nowhere, that the danger from bin Laden came out of nowhere. It did not. Now, bin Laden goes all the way back to the Afghan war against the Soviet Union. And he was actually an ally of the U.S. at one point in that war because the U.S. and USSR were very much at odds then. And he was fighting for Afghanistan. Now, he was a young man at that point. He was born in 1957, so he was in his early 20s. He actually uh, worked for the U.S. in uh, trying to fight off the uh, USSR when they invaded Afghanistan. He wasn't an ally of the U.S. for very long, but that's actually where his uh, militancy began. In 1993, he actually had uh, some involvement in the first World Trade Center attack. And some people don't know about the first World Trade Center attack. But there was a World Trade Center attack in 93. A lot of people don't remember that or didn't even know about it because there was damage, but there was not really uh, much death from it. But what happened in 93... So on February 26, 93, a truck bomb was brought into the garage of the North Tower of the World Trade Center, and it was detonated. The attempt here was to bring down the tower by blowing up the base of it, and then the assumption would be that it would bring down the South Tower as well and kill tens of thousands of people. It ended up killing six people, and injured over a thousand. So it wasn't attacked without uh, consequence, but it wasn't like 9-11. Now, the people who were planning it were uh, a number of Muslim terrorists, and they received financing for this attack by a terrorist named Khalik Sheikh Mohammed. And I'm sure you probably recognize that name because he was very much involved in the 9-11 planning. In fact, probably he was the, the one second most responsible behind Osama bin Laden. But he and bin Laden already had association by that point. Even though the official indictments against uh, those who did the first World Trade Center bombing did not suggest that uh, bin Laden was connect connected to it, it is believed that he was connected to it. And, of course, uh, colleague Sheikh Mohammed definitely was. He was the one financing the whole thing. So that was the first attempt to bring down the towers, and it failed. Now, amazingly, uh, the person who had rented the truck went back to get his deposit back after having set that bomb. <laughs> Which didn't even make sense, because the guy didn't have the truck. <laughs> 
But I, I guess he was trying to go back there and get the deposit back, claiming that it was just a victim of the bombing, that someone else bombed it and the truck was a casualty of that. Uh, the FBI agents couldn't believe it. They were there just in case someone returned there. But they thought, you know, what's the chance they're going to come back to the rental place that they got the truck? The, the truck did its job and, and bombed the building. They, they were sure nobody would come back, but whatever. They put some agents there at the rental agency just in case someone comes in. And sure enough, a terrorist walks in and says he'd like his deposit back. So that was uh, not the brightest guy. Obviously, he was uh, instantly arrested. So that was the first sign that there were some serious attempts by Muslim extremists to make a major attack on the U.S. homeland and to use uh, kind of creative means to kill a whole lot of people. Because these terrorists, they don't have a lot at their disposal to cause mass, mass death in the thousands or tens of thousands. There's only so much they can do. They, they don't have uh, nuclear bombs. They don't have fighter jets. They don't have anything like that. So they, they, these are just uh, a bunch of guys who don't have a lot at their disposal, and whatever they try to get can potentially expose them and get them arrested or get them killed. So they uh, they had to come up with creative ways to do it. So the first idea was a truck bomb, which uh, didn't work. It didn't bring the building down. In 98, bin Laden was not making a secret of his intentions. Now, he didn't say that he was going to do exactly what happened on 9-11-2001, but he was saying that he was going to commit a major attack against the U.S. homeland that's going to kill tens of thousands of people, and he's going to do it within the next five years. Well, he did. It didn't kill tens of thousands of people, but only because of the timing of the way the planes hit the towers and everything associated with that. It could have killed tens of thousands of people and still killed 3,000 people. And the goal was to kill about 50,000. So... He did it. I mean, what he was saying he was going to do, he actually did. And he was posturing about this three years before it happened. Again, he didn't say exactly what they're going to do, but he said he's going to do it. When this happened, I had remembered the news report because I had heard his name before. I wasn't following him really closely, but I had heard his name before because of his other terrorist activities. He was also involved in the USS Cole attack in 2000. And he had planned other attacks that didn't happen. He was also involved in attacks that uh, were not in the U.S. He was involved in a lot of terrorist attacks. And in 98, he stated that something's going to happen within the next three years, or next five years. It was three years later, but he said it's going to be the next five years. And this was reported on the news. I remembered watching a show I had taped, just a regular TV show, and they had a little news break in between and said, uh, among the day's stories, that terrorist Osama bin Laden is claiming he's going to make a a major attack on the U.S. homeland within five years. I'd actually remembered that, and I actually went back and found the show I thought I had remembered seeing it on. And indeed, uh, that was said. And that's not discussed very much. Now, it's true that terrorists love to posture, They love to always talk about how huge things are going to happen, and then most of them don't. Either they fail in planning, or they're just not feasible, or they just want to scare everybody 
and they know that they really don't have the realistic means to commit these acts. There, there's been some who've said they're going to kill millions or billions of people. And of course, that has never happened or even come close. So a lot of this is to scare people. So you can say, well, just because he said that in 98 didn't mean we had to believe him because there's a lot of things they say that never come true. However, there were a lot of opportunities to stop this. Now, Bill Clinton is somewhat responsible for 9-11 occurring. And some people will say, wait a minute, he wasn't president when this happened. George W. Bush was president. And in fact, he had been president for eight months. So how can you say that Clinton is at fault when it happened on Bush's watch? Well, because bin Laden didn't just pop up in 2001. And Clinton was very aware of the threat that bin Laden and al-Qaeda presented. I know this because Bill Clinton did a rocket attack on al-Qaeda and on uh, anything related to bin Laden in Sudan and Afghanistan in August 1998. I'm not sure if this is before or after that bin Laden made this threat, but it was around the same time. And this was an attempt to scare al-Qaeda and, and maybe kill some of them. I mean, they were really trying to kill them, but they knew they were, this was not likely to be that effective. It was a rocket attack that just uh, really wasn't that effective, and they kind of just did that and stopped. It wasn't an all-out offensive by any means. It was almost symbolic, just kind of sending a message, and that was it. The problem here was that Bill Clinton did not want to start an all-out war to get bin Laden and do away with al-Qaeda because he didn't think the public would be behind it. Bill Clinton had a major weakness, and that was he was always obsessed with being liked. He always wanted to do what the people wanted him to do. And you can say, well, that's great for a president. Well, not necessarily, because sometimes what the people want is not correct. So being president doesn't mean you do whatever the 51% majority wants. It means you do the correct thing. You have to keep in mind what the people want, but you can't always just say, what's most popular? Okay, I'll do this. Okay, this is unpopular. I won't do that. You can't do that. You, As president, you have to seek to do the right thing. Now, his successor, George W. Bush, had the opposite issue. He didn't care enough what people wanted. And that can be a problem, too. You do have to listen to those who elected you. So you really need a happy medium, and neither of them had it. But Bill Clinton did not want to start any kind of war or any kind of major military offensive that would be criticized by people who just didn't want this. Now, you might wonder, why would people not want this? Why would this not have been popular? Well, let's think of the last time there was any kind of uh, major incident on the U.S. homeland or the last time the U.S. really felt threatened. I'm not talking about a terrorist attack or a, uh, some kind of almost uh, disaster like what happened at the World Trade Center in 93. I mean a major event or a major enemy the U.S. had at the time. There really wasn't. In the 90s, the belief was that the U.S. really wasn't threatened very much. Yeah, there were terrorists that didn't like us. Yeah, there were some countries that didn't like us very much either, but we were no longer in a Cold War. There was no more USSR. And we're so far away geographically from terrorists 
where they uh, tend to congregate and tend to uh, have their organizations, that it was very hard for them to get to us. And it was pretty clear that there were no real U.S. terror cells where a lot of terrorists could get together and cause major harm. So there just was not a lot of belief, a lot of popular belief at the time that we were really in that much danger for, from any major terror attack. So people did not support any kind of war that would commit military resources and put our soldiers at risk to go after terrorists when it wasn't considered a major threat. It's kind of looked at like uh, they'll try something every so often, but we can't uh, waste military resources and risk soldiers' lives going after them. That was the thinking of most Americans at the time. But Bill Clinton was not most Americans. He was the president. He had a lot more information than everybody else. And it's, it was his job to prevent things like this. And when you're frustrated enough with a very dedicated terrorist who had been at it for 20 years, like uh, almost 20 years, like uh, Osama bin Laden, if, if you feel that you need to take some sort of action to stop him and that you really feel he does pose a threat enough to where you will send in missile strikes, then you need to do the whole job. You can't just do a half-assed job and lob, lob a few cruise missiles out there, and if it doesn't do very much, oh, well, he gets the message. No, he doesn't. He's going to keep going and going and going until he gets something done. And he did, and he was very successful with it. By the way, when this first happened, 9-11, Bin Laden, of course, was number one suspect before they even had ed- evidence that he was. And interestingly, he did not admit it at first. He was asked about it, and he said, I'm not behind it, but I support it. So he cared about his own life. He did not want them to come after him. So even though he was behind it he, and he was thrilled that it worked, he didn't want to take credit for it right away, which was surprising. But I guess he knew what would be coming if he admitted it. But it was uncovered pretty quickly anyway that he was the one behind it. But let's go back a little bit. In 2001, there was a way to stop this whole thing. Because there were a few things that weren't going quite right for Al-Qaeda. Their plan was to have uh, four planes with five hijackers each. So 20 hijackers total. And to fly into four targets. Now we know three of them for sure. The two towers, the Pentagon, and an unknown fourth target. It's going to be something significant. Maybe the Capitol building, maybe the White House. Those are the two most likely ones. But we'll never know because the fourth one never got there, which I'll explain shortly if you don't already know why the fourth one never got there. They wanted five hijackers on each plane because they felt they needed that because in addition to the hijackers they needed to fly the plane, they also needed the others to control the crowd on the plane. They took various flights prior to that to figure out which ones were most likely to fly mostly empty because they wanted as few people as possible on the plane in order to prevent a passenger revolt. They did not want a plane that was completely full of people where maybe some people on that plane are going to think, hey, we're not going to stand for this. We're not going to just sit there and let this happen and attack them. And that's what happened with the fourth plane, which we'll get to when we talk about Flight 93. But they actually researched which flights typically go off without that many people. And they came up with those four flights. And then they wanted five hijackers on each flight. 
and they had to get them in the U.S., and they had to get these hijackers also learning how to fly at least two of them for each plane and also do all this without suspicion. So even though it was actually a pretty ingenious plan to use passenger airliners as missiles, basically, and to be able to take control of the planes with the threat that the whole thing's going to be bombed and make the passengers believe they're just going to land it after their demands are met and that they're going to blow themselves up otherwise. So, if, of course, if the passengers knew what was really going to happen, they were not going to just sit there. So that, that was the whole plan. It was a pretty ingenious plan. It's something that can only work once. We can never have another 9-11 because if uh, hijackers take over the cockpit at this point, uh, people aren't going to stand for it. People will know what's going to happen next and they're going to know they're going to die either way. So you might as well die fighting to stop it than die just waiting for them to crash it into something. So this is something that can only work once, but it had never been done before. But they did need a number of things to go right for them for this to work. Now, of course, it did end up happening, so it worked mostly, but some things did go wrong, and some of this had to do with the hijackers. So there were a few problems. First of all, there was a hijacker who they sent that could not get into the country, so they had to replace him. The other problem was that one of the hijackers, the guy who was on uh, Flight 93, named uh, Ziad Yara, J-A-R-R-A-H, Ziad Yara was different than all the other hijackers in that he wasn't fully dedicated to the cause. Ziad was the only one who had a relationship. You know, he had a romantic relationship with a woman that he loved. He kind of had a life. He kind of was almost living normally but then was doing this uh, militant Al-Qaeda stuff on the side and agreed to this suicide mission to crash the plane into whatever this fourth target was. However, he kept wavering. He kept wavering and thinking, maybe I don't want to do this. Maybe I don't want to commit suicide like this. Maybe this cause isn't worth it. Maybe I'm being used here. He started to have doubts. Now, he ultimately went through with it, Ziad Yara, but he started to express doubts and started to get difficult. And uh, bin Laden was frustrated And the hijacker in charge of the whole operation in the U.S., uh, Mohammed Atta, he was getting very frustrated with Ziad Yara. He was sensing that Ziad was not going to go through with it. And he was telling bin Laden, we've got to send someone else here. uh, We can't count on him. He may back out at the last minute. Or he could get us all caught. He could ruin everything. So they sent in a replacement a replacement who wasn't the best. I mean, they were they had doubts about the replacement too, but in a different way. They sent in a replacement named uh, Zacharias Masawi. Now, the good thing about Zacharias Masawi from their standpoint was he was very dedicated. He was not uh, uh, he was not having doubts about wanting to do this. He he was a big time jihadist and he wanted to fly these planes uh, into whatever that target was. However, he wasn't very reliable. And he was someone that they weren't sure was going to be able to just complete the mission. They kind of thought he was a screw-up. But they they didn't have much of a choice. The the preferred 20th hijacker was uh, detained, and they needed him as a backup, at the very least, to have four hijackers on that plane in case Ziad Yara backed out. So they really needed him to do it. So they sent uh, Ziad Yara into the country. 
He attended some flight training courses at Airman Flight School in Norman, Oklahoma. And he did 57 hours of flying lessons. But because he wasn't very competent, he, he was never really able to learn how to fly. And then he failed and, and left without ever having done a successful uh, solo flight. So he did 57 hours of flying lessons and wasn't able to complete a solo flight. So they're getting close to giving up on him. Remember, they want they needed him to know how to fly because they thought maybe Ziad was going to back out. So they needed someone who could fly the plane. And they were getting desperate. So they then sent him to Minnesota. And he enrolled in a different flight school. Well, at this flight school, which was uh, the Pan Am International Flight Academy in Egan, Minnesota, Masawi paid $6,800 in cash to receive training on a 747 simulator. And the flight instructor who was in charge of that class started to be suspicious of Masawi. So at first he thought that he was just a businessman who wanted to learn how to fly, but wasn't going to really fly anywhere. Just a, a rich businessman who just wanted to kind of learn this as a hobby. But then he started noticing some weird things, that Masawi would ask questions using flight jargon, but it didn't make any sense. So if someone who doesn't understand anything about flying, these questions would sound okay, and he used real jargon, but he just used really weird words. He just threw words together, and, and the guy's going, what? Like, what kind of questions are these? They don't make any sense. It would be like in poker, someone asking uh, in a poker class, so um, what do you do on the Chips River when you're, uh, when, when you're holding an Omaha? And you'd go, what? He said, wait, what do you do on the Chips River when you're holding an Omaha? He'd go, what? This, this person doesn't understand at all poker. So if, if this is someone who's spe- spending a lot of money to enroll in a course and they don't that they they know all this jargon but yet they they understand nothing about it which is kind of weird given that he took all those hours of a flight school but uh, it was already weird to him and yeah this may sound racist but the guy noticed that he was arab and thought you know i wonder if this guy's trying to cover up that he doesn't know as much as these other guys here and he's trying to quickly learn how to fly and he's he's going to do something bad well the the dude was right. His name was uh, Clarence Prevost, the flight instructor, and he, he was right that Masawi was learned, was there to learn how to fly a 747 so he could pilot it into the towers in case one of the other terrorists backed out of the whole thing. So Clarence Prevost called the FBI and said that uh, we need to take a look at this guy. The FBI at first dismissed Clarence Prevost and said, no, 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 no. You're, you're just being paranoid. But he kept saying, no, I'm telling you there's something wrong with this guy. I'm telling you there's something, I've never seen anything like this before. Something really weird. I, I'm afraid he's a Muslim terrorist. So finally, uh, the FBI decided to look into it. And they sent agents to meet with Mr. Prevost. And on August 16th, Zacharias Masawi was arrested by the FBI in Minnesota, and he was charged with the immigration violation because technically he had uh, overstayed his visa or something like that. So it was just something to hold him so they could figure out what's going on with him. So at that point, wouldn't you think that they could have figured out what was going to happen in four weeks? This is on August 16th, 01. They seized his laptop, 
two knives, flight manuals pertaining to a Boeing 747, if that wasn't damning, a flight simulator computer program, fighting gloves, shin guards, and a computer disc with information about crop dusting, which spawned some conspiracy theories, by the way. So some of the agents looking at all this stuff going, wait a minute. So first we had this guy, uh, this flight instructor who was suspicious of him. And then he has uh, this simulator and then the flight manuals. And he, he can't really explain why he has all this and why he came into the country to do this. They asked him, he said he just wanted to come to the U.S. to learn how to fly. It was very suspicious. So you'd think at that point they would do a major investigation of the guy, right? You, like, you can't convict him at this point, but you, you can definitely look very closely into him. FBI agent Colleen Rowley was one of the agents who was very suspicious of Zacharias Massawi. And she made an explicit request for permission to search his personal rooms. And her superior said no. This is a person named... Uh, Marion Bowman, a.k.a. Spike. Marion Bowman said no. Spike said, "Uh uh-uh. And then when another request was put in, the request was rejected based upon FISA regulations. It's F-I-S-A, FISA. And that stands for Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. And the reason that this was rejected was because Masawi was not suspected of acting for any foreign country. So since he was acting for a terrorist group that was not directly affiliated with a foreign country, they could not get a search warrant based upon this, based upon suspicion of a, a terrorist attack against the U.S. because it wasn't on behalf of any country, which was outrageous. So they, they changed that, by the way, after 9-11, of course, but uh, too late. So Colleen Rowley made... Uh, she sent 70 different emails to attempt to search his laptop and to search his rooms and was turned down. They got the laptop when they arrested him. It was on his person. But they could not search his rooms or search the laptop itself. It just sat there. Had the laptop been searched, enough information would have been found to have unraveled the whole thing, most likely, within the next four weeks. At least there would have been a chance. Instead, it was denied. They never got to do it until after the 9-11 attacks occurred. So that was horrendous. The typical government bureaucracy and red tape. Here, you had an agent who, who really, really strongly believed that this guy was a terrorist and uh, they couldn't search the guy's laptop. Also, another missed opportunity, they had a uh, terrorist named Ahmed Rassam in custody. He was someone who wanted to uh, do bombings on the Millennium New Year's, and they had arrested him before he could do anything. So in order to gain leniency in his sentencing, he said that he will share info with U.S. authorities. He wanted to not spend uh, his entire life in prison. He wanted to maybe have a chance of getting out. So he said, I'll tell you guys what you want to know. Ask me questions, I'll tell you. Apparently he knew about the 9-11 attacks, and he knew about Masawi. So all they had to do, all the FBI had to do, was ask him, do you know Zacharias Masawi, and why was he here? And it is believed that Ahmed Rassam would have said, because he wanted leniency, he was no longer dedicated to the cause, he just didn't want to spend his life in prison. And he knew Zacharias Masawi, they found out afterwards. 
So it's believed that had he said, yeah, he's here to commit a, a terrorist act, attack involving planes, and here's what they're going to do, that would have stopped the whole thing. So two different chances were blown. So how, how you can have this guy in custody and not try to ask about this would-be terrorist you just arrested that's suspected of doing something suspicious with planes is crazy. This shows you how the FBI can be really incompetent sometimes and how they're bogged down by bureaucracy. So the attacks happened. The reason that the fourth plane did not get to its target, and we never found out what the exact target actually was, was because it was delayed. Due to that delay, people started to get information while the plane was in the air. Interestingly enough, even back in 01, a lot of people carried cell phones, not smartphones because those didn't exist, but people carried cell phones then. And they would kind of go in and out of service as they would pass over metropolitan areas. So people were able to make calls and get messages on their cell phones. It wouldn't last very long, but uh, they, they were able to start getting messages, like text messages, telling them that these attacks had happened. Now, it wasn't known yet to be attacks, but after two planes had hit buildings, it was uh, believed that uh, this could be terror attacks. So once their own plane was taken over, it was assumed by a lot on board and correctly assumed that they were going to be yet another plane used to crash into a major building. And a vote was taken when uh, the terrorists weren't uh, paying attention. Now, keep in mind, they didn't have as many terrorists to watch over the crowd because they were missing one. They only had 19 hijackers. Masawi never got to be the 20th, and the other 20th hijacker uh, never made it in the country. Ziad Jara was flying the plane with another uh, terrorist, uh, Marwan al-Shehi. They only had uh, two attempting to control the crowd. So they were talking to each other and able to do it without uh, fully being detected. And even some were able to make phone calls from the GTE air phones on board and do stuff like that. And, and the uh, terrorists just felt that they either they didn't see it or they didn't feel it was much to worry about. The terrorists were not aware that these people were getting told what had already happened. They came to realize that they're going to be dead either way and that they have to stop it. So they took a vote and uh, the flight attendants were going to push the cart, you know, the food cart as a battering ram. You know how those food carts are so hard to get by? I'm sure when you've been flying, you need to go to the bathroom and there's a food cart there. You go, oh, no, I'm never going to get by this thing. It's so wide and big. So they, they were going to use it as a battering ram to both run over the terrorists who were guarding them and also to slam into the cockpit door and get in there and take over the plane and, and hopefully land it with, with help from the flight tower. They knew that, of course, they could be killed or several of them could be killed trying to and also maybe the terrorists will just put the plane down if they start to get close, but they figured that's their only shot. Uh, some of the conversations were actually heard because people were on GTE air phones and uh, you could hear discussion in the background. One of the most famous phrases that came from that plane, Flight 93, was Let's Roll by Todd Beamer, who was one of the organizers of the resistance to this uh, terrorist attack, and obviously his actions and the other men who, who did this, as well as the uh, female flight attendants who, tr who pushed the cart and, and, and dumped hot water over the uh, 
two terrorists guarding were uh, significant as well. So the definitely the passenger revolt was mostly successful, and it didn't save the lives of anyone on board. But when the recordings of the cockpit were found, it was heard where where two of the terror the two terrorists who were flying were asking, "Should we put it down?" And the other one said, "No, let's wait till they come, then we put it down." Referring to if they can get through and and bust, and bust through the cockpit door, that at that point they'll put it down. Uh, but otherwise, let's wait and try to continue the mission. So it's still not known what they were going to hit, but they were not looking to hit a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. They were looking to hit something and kill a ton of people. So whatever they were going to hit, never got hit. And nobody was killed on the ground except for those who were on the plane. So it, uh, the only ones who died in Flight 93 uh, with that crash were the ones who were on the plane itself, including all the terrorists, of course. So these people did a very heroic thing, and they saved a lot of lives by this passenger revolt. The towers were not hit at the same time either. And there was about 30 minutes in between the towers being hit. The North Tower was hit first, and then the South Tower was hit after that. There was enough time for those in the South Tower to get out, even those on the very top. Even if this was not known to be a terror attack, I thought, and the second I heard about this, I, this is exactly what I thought then, and this is what I think 20 years later, that I couldn't understand why people did not immediately exit the South Tower, even if there was no terrorism suspected. Why? Because if anything happens to the North Tower, even if the, the first hit was an accident, if anything happens to the North Tower, it could bring down the South Tower. The fire could spread to the South Tower. It just is not safe to be in the South Tower next to the North Tower when the North Tower is on fire from a plane hitting it. So I, I don't. So I have no idea why this wasn't immediately completely evacuated. That was a gigantic mistake. In fact, people were told to stay in the South Tower, that it's the safest there, that it's unsafe to leave the tower because of falling debris. That is idiotic. Now, I can tell you, if I was in the South Tower, I would have gotten the hell out of there. I would not have stayed there helpless, even not knowing another plane was going to hit. But I would not stay there helpless in case the fire spread over or if the tower collapsed and, and took my tower down with it. I would be on the stairs running down. I may, I may have taken the elevator to be faster, but I, I probably would have taken the elevator. Whatever the hell I would have done, I would have gotten out of there. But there were some who chose not to. Some heeded the dumb advice that was being given. And others just felt, ah, you know what, I'm busy. It's too bad what happened over there, but I'm sure they'll get it under control. Unfortunately, Kevin Cosgrove was one of those people who just decided not to leave. He, he could have left, but he did not leave. That doesn't make his death any less tragic. And he was only 46 years old. He was uh, three years younger than I am now. But what's significant about Kevin Cosgrove was that there is a publicized and recorded call of him when he was realizing that things were coming near the end. That he was trapped on the 105th floor of the South Tower after the second plane had hit. He could not get past it because uh, the building was on fire and it was blocking the staircase. The fire was blocking the staircase. There was no way to go down. And he was trying to convince them to bring in more help to extinguish the fire, not realizing that it was a hopeless situation and that uh, 
he, I mean, he knew there was a good chance he was going to die, but he also uh, was desperately asking for help. So I'm going to play you the Kevin Cosgrove call. And it's, it's very sad, but I think it's something you should hear. So he said, uh, there's two of us, I'm with two other people in this office that we don't want to die, it's getting really bad. I'm not sure where this ringing is between. I'm not sure if it's uh, him making several calls or them transferring him around. Yeah, it, seem, it seems that they're transferring him because they said uh, he's on the line and then the fire department says, let me talk to him. So you can see he's getting very desperate. He says they keep saying that, that they'll get to you as soon as you can, but the smoke's getting really bad now, he says. He said, now it's getting hard to understand here, but he said, I, I know you got a lot in the building, but we're on the top. Smoke raises too. We're on the floor. We're in the window. Yeah, he said, easy to say that you're in an air conditioned building about, you know, hang in there. He's saying, yeah, you're in an air conditioned building with no danger. Of course, you can hang in there. What the hell happened? Okay, I'm still here. Yeah, so tell God to try to blow the wind from the west. So she's trying to calm down because he's starting to hyperventilate. She's saying he's got to conserve his energy. Yeah, so he's starting to realize his predicament here. He said, how the hell are you going to get my ass down? I need oxygen. He realizes he's on the 105th floor. They don't have ladders that high. The whole thing's on fire. They don't seem to be 
flying anything around there that could rescue him. So he's starting to realize that he's going to probably die of smoke inhalation if they don't get there soon, and they're not really making any kind of effort to get to him, nor may there even be a way. They have a lot of apparatus on the so it's hard to understand. She said, we have a number of apparatuses on the way. He said, it doesn't feel like it. You get them in from Jersey, get them in from Ohio. So he's just basically, you get everybody over here to try to, with a maximum effort to get people out of here. But it was going to be too late. Okay, so Yes, that was really sad. He called his wife. He decided at that point, about half an hour after the first tower was hit, that he's going to leave. He, he said to his wife, okay, you know what? I'm leaving the building. And just as he was picking up to leave, boom, other flight hits below where he is, and now he can't get out. So you think Doug Cherry's next to me? So he's in some other office. I'm not sure why, but they're all huddled in this office. Uh, we're in John Astaru's office. Okay, that's about to be the last moment that he's going to be alive. Hello, we're looking in. We're overlooking the financial center. Three of us, two broken windows. So he's kind of trying to say where they are in the tower. So if they fly by, they can see him. So obviously the situation looks grim, but he doesn't think that he's going to be dead in the next few seconds until he feels the building shaking and hears really loud rumbling and realizes what's about to happen. And that's it. You hear the rumbling, then, oh God, oh, gone. Now it's not clear if the second O was interrupted because he died or if the cell phone was destroyed. But very sad to listen to. You, you hear this guy, 46 years old, in his final moments, and saying he's got kids, young kids, he's too young to die. Then he knows what's coming. Only a few seconds, but he hears the building collapsing around him and knows it's what about his, and he shouts out, oh God, oh! That's the last you hear. His body was found... A lot of people's bodies were not found or they were mangled so badly because of uh, the energy and heat generated by the buildings collapsing. Somehow, from the one of the floor to the bottom, his body was found in fairly good condition. Good meaning that he was nowhere near surviving, but it was not mangled. So he was dead and they found him and he was uh, they were able to get his wedding ring, give it to his wife, and uh, give him a full burial with his... Uh, body that was not looking that bad so that that was a very slight uh, silver lining to this whole thing but you can look it up on youtube kevin cosgrove c-o-s-g-r-o-v-e whenever people would minimize 9-11 or when they would 
try to say that uh, make excuses for Islamic fundamentalists, anything like that. I, I, I would say go listen to this call. Go listen to this call and tell me what you think. Now, after the attacks, they took the images of the buildings collapsing off of TV. They pretty much made it where you just won't show them. You'll see them occasionally now, but for a while you could not see them unless you went online. And there was no YouTube then, by the way. YouTube didn't show up till 05. So there's no YouTube. You could watch video online, but it wasn't as easy to find. It wasn't like YouTube today where you just pull it up and search something. You can watch just about anything that's been put up there. So they took these videos of the towers collapsing off of TV because there was a concern that people would develop Islamophobic feelings, which is absolutely ridiculous that they did this. This should have been in people's minds. People should be angry. They should remain angry about it. They don't have to show it every day and depress people, but to say we're, we're not going to show it because we don't want people getting too angry at Muslims is crazy. You, it's not up to the media to decide how angry people get, but that, that decision was made for that reason, and I never agreed with that. Bill Clinton was under investigation for his role in this, as was George W. Bush. Not that they did this on purpose. Neither of them did. And I, I don't believe any of these conspiracy theories that uh, 9-11 and what it appeared to be. And I'll get to the conspiracy theories shortly. But they were both investigated by a 9-11 commission. And Bill Clinton, in particular, something very damning was found about Bill Clinton that's never discussed. But you can look it up. I'm not just making this up as a Republican. You can go look this up. Bill Clinton was found to have sent his friend, his longtime friend and political operative, Sandy Berger, into the National National Archives to steal documents about that, that could make him look bad. Bill Clinton realized right away that he had a lot of inaction that could be blamed on him. So he stole documents through his friend, through Sandy Berger, longtime friend of his, who went into the National Archives and stole 9-11 related documents so history would not show that Clinton was responsible. Now, he was not worried about a criminal conviction, Bill Clinton, but he was worried about history showing that he had some responsibility. Sandy Berger died, by the way, in uh, 2015, but he was caught and sentenced for the removal and disposal of classified material from the National Archives. He was actually a lawyer. He had to give up his uh, license to practice law, but he wasn't an active practicing lawyer anyway, so it didn't really matter. He still was advising the Clintons as late as 2008 when Hillary was trying to run for president. Remember, she lost to Barack Obama in the primary, but he was still advising the Clintons after his conviction. Even though the Clintons claimed that he did this on his own, they never directed him to do it, which of course is BS. He claimed this was all his idea because that's what political operatives have to do. Political operatives cannot rat out those who sent them to do the dirty work. Part of being a political operative is to take the fall if you get caught. Otherwise, you will never be a political operative again. You have to trust the political operative is going to take jail time if they have to, to protect you. And a lot of them will. And he did. However, in what was a huge miscarriage of justice, 
Sandy Berger was only sentenced to two years of probation plus community service, even though it was proven that he stole this 9-11 related material from the National Archives. Look this up. This is not something I'm making up. It's not a conspiracy theory. Look it up. This is fact and it was proven in court. At first, he claimed that he only took copies, but it was found that was not true, that he took originals. And in fact, because these were not all indexed, there were several documents he may have taken that they'll never know what was stolen because some, they're just missing. And it's, uh, it's not known exactly everything that disappeared. It's only known that he stole 9-11 related documents pertaining to Clinton, which he admitted, by the way, eventually. But he claimed he's all of them just stealing copies. But he, now he claimed this is his idea. But obviously it wasn't. Obviously, you know why he did this. In 2004, it was revealed that he was being investigated for this. And he was convicted in 05. So Clinton was that worried that he was going to look bad over this, that he actually sent his buddy in to steal documents out of the National Archives. George W. Bush was less culpable on this. He'd only been in office for eight months, and there were some reports that people were bringing concerns to him about al-Qaeda, and he was kind of dismissing them, that he was uh, not taking the threat that seriously. However, the bigger active threat at the time was under the Clinton administration. That's when bin Laden was making all his threats. That's when he was making his plans to do something to the U.S. homeland. That's when, in 2000, there was the USS Cole bombing. So there were a lot of active terrorist events and plans during the Clinton years that Clinton, and who was also there for eight years, so he had a lot more time to do something about it than uh, Bush, who was there for eight months beforehand. But Bush wasn't perfect either. He, he did ignore some warning signs. But of course, look, look at the FBI. They were totally incompetent when they, they had one of the hijackers there and could have figured it out. And they had a second terrorist that could have fingered the hijacker that was all willing to talk and somehow they didn't ask about him. So I want to talk about the conspiracy theories. In short, they're mostly BS. I don't believe this was done on purpose. I don't believe that uh, Al-Qaeda didn't really do it, that the U.S. did it themselves, or that the, that the Israeli Mossad did it, or the CIA did it. None of this is true. And if you follow the facts, none of these things pan out. It was not a controlled demolition. All of this has been disproven. However, there are two conspiracy theories that I think have a chance of being true, though I would still say they're not that likely. The first one is that Flight 93 was shot down and not brought down as a result of a passenger revolt. Now, you may say, wait a minute. I just said earlier in the show that there is a recording of the terrorists saying, yes, let's put it down. And then a lot of screaming and the plane went down. And that's the strongest piece of evidence against it being shot down. However, planes, fighter jets were sent to catch up with Flight 93 and shoot it down. And that's not discussed very much, but they were sending out fighter jets to catch up to it after they had lost contact with it and having known what happened with the other flights. Remember, 93 left late, so that's why it was behind the others and... uh, the passengers became aware, and uh, the U.S. government became aware that that was a threat. So they sent fighter jets that supposedly had orders to shoot it down. So did they get there, or did they not? A man who was calling from his cell phone in the bathroom said that he noticed white smoke coming in at one point, which 
is strange for a plane that crashed into the ground. And here he was still in the air, and white smoke was coming in. He also said that he heard uh, some kind of loud banging sound, almost like maybe something hit the plane, and the white smoke was uh, the white smoke of what had uh, of the damage that had been done to the plane. So maybe at the same time the passenger revolt was happening, that it was also shot down and nobody realized it. And of course, since there was a real passenger revolt, that it was easier to say that a heroic revolt brought it down rather than it being shot down. And maybe the things happened at the same time. Maybe these guys, because they'd actually, they do have the recording of the two terrorists who are flying and saying, okay, let's put it down now. But it's also possible that at the same time they were putting it down, it was also shot down. Do I think that's true? Probably not. I, I gave it more consideration before the recordings were found to exist and and the transcript was released. So unless the transcript is fake, it's probably likely that it was a passenger revolt that brought it down. However, it probably would have been shot down if they didn't do that. However, they also may not have gotten to it in time. So I still think the passenger revolt saved lives because it's possible either they would have hesitated shooting it down and not done so, or more likely they, they just wouldn't have gotten there by then. It wasn't that far away from D.C. at the time when it happened. The second conspiracy theory, the one I think is, if there is any conspiracy theory that's true, the one that's uh, maybe a little possibility of being true, is the one having to do with World Trade Center 7. World Trade Center 7 was not hit by any terrorists. No planes hit it. No terrorists bombed it. But it went down. It was a smaller building in the World Trade Center that a while after the two towers went down, it went down. It just went down. And a lot of people were questioning that. The explanation given was that the vibration from the two huge towers collapsing disrupted the foundation of World Trade Center 7 and the completely abandoned building just collapsed because the foundation was no good anymore. That was the explanation given. However, no other buildings collapsed like that, to my knowledge. And the whole thing's a little bit weird. There's nobody killed because people had evacuated hours prior. So it was just a building being destroyed. But why would anyone do that? If this was a conspiracy, if the U.S. did this, why would they blow up World Trade Center 7 if everything else was a was an actual terrorist attack, why would they then intentionally blow up a building and blame it on that? Well, it's possible that because it had been abandoned and because no one was going to be allowed in for quite some time, it's possible that there was something in World Trade Center 7 that the government did not want being seen by any investigators or anyone going into World Trade Center 7 to survey the damage. Because remember, everybody had to just run out quickly. And there may have been things left there that could have been government secrets or whatever. So it may have been decided that it's just better to destroy the building and blame it on this. And the belief would be, look, all all we're doing is destroying a building. Every single person's out of it, which was true. Every single person was out of it. Nobody died from World Trade Center 7 collapsing and nobody uh, got hurt. Do I think that's what happened? No, but do I think it's possible? Yes, but that's really the only conspiracy theory I think has any kind of possible 
validity at this point. And a lot of the World Trade Center 7, that's it, World Trade Center conspiracies are really just anti-Semitic nonsense, blaming it on the Mossad and all that other crap. So it really is what it appeared to be. Now, since 9-11, there, of course, were some changes. The airline industry struggled for a few years, and... It was wonder. It was it was uh, questionable whether we would ever recover. At the time, people didn't want to travel. People were afraid of planes, and just uh, the, the airline industry was really, really having a hard time. And in fact, they they got some government assistance to survive. There were some safety related changes. They they started having air marshals who were armed who would uh, fly undercover on random flights around the uh, around the U.S. and internationally. They reinforced and put locks on cockpit doors so people couldn't just stroll in there and, and take over, like what had happened in 9-11. And then also, they developed something called a no-fly list, which has had some controversy because the no-fly list just says you can't fly, and there's no trial for this. They just decide you can't fly, and that's it. There have been some people who couldn't fly simply because they had names that matched those on the no-fly list, and there was mistakes made. There were supposed to be other personally identifying data that would separate people with the same names, but some of them uh, messed up and, and innocent people were put on that list or uh, duplicates or, or people were assumed to be on that list who just happened to have the same name. And people also reported having difficulty getting off the list if they were put on mistakenly in some way. There are some who asserted that the no-fly list was a civil rights violation. The airline industry changed the way they fill planes. They no longer were operating a lot of flights that were mostly empty. So in an effort to get profitable again with less demand for flying, they started to make sure all the flights would fill. They did this somewhat through computer algorithms that examined previous flight data and how many people were on each plane at each at what time but also by sometimes just outright canceling flights that weren't selling well enough and forcing people onto other flights that are at uh, hours that are somewhat close to that. So when you get emails, this is still persisting today. So if you get emails from the airline saying, we've changed your flight and it's no, it's no longer this flight number, and it's no longer this time, now it's 40 minutes later and it's this flight number, that's exactly what happened. They canceled your flight because there was not enough demand for it and they moved you to another similar flight. Depending on how much inconvenience you're getting from that, you do have a right to cancel it completely. But if it's only a s small amount of time, you don't. You will often get that option if you qualify for it in the email saying that you can cancel right now at no charge. Interestingly enough, and this was before 9-11, I got out of a, a flight I didn't want to take because of a change. And this is, again, before they made these changes. But I had a trip planned with a long-term girlfriend, and we broke up. So, number one, I paid for her ticket, and obviously I didn't want to fly with her anymore, nor did she really want to go anymore. We weren't together. And number two, I was uh, <laughs> not wanting to go myself either, but I thought I was going to have to eat the plane ticket, and it was non-refundable. So I got a call from United Airlines, and it said, Hello, we are calling for Todd Wittellis. 
this is about flight number, whatever, on whatever date, we have changed the t- flight time from 11.10 a.m. to 11.35 a.m. I go, hmm, is this a way out of it? So it says, if this is okay, you don't have to do anything. Otherwise, press 1 to speak to an agent. So I press 1 to speak to an agent. And I said, I can't have this. You know, I'm, I'm flying here for a meeting. I can't be 25 minutes later. This is the latest I can come. This is going to become useless to me. They're like, okay, sir, no problem. We'll cancel it and give you a full refund. I was like, yes. So I get a full refund there because they changed my flight time by 25 minutes, which, by the way, they stopped doing. They they made a, I think it had to be more than an hour or an hour and a half or something to qualify for a free fu- refund. Uh, nowadays, uh, because of COVID, they've changed the rules to be a little more favorable to the flyer, but uh, we won't get into all that. But that's why the planes are a lot more full than they used to be. You can occasionally find a flight that is empty, but for the most part, the days of getting the entire row to yourself and lying down and sleeping across three seats, that, that doesn't happen anymore. And there's a lot of other rules now about uh, people in coach going into first class to use the bathroom or, or whatever else. That These things are not allowed anymore. And uh, just general movement throughout the plane is not as open as it used to be. So you used to be able to go wherever the hell you wanted. And now you can't. Also, another big change, and you should keep this in mind if you fly and they do something to piss you off while you're on board, like a stewardess or a steward is a jerk to you or something is being done that's unfair and you want to argue about it. Because of 9-11, they gave a lot more power to airline staff to report passengers who are unruly and have them arrested on the ground. And most of the people who get reported deserve it and really are very unruly and really are being terrible and they do do deserve to be arrested. But they also have a right to report people who they argue with. So it's really at their discretion. I'm not saying you're going to be criminally charged, but if you have an argument with a flight attendant about some matter on board, whereas before you could do that and there'd be no consequence, uh, now you're always risking they're going to call in a complaint about you and the FBI is going to take you off on the ground and you're going to be questioned for eight hours. So Really, on airlines, you have to be on your best behavior. No matter how pissed off you are, you cannot aggressively argue about anything. Even if you don't make any threats or use any foul language or or, or get uh, really, really in their face or yell, still, if you aggressively argue, you could be arrested. And maybe not charged, but it's going to take a long time to get out of this one. So you do not want that. So that's, that's one spot where I do not argue aggressively, even if I'm really being screwed. And I, I've had this before. I've had this where I, if it were not, if it were pre nine eleven, I would have a lot to say and keep arguing, but I'll back down. Like the, the funny thing is, one, one time, one time I think I actually benefited by backing down quickly. Which usually you don't. Usually when you back down quickly in any kind of customer service situation, they're just kind of happy to be out of it and they're not going to help you. But uh, I was given seats that would not recline, and this is before I knew to check uh, seatmap dot com. So I was given seats that wouldn't recline, and this is post 9-11, things like in 2011 or something. And I had purchased Economy Plus with the extra leg room, but they wouldn't recline. And I was explaining to the stewardess that uh, this negates the whole purpose of me buying this extra leg room. And while obviously I can't uh, get different seats at this point, and this isn't her fault, that I see there are other seats in Economy Plus that do recline that are empty. And they've already closed the doors, so I know they're open. So can I move to them? Or 
can I at least move to them in 10 minutes after takeoff or whatever? You know, like uh, whenever it's safe to get up around the cabin after they're done taking off, can I move then? She said, no. I said, why not? Because you're not allowed to. I said, well, no, that's, I, I, I know you can give me permission to do it. I was being very polite and very quiet and very calm. And she says, nope. You, you knowingly bought these seats that can't recline. I said, no, I didn't. There was no warning about that. Well, reclining is not uh, something you're guaranteed. And she was being very bitchy and nasty. She wasn't even like understanding. She wasn't like, okay, this is unfortunate, but we, due to regulations, there's nothing we do. She's very bitchy. Like, like when you bought your tickets, there is nothing guaranteeing you a reclining seat. Like, just nasty language like that. I really wanted to go off on her, but I just... And I was being very polite and calm, and I, but I knew it. I knew that if I had the aggressive argument that they might, first of all, just call the police right there and have me taken off the plane. And second, uh, even if I argued after we took off, that they might have the FBI or the police waiting for me when I, when I got on the ground and, and arrest me. So I said, okay, going to have to swallow my pride there and sit here with a crappy uh, non-reclining seat for five hours. So I sat back down, conceded defeat. We took off. Fifteen minutes after takeoff, she came to me and said, yeah, um... Go ahead, you can move the seat over there. <laughs> so we moved to the seats that could recline. So she just changed her mind. I think I think the fact that I backed down so quickly actually made me a more sympathetic character to her. So this is one of the rare cases where, where being docile and, and not really standing up for your rights uh, actually helped. Weird. But that's exactly why I stopped, because, I, because of 9-11. If this happened in like 1999, 2000, early 2001, I would have handled it very differently. Now... Before we conclude, this segment is longer than I expected it would be. I guess there's just so much to say about 9-11 and the before circumstances and the aftermath that it takes a long time. There's so much I didn't cover. But there were two wars that spawned from 9-11, one which just terminated, the Afghan war, and also the Iraq war, the second Iraq war. Of course, not the 91 Gulf War, but the uh, the 03 war. I think 02 or 03, I forgot which one it was, but... The Afghan military offensive was necessary. The Taliban, which was in control of Afghanistan at the time, was welcoming al-Qaeda. They are separate from al-Qaeda, but they were very supportive of al-Qaeda, and they let al-Qaeda basically do what they wanted and set up all the terror training camps there and everything like that. So the Taliban didn't directly plan or commit 9-11, but they were very supportive of it. So they had to go. Now, you may say, well, yeah, but they're back now. We just left. So why why did we waste 20 years and all these American lives? Well, because what should have been done was the the goal should have been just destroy the Taliban, uh, attempt to set up something very quickly to replace them and leave. And then just kind of monitor the situation that nothing worse is taking over. Uh, The nation building we attempted there just was never going to work and it was also never going to work to train an afghan army that was just never very dedicated to the job so that that was the mistake but going into afghanistan and going after al-qaeda and pushing at the taliban that that needed to be done at the time and anyone who says it didn't doesn't remember 2001 very well and we would have also looked incredibly weak if we didn't that's the other problem was there has to be a response even if the Taliban took over again 20 years later, as they did, at least we had a response. If we have no response and just kind of shrug our shoulders and work to defend ourselves from this happening next time, 
then that shows you can attack the U.S. homeland with no consequence. You cannot have that. You've got to have a consequence for those who were responsible and those who supported this, who were, who were uh, rec- giving assistance to the organization doing this. So something had to be done. Now, the Iraq part of it is a lot more complicated. And I, I could go on forever talking about the Iraq situation, but people look back at the Iraq situation and see it as a tremendous mistake. And it's not quite as much of a mistake as it appears to be in hindsight. There is a belief that Saddam Hussein was pursuing weapons of mass destruction, which had nothing to do with 9-11. And there was some dishonesty on the part of Republicans to push the narrative that we have to do this because of 9-11. There was, there was very weak evidence that really, I don't think, was very valid at all, that there was a 9-11 connection to Iraq. But there really wasn't, from what we can see. Even then, it was pretty clear the evidence was very weak. I used to be annoyed when fellow Republicans would talk about, well, we had to be there because look what happened on 9-11. I go, no, see, there's two different things. So 9-11 was Nazi justification to go into Iraq. And if that was the justification used, which somewhat it was, uh, then that wasn't correct. We should not have gone in for that reason. However, there was a valid reason to go into Iraq. I'm not saying we necessarily should have, but the actu- there was an actual reason to go into Iraq that was totally separate from 9-11. And that was the fact that Saddam Hussein had been dicking around with the U.S. for 12 years. He was pursuing weapons of mass destruction. Then we would get wind of this. Then we would uh, threaten all these consequences. This, you remember after the uh, first Gulf War where he uh, surrendered pretty quickly. And uh, then he said, okay, 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 no more, no more, we're going to stop. And the U.S. would go, okay. Then he was told, okay, well, there's going to be U.N. inspectors that come in to make sure you're not building them. Okay, yeah, no problem, cool. And then the U.N. inspectors come in, they go, hey, let's let's see this, let's see that. Oh, no, 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 you can't see this place. No, 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 you can't inspect this. And they're like, wait, wait, no, you said we could. No, 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 you can't. Then the U.S. would go back to Saddam and say, wait a minute, you're not allowing us to do this. And he's like, yeah, 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 well, they're, they're not going to these places. He was constantly playing games with them. Then he let them inspect after some time passed where he could have hidden or dismantled whatever they were building. Okay, you guys, you guys can look now. Don't be like, like a, a search warrant is issued for the home of a criminal, and the criminal's like, whoa, 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 whoa you, you can't come in here. Hold on a second. Uh, how about come back tomorrow? That, that wouldn't be very useful, because the criminal can get rid of everything. So it's basically what was happening for 12 years with Saddam Hussein, on and off, on and off, on and off. In fact, I remember watching a report from like, 97 or 98 about Saddam Hussein and about his weapons of mass destruction program and then watching a different one from 91 and it was like watching the exact same report about all the games he was playing. He was doing the same thing over and over and over and over. He was constantly dicking around with the US and the UN starting and stopping that program over and over and over again. Every time he thought the US and UN would turn their backs he would start it up again. So he was never serious about actually stopping, and he was just being incredibly difficult with this, and at some point it had to stop, because he he was definitely pursuing them, and at some point he was going to get there. So when we actually went in, and no WMDs were found, this was the subject of a lot of criticism, and there was a much reviled quote of, the absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence. Well, I agree with that quote, because he could have easily dismantled or destroyed the WMDs once he realized that the 
U.S. had invaded and that they were going to not be able to hide this anymore. So it's very possible that there was a WMD program going when we thought it was, when we invaded, and we just never found them because they were dismantled. And even if you don't want to believe that, if you want to say, well, you can guess that, but there was no proof. Okay, but there is proof that for 12 years he was dicking around with that and starting over and over and over and over again after promising he's going to stop. So 100% he was pursuing it. At that moment, did he have any? Maybe, maybe not. But he was definitely pursuing it over that 12-year period, and you couldn't trust anything he said. And it was understandable why the U.S. was tired of this and just wanted him to go. So that was kind of a valid reason. Now, there were some downsides to this. Uh, He did provide some stability. He was not particularly religious. He did uh, hold back a lot of the religious extremism, which has since appeared in his absence. So there's a lot worse of a terrorist uh, problem coming out of Iraq than during the Saddam Hussein years. However, he had the goal of conquering the area, including Israel. He wanted to take over the entire area. He wanted to conquer. So this is a problem. Okay, so you can't just say, well, uh, he kept the terrorists at bay, so he's, uh, he's cool. He wasn't cool. He was, he was a big problem. He needed to go. So I don't want to get into the whole Iraq discussion, but it's not as simple as many make it. Because people who criticize the Iraq War of 03 will say two things. Number one, had nothing to do with 9-11. My response, I agree. They say, also, it was conflated with 9-11, And it was uh, said to be related to justify it, and that was wrong. And actually, I'll also say, I agree. But they also say, we didn't find WMDs. That was all bullshit made up by Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld. And my answer is, untrue. True that we didn't find them. Not true that it wasn't being pursued. And not true that it wasn't being pursued for the past 12 years. So, I won't get into the recent Afghanistan withdrawal situation. That's kind of getting too far from 9-11 and... This has gone on way too long. But this won't happen again in this manner. It's impossible to happen again, as I said earlier. Will we eventually have another major terror attack on U.S. homeland? Possible. But it's uh, still tough to do because there is no presence of U.S. terror cells. And that's very important to prevent. That makes the U.S. a lot safer than Europe from terror attacks because they have terror cells all over the place. They have terror cells in Paris and in London and all in, in, in uh, Frankfurt. They have them all over Europe, all over Western Europe. They've infiltrated enough terrorists into the these countries. And of course, it's a lot closer. It's a lot easier to do. But we have a big ocean between us and the Middle East. And so we need to prevent terror cells from establishing in the U.S. or this is going to be a problem that never goes away. And fortunately for the last 20 years, we have not had a major terror attack in the U.S. We have had some kind of lone wolf type of attacks. We've had attacks that are done by a few terrorists that uh, want to cause mayhem and death. But we have not had a major terror attack in the U.S. since 9-11 on U.S. home soil. So that is... A very good thing. And I do give credit to the U.S. government for preventing that. As incompetent as the FBI is, they have prevented some attacks. And we have prevented terror cells from establishing 
in the U.S., but we have to be very careful that we don't let our guard down because as soon as they get established here, it's game over. Then then we're going to have that stuck here forever. And that's something very good about the U.S. Our physical distance, our big ocean in between, makes it much harder for them to get terrorists in here. That's another reason, by the way, to watch the southern border carefully, that they don't sneak in through Mexico. We do not want a terror cell problem here. Or it's just a matter of time till they come up with another creative way to attack the U.S. homeland. Rest in peace, those who perished on 9-11 and those that perished after 9-11 as a result of toxic fumes in the air from the collapse of the buildings. Rest in peace, the brave firefighters and police officers that ran to the buildings on fire to assist people. Many of them died themselves. And rest in peace, the heroes of Flight 93, who probably prevented a lot more lives from being lost. And they realized that they needed to sacrifice their own lives to prevent many others from dying. And that if their death was likely anyway, that they need to go down as heroes. I think everybody realized when they started this offensive that they were unlikely to finish walking out of that plane. They probably realized that the best case scenario was the plane would crash somewhere and not hurt anybody else. And that is exactly what happened with Flight 93. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. Let's move to something much more current, the WSOP and the mask mandate. So remember the mask mandate? Remember the vaccine mandate? Remember the WSOP waffling all over the place about their requirements for the vaccine? Remember the whole thing started when KevMath, by the way, KevMath's birthday today. I guess now it's yesterday because it's September 12th, but uh, I guess now it's yesterday, uh, Kev Math's birthday. And by the way, I'm, just before I get into this whole thing, since Kev Math has uh, a little part of this story, in case uh, you want to donate anything to Kev Math, who listens to this show, I don't know if he listens to every single episode, but I know he's a frequent listener of Poker Fraud Alert Radio. If you want to give anything to Kev Math, just just a donation because he does a lot for the poker world and really does it for no money except for during the World Series where they gave him a job to uh, do what he does, which I support very much and he's very good at it. But if you want to give to him, if you go to buymeacoffee.com, exactly as it sounds, buymeacoffee.com slash Kev Math, K-E-V-M-A-T-H. Uh, you're not physically buying him a coffee. You're, you're basically just donating the equivalent funds to him. It's uh, $3 per quote coffee. So like if you buy him five coffees, you give him 15 bucks. I think I'm actually going to do this for him. And uh, if, if you appreciate what Kev Math does for the poker world, and he, he's a very non-controversial, very mild-mannered guy without any kind of temper or ego whatsoever. This is a really egoless person who just wants to be helpful. And he's always been that way. So if if you've appreciated what he's done over the years, uh, go to buymeacoffee.com slash kevmath. I saw that uh, Jennifer Newell, who is a poker reporter, and in fact reports a lot on the Apostle stuff, she tweeted that out and she donated some. So that's that's uh, a nice thing to do. And uh, he was actually bought into uh, World Series events before. A few of them, like I think Negreanu did it once. So 
and, and very deserved. Like when, when Kev Math gets something given to him by the poker community, I say, good, good. There's a good person getting good things. So anyway, uh, Kev Math, one of the good things he did, and despite the fact that he gets a, a job with the World Series every year, it's a uh, contract job, but still it's a job. They pay him. Uh, he still is so dedicated to the poker community that he pointed out a new rule that the WSP had there regarding the COVID policy. And it was a crazy rule. We've talked about this on previous shows. I'm not going to get into it because it's obsolete now. It, it changed. They, they basically kept changing over and over and over what the situation was going to be regarding COVID, about vaccines, about uh, people showing symptoms, about people being exposed to those with symptoms, about being, people being exposed to those who are known to have had COVID, and all these different rules put in place regarding disqualification. A lot of them were getting people very nervous to even play in the first place, knowing that uh, events beyond their control could get them disqualified, even if they did not have COVID themselves. Then the WSOP decided to say, you know what? We're just going to simplify this. We'll just make it required that you have to be fully vaccinated and that you'd have to, it has to be at least 14 days since your second shot or your only shot if it's the Johnson & Johnson. But basically 14 days since the last shot of an approved vaccine to play in the World Series and you must bring proof. You can either do it through an app called the Clear app and you can get the whole thing registered beforehand or if you don't want to do that, you can bring in your vaccine card and uh, stand on some line to do that to get verified, which you have to do once. And until you do that, you can't play. So that was the announcement they made. Then an embarrassing thing came out and the players got really mad that it was said that even though all the players had to be fully vaccinated in order to play the World Series, dealers and staff members didn't. <laughs> so that was uh, something that really pissed people off. It was never totally understood what the reason was for that. It was one of two reasons. It was either they were having trouble staffing dealers and they were just not going to be able to get enough dealers for the event if they made a vaccination requirement, or it, it's possible it was illegal. But uh, some believe it is legal, and I've never looked into the legality of it, but some believe it is legal because these are contract employees and they can make these requirements for a contract employee. I don't know. I, I haven't looked at Nevada labor laws. But whatever it is, they even though they're providing significant incentives for dealers to be fully vaccinated, like a, like a cash bonus if they do, they are not going to require it, that it is possible to be dealing at the World Series and not be fully vaccinated. So this upset a lot of players. It upset those that felt this is just hypocritical. That how, can you, how can you have requirement for the players, but not for the employees? And second, others who just felt it's not going to be safe, that if you're going to require it for all players and then let dealers sit there unvaccinated, that the unvaccinated people could be transmitting it to all the players and that making all the players get vaccinated is kind of pointless. Now, I don't think it's pointless because if it is transmitting less by, unvaccinated, by vaccinated people than unvaccinated people, then if the vast majority of people in the room are vaccinated, because there's way more players than dealers and way more players than dealers and staff combined, then that's still 
safer, but I, I can see the point. I can see the point of this doesn't make any sense why only some people have to do it and not others. So that got people angry. Well, questions started coming up about the mask mandate because there's a mask mandate by the state of Nevada that basically it started in uh, late July. In fact, I was in Vegas the day it started and it required that you have to wear masks in all indoor spaces. So the World Series had to have a mask mandate until that was lifted because that was Nevada state law. So people didn't really argue with that because they're not going to say World Series has to violate Nevada state law. However, there is a new emergency directive that was released, an updated one, on September 2nd. This was Nevada Emergency Directive 050, released September 2nd. And this directive allowed an exception to the mask rule if everybody present is vaccinated, then masks are not required. So the World Series of Poker put out this announcement on September 7th. The 2021 WSOP will operate under the mask exception set forth in the Nevada Emergency Directive 050, released by Governor Sisolak on September 2nd. With all attendees required to be fully vaccinated, players will be able to remove their masks while seated at the poker table. Wow. Did not see that one coming. I thought it was almost certain we'd have to wear masks at the poker table because Delta's not going away anytime soon. And in fact, it is breaking through a lot of vaccines, especially the Pfizer. And a lot of people haven't been vaccinated in the last five months or so, including me. You know, like a lot of people got their vaccines as soon as it was available. And uh, a lot of us are five months removed from that and it is pretty much proven that the vaccines especially the Pfizer's degrade over time in their effectiveness and it is believed that at the six month mark which will be during the World Series for a lot of people that the effectiveness is down to like 40% for the Pfizer that's not very good so I was sure that between that and the Delta variant raging and being super contagious that masking was going to be required for sure i did not believe masking should be required because i don't believe the cloth masks work i think they may provide a very small benefit but i didn't think that they really do very much it's it's more of a security blanket so you can feel you're being safe but i don't think really they're helping and i've never felt that and there's never been evidence that cloth masks are very effective they've try to show it in a lab setting, but a lab setting doesn't mean very much. In in this sort of thing, you have to get real-world data, and it's very hard to get real-world data. But what real-world data they have, they've never been able to prove that masking works. They've been able to prove that N95s work and KN95s work, but they cannot prove that cloth masks work. And it has been proven that a lot of the transmission of COVID is in aerosol format which these cloth masks will not stop. A lot of the masking is not particularly useful. It might help a little with the sneezing and coughing, so you're not spreading it through droplets, and it may prevent the air from traveling as far that does come out of your mouth that gets through the mask, but uh, 
overall, it doesn't seem to be doing very much, these cloth masks. So they, they and the problem is they, they then also cause some problems, the masks. They can uh, cause you to get ill in other ways. They can cause you to breathe in a lot of carbon dioxide. They can have uh, social consequences, especially for kids. And they also will bring on a false sense of security. They have what's known as the bicycle helmet problem, where uh, where uh, wearing a helmet while riding a bike is much safer. But it was found that some of that safety is negated that people, once they have the helmet on, believe they can take more chances. So if with a cloth mask, unlike a bicycle helmet, which is very useful if you fall off your bike and hit your head, uh, if a cloth mask is only doing a little bit, and yet it's making you act a lot riskier, if you're a lot willing to do a lot more things while wearing the mask than if nobody's wearing a mask, then uh, it's a net negative. And I've talked about that before in the show. So I wasn't a big masking guy. I, I'm actually a believer that the cloth mask is pretty much useless and should not be required. If people want to wear them, that's fine. I don't think people should be told not to wear masks. But I think it should just be people should be told honestly, this is doing a little bit. If you'd like to wear it and help out, then do it. But if you think it'll make you safer, do it. But but this isn't a big factor. And and here are the big factors. And then tell the truth. The vaccine is one of them. The vaccine is a very big factor. It's the biggest factor. But I never felt the masks were very useful. And I felt this is something that was exaggerated by the left in order to beat Trump. And they kind of just stuck with the narrative because the right was against it. So while I'm very pro-vaccine, I'm, I'm mostly anti-mask. Anti-meaning anti-kind of any requirement with masks. So I had said that I'm not going to sit at the World Series of Poker for 12 hours with only short breaks where I can take my mask off. And basically the only time I could take my mask off would be if I actually walked outside and uh, stayed out there with no mask on, which I would, but I, I wouldn't want to be stuck in like a 12-hour period where the vast majority of that time I have to have a mask on. And if I get uncomfortable, too bad. If I want to take it off and leave, too bad, because you're in a tournament. You can't just say, I quit. I mean, you can, but then you'll waste your money. So you're, you're pretty much committing yourself. You're going to be sitting there with that mask on until you're out of the event. So I didn't want that. I said, I'm not going to do it. So what about now? Now it's uh, no longer required. Now, this is a little bit weird. And people asked, and we're not sure why. It's a little bit weird that with the staff not being required to wear masks, why this is okay. And the World Series won't answer this. It's very weird. You would think that everybody in attendance would have to mask or not to, to be vaccinated in order to not wear masks, but that's not true. Maybe it's a percentage thing. Maybe they're able to get away with saying, well, we're going to have X number of percentage of people masked or fully vaccinated here, so it should be okay to have masks off. I'm not sure how this is legal, but the WSOP seems to think it is. Why did they make this decision? Because money. That's the reason they have made all of their decisions. The WSOP, of course, has to follow the law. The WSOP has to do what they need to do in order to prevent legal liability, which is not very much because uh, there's not very much legal liability for businesses if you contract COVID there, unless they're really, really, really negligent with uh, prevention techniques. But if they just do a little bit, then they're pretty much off the hook. And these rules were made in order to prevent businesses from going under because people get COVID and, and die and, and then sue the business. They, they, they knew that the courts would be jammed with stuff like this also, you can't prove where you got the COVID. It's another problem. The COVID doesn't announce, hey, I got it. Yeah, I, I gave you this here. Like you, you never know. So 
for these reasons, it's it's very hard to sue a business for catching COVID. Again, you'd have to prove a, a massive amount of negligence, which is very hard. But still, they have to comply with the law, and they have to make sure they're they're covered from a liability standpoint, and probably for their insurance as well. And they also have to have at least some perception that they're being responsible. And they have to make sure they don't drive away players who are not playing there because the WSP is unsafe. And if they are, that they're driving away fewer players that are staying away because the requirements are too difficult. So the WSP determined, and I think accurately, that more people are staying away because of the mask mandate than they would if there is no mask mandate because they're bothered that people will have no masks on. The WSP realized that with all the players being vaccinated, that there won't be that many people who will be too scared to play with no mask. But that there will be a fair number of people who would refuse to play if they had to wear a mask all day because it is uncomfortable. Me being one of them. So, okay, now that they have changed this, and by the way, there's a lot of people objecting to this. A lot of people saying, oh my God, I'm going to feel so unsafe. Oh my God, I'm not going to go now. If your reason for not going is that people are not wearing masks, it's a stupid reason. If your reason for not going is that dealers are unvaccinated and not wearing masks, it's a stupid reason. Now, if your reason for not going is that some dealers are unvaccinated and you believe they will be transmitting it and then you will get a breakthrough case, okay, I'll give you that one. But not because they are unmasked, just simply because they are unvaccinated and will be there. So if you're okay playing with unvaccinated dealers who have masks on, if you would play under those circumstances, but you won't play with unvaccinated dealers who don't have masks on, then that's stupid. Because these cloth masks are not shown to be very effective. They're, they're really mostly not a factor. It's a visual thing. It looks safer, but it isn't. It's the illusion of safety. It's the same illusion of safety where they come in and check your room every two days in the hotel to make sure that you're not the next Stephen Paddock loading up guns there. But they don't do anything to stop you from loading up guns during those 48 hours, which is very easy to do if you want to. So it's the illusion of safety. You say, oh, I'm glad they're checking rooms now because it took Stephen Paddock four days to load up guns. No, Stephen Paddock took four days because he had four days. He could have done it in two days. So it's the illusion of safety. They want people to feel like this isn't going to happen again when it easily can the same thing here. The masks have always been the illusion of safety, and even Dr. Fauci knew this way back in February 2020. So if that's the reason you're staying away, because the mask mandate has been taken away, then I don't think that's a very smart reason. However, is it reasonable to say, I don't want to play because there's thousands of people in the room and we're there for a long period of time together? And There's a lot of breakthrough cases these days, and Delta is super contagious, and there will be some dealers who are unvaccinated. Is that a good reason to stay away? Yes. And is there a good chance I will still stay away for that reason? Yes. I don't want to get COVID. I'm close to 50 years old. There are people who are getting COVID cases that are bad enough to where I wouldn't want to get them. If uh, even vaccinated people, the breakthrough cases, I know I have a much lower chance of dying of COVID now than I did prior to being vaccinated. And I'm happy about that. That's why I'm willing to go to the grocery store. I'm willing to meet with friends. I'm willing to do things that before I would not do prior to being vaccinated. But 
I will not. I, I, I don't think I feel comfortable doing the most dangerous thing I could think of, and that is being indoors with thousands of people cramped together and all breathing in this room, in this closed room for 12 hours. That just seems like, and with the breakthrough cases happening with the Pfizer vaccine, the one I got degrading, and it's been five months for me. It'll be six by the time I'm playing these events. I got to say, I don't feel very safe and I probably won't do it, but remember the World Series is seven weeks and boosters are coming soon, very soon. If I get a booster, I might consider it. And let's see what Matt the Rat has to say about this. Hey. Hi, Matt. So what's going on? Yeah, I'm interested in this topic. Um, like, as you you know, I went to WSOP nine years in a row. Um, obviously missed last year. Was really looking forward to going this year. Um, and then I heard, you know, oh, yeah, everybody's got to be vaccinated to play. And I was like, oh, okay, that's that's good. Because, like, about three months ago when the no- everybody's numbers were getting low, I was like, yeah, it's looking pretty good. And then... Like Las Vegas became one of the hot spots of the whole U.S. Clark County has a, a seven-day rolling average currently of 547 new cases a day. Um, and when I heard, "Oh yeah, everybody's got to be vaccinated," and I was like, "Okay, it's it's that sounds good. It sounds good." But like you were saying, everybody's jammed in that room. There's thousands of people. Um, if I lived in the U.S., maybe. And I think there's a lot of people in my situation that don't live in the U.S. If I went and I did get COVID because I got to test you before you get on the plane to go home. Number one, I would have to stay at a hotel for another 10 days, which is expensive. Um, and God forbid if I or you know somebody else got had to go to the hospital. Um, I have insurance, but that's just very expensive in the U.S., and I think for those, and also my work, um, like if I get sick, I get paid. But if I get COVID and I'm out of um, and I'm out of the country, they will not give me sick pay. Interesting. Uh, I never thought of that, but yeah, that's uh, these are good points you're bringing up here. And uh, yeah, truthfully, it's it, now the I don't know that much about the vaccine you got. You got the? Did you get the like AstraZeneca one in Canada? No. Well, they had that. Um, only well in BC there was only uh, two hundred thousand people that got that one. I I both my wife and I got Moderna. Okay. Um, and you know, like I said, it was I was kind of really excited. Like I said, a couple months, two two or three months ago, I was like, I'm eighty percent. I'm going. And then it was kind of like the numbers are getting really bad everywhere. And I'm like, oh, it doesn't look like I'm going. Oh, everybody's vaccinated. You know, oh, yeah, I'm going to go. And then I thought about it more, like you said. Like, there's just, it just seems like if you're there for that long and everybody's in that room and there's some people not vaccinated, and even if you are vaccinated, you could be, you know, carry it, pass it on to someone. And then if you have to leave the country and get on a plane and then you have a, you're positive. Like you're screwed. Like yeah. number one, you can't leave. Um, you you got to pay for a hotel out of the like. It's very cheap when you book months and months in advance. But if you have to like stay somewhere, like right then and there, you're you're looking at minimum like 150 bucks a day. Yeah, I don't know if they'd even let you stay there if they were. <laughs> if they were new. I don't know what they would do if they knew you had COVID. I don't know if they just send you to go stay. Like if you don't live somewhere 
in the area. I don't know what they would do regarding you at the hotel. I, I, I've always wondered about that, what they would do if you're not. Well, in, you wouldn't tell them. You wouldn't tell them. You're I like, guess. Oh, yeah, I want to stay, right? <laughs> like. And, but you'd have to stay, and then how boring would it be? I mean, you'd probably have to stay in a hotel room. Like, I know here in BC, like, if you if you somehow, well, before they were checking when, before you came in, like, when you got off the plane, if you had um, a positive test, you had to stay in a hotel um, that the government picked, there was a couple of them, um, for, for 14 days at that time. And it it was like two thousand dollars, and you had to pay out of your pocket. Wow! And so, like, I don't know if they have something like that there, but the you know the bottom line is if you don't live in the states, like if I got sick, obviously I'd much rather be home. I would I would not get paid from work. Um, I'd have costly hotel bills. Now, like I said, I have insurance where even if I'm in the states, it would be covered. But if people didn't have that, can you imagine how expensive that would be? I mean, it just yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, and. I don't think there's ever been anything like the WSOP since COVID started because not only do you have thousands of people in the same room, but they're there for such a long time. That's how, What else can you think of where you have this many people crammed together for this long, day in, day yeah. out, uh, for seven I mean, weeks? Even, I mean, it's great. Like football games or hockey games, that's only a couple hours, and it's usually, well, a lot of them are outdoor, but even indoor, it's only a, it's only a few hours. And this is just, I mean, you, you know, people get sick at the WSOP every year just from the sheer number of people. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm like 99%. I'm, I'm not going to go. I mean, I don't know. Uh, and it's really too bad because I was looking forward to it. And it's just like, you know, I have to look at it, too. It's like, if, if I get stuck there, I'm screwed. And I bet you there's a lot of people that don't live in the States that are, are in the same situation. Yeah, that's true. Even people who live in the East Coast who think, uh, what are they going to do? So yeah, not being driving distance from there is is another problem, especially if you're out of the country. So yeah, that's that's a problem. And at least you have the Moderna, which is holding up much better over the months here, where the Pfizer is degrading quickly. So I feel I need I'm going to need a booster. And what's worrying me, because some have said, okay, well. Maybe you can get the booster, and then uh, sometime during the WSOP, or at least before the main event, which is until November, uh, you can be fully vaccinated again by the booster, and then you can feel safe and go. And my answer, my answer to that is possibly. However, I want to know more. I really want to know, and I think we may know more, and this is why I can't rule out that I'm going. Because remember, going doesn't necessarily mean I'm there on September 30th. Going means I play at least one event at the World Series of Poker 2021. And that ends in, in mid-November. So there, there is some time between now and then. Not a lot of time. But since they have the boosters coming available soon, if they have enough studies from here or even another country showing that uh, once you get the booster and X number of days pass, that you're very well protected from Delta then there's a decent chance I will go do it. But if it's kind of unknown, like if they think, well, we think it helps, but we're not sure. I know they saw a big improvement in Israel, but that was among people who were over 60. And the reason that's different is because their immune systems don't work the same way. Their immune systems are worse. So the booster for them may make a bigger difference for them. 
than it does for someone my age. And it's, I'm not saying it, it's going to work better for them, but I'm saying it may make a bigger difference. So when they're saying, well, we have this many times people getting getting it who didn't get the booster versus did get the booster, that may not be so much the case for people around my age. And and if, if there's some significant chance that I'm going to get Delta, even if it doesn't kill me uh, or put me in a ventilator or something, if it doesn't hospitalize me, I, I don't want the long-term damage, such as breathing problems. I don't want to be ridiculously sick for two weeks. I don't want to have long COVID. I don't want to be one of the unlucky people who loses my smell and taste forever or part of it forever, as has happened to some people. There just isn't enough known. So at the moment, the way I'm probably going to handle it is sit out this World Series and plan to attend in 2022, which I think is not going to be in the fall. It's probably going to be in the summer. And so it's not going to be a full year, most likely. And then by then, we will have a much better picture of what is going on and what the real risk profile is, and also what the real risk profile is uh, long-term, meaning like with with COVID, what we're going to have to live with forever, and then start making decisions for my life based on that. Like, okay, I'm willing to take this risk, so I continue doing this such and such in my life. But right now, it's like a big unknown. There's too much unknown at the moment, which is bothering me. I want to make an intelligent decision based upon real information. We don't have that much that Las Vegas is like just a, a place where people from all over the U.S. and, you know, all over the world, they come. you got a lot of people that aren't from there, and you're going to get a lot of people that aren't vaccinated just wandering around anyway. Um, so that's that's kind of like, and it, like I said, it's a, it's a hub. And also, I mean, you, you don't, like all this information always is always changing. But there's supposed to be another new variant called the MU variant that is supposed to be evades the um, vaccine. Yeah. Well, let, let's discuss this now. I was going to do it during a COVID segment, but I don't even know if I'll get but, there. So let's, but, I'm going to talk about the MU here. Right now, that's not a much of a concern. There's a small chance you'll get it, but there's there's something that's protecting most people from the MU variant, which there is a fear it's going to just bust through the vaccine. And the Lambda variant, which is also feared to be able to do that, but not quite as well as the Mu variant. Why are those not of super concern right now? There is a force that is protecting most of us from it. And that force is known as Delta. The Delta variant is so much more contagious than these other variants that the others are having a very hard time taking hold. And the Delta is said to actually be dominating the other variants because they're all competing. And the Delta being much more contagious is just really holding down the numbers for those other variants. They just can't get it going because the the people who are going to catch COVID, it's 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 almost always going to be Delta. That's why Delta pretty much eradicated the original COVID from the U.S. Now, ninety nine percent of new cases in the U.S. are Delta. That's that's how quickly that took hold here, and and, and shut down the other COVID that was happening. So, as long as Delta hangs around, I think it's going to protect almost everybody from all the other variants and it might be scary once delta disappears if delta wanes you may go oh finally finally we're past the delta I'm so tired of delta and that's super contagiousness okay but what replaces it because do we want delta replaced by something that can bust through the vaccines even if it's not quite as well, contagious and and just here's a here's a note uh for everybody that's listening is um 
one of my best friends that I work with for 30 years, his wife is a nurse in the COVID section. 100% of the cases in that hospital are people that are not vaccinated. Yeah, and, and that's... And every single one of them, well, not every... that Well, I mean, every single one that has to go on a ventilator, they don't all do, but they're like, you know, obviously, like, they're freaking out, right? They're like, you know, don't let me die. I wish I took the vaccination. Every single one. Yeah, well, that makes sense. And that's and that's what I've always tell people to look at, or always mean in recent times, is that uh, people who don't want to take the vaccine, I said, just look at the numbers here. Look at the numbers of who's in the hospital. It's people who didn't get vaccinated. There's very few that are going in the hospital that were vaccinated. And most of them that are tend to be very old or, or have major pre-existing conditions. Now, you may say, well, if that's the case, what am I so worried about? But it, what I'm worried about is that I'll get something that is still harmful, but just not going to put me in the hospital. You don't have to be in the hospital to have something bad happen from COVID. Do you want to lose your taste forever? Do you want to have lung damage forever? Like the, These aren't going to put you in the hospital, but they're, they're going to be very, very unpleasant to live with for the rest of your life. So like, I, I don't want that to happen. I don't want the version which doesn't uh, ultimately harm me, but leaves me the sickest I've been in my life for two weeks. I don't want that either. So uh, I, I know I can't 100% avoid this forever, but I, I want to know what I'm dealing with. And here's one other thing to consider. They are working on treatments now that eventually, and maybe not too long from now, will be something you can take to hold back these symptoms from getting too bad. Kind of like when I had shingles in 2010, I ran to the doctor and had him examine me. He said, yep, you have shingles. And he gave me the medication, which does not cure shingles, but brings down the symptoms and greatly lowers the chance that it will give me permanent nerve damage. And you know what? The symptoms, while painful and and unpleasant, and uh, I, I was at a bad week there, it never damaged my nerves, and it never got as bad as it could have been. It did hold back the symptoms, and it did prevent the permanent nerve damage I could have gotten from it. So when we get a COVID equivalent of this that will not cure it, but will control it and hold it back from doing anything that bad, and it'll probably work for the vast majority of people, then COVID becomes a lot less scary. And maybe by next World Series, we will have that. Because right now, we do not have anything like that. There are some medications that are believed to possibly help, including some that are maligned by the left, but uh, may actually have give some may have some utility. But I will agree there is nothing right now that is what I described that you can feel pretty good by taking something that your COVID is not going to get that bad. So still, if you get COVID now, you, you mostly have to just sit there and hope. And maybe by next year, that will not be the case, by middle of next year. So these are all reasons why I'm thinking, you know what? Maybe it's just better to wait till next year. I've been to the World Series from 05 to 19, every single World Series, and played, except for 05, where I only played uh, four events. Every other World Series, I played eight or more events between 06 and 19. I missed 20 because there was no real World Series for 20. But uh, 21, yeah, I wanted to attend. But but if I don't, you know, especially because it's in the fall and probably the next one will be in the in the spring slash summer. Uh, so it's not a full year. You know, maybe I should just wait because this this really, I, you really have to have faith in the vaccine. Well, you know what? You're taking a gamble if you go. Yeah. And also, um, do you really want to take a gamble? And let's say you get your asymptomatic you're going to bring that home to your family and you might not even know it. 
Well, and there's a second gamble. It's not just to bring it to your family. You're right about that, too. There's a second gamble that you're going to get deep in an event, and then your symptoms are going to ramp up big time. And either they're going to see it and kick you out, or you're just going to say, I don't want to do this, be an asshole. Or even if you are willing to be an asshole, uh, it's possible that uh, you won't even have the energy to play. Because I know people my age who got COVID, even with breakthrough cases, that could not do anything except lie in bed. It would be physically impossible for them to sit at a poker table, even if they wanted to and were allowed to. So imagine being at day three of a three-day event, and you're near the final table, and you're all excited, and you're a chip leader, and day two, you're starting to feel kind of sick. Day three, you wake up, and you feel you can't even get out of bed, and you realize you can't go, and you probably have COVID. That could easily happen. Even Think of the main event. What if in the main event... Four days into the main event, and when I say four days, remember four days takes more than four days to play because there's days you don't play in between. So by the time you're on day four, you've taken about a week, which you've probably like maybe even eight days. And then on day four, you're, you're getting very strong COVID symptoms. Can you imagine how aggravating? Even if you never bring it home to your family, even if it never harms you, can you imagine how aggravating if that happens and you have good chips? So... You have to think of this. This isn't the same of, uh, as going to the World Series and if you're on day four of the main and get a cold, you go, okay, well, I'm, I'm still going to show up with my cold. I'll try not to sicken people, but uh, I'm going I'm to go with my cold. I'm not going to abandon day four of the main because I have, I have a cold. It's not the same thing with COVID. You have to think of that too. That's the second form of gambling is that they'll either throw you out or you just physically won't be able to play because of COVID in the middle of an event. And you can't even say, yeah. well, um, it, it won't happen because I can't get it that fast. I'll play shorter events, and they're three-day events, so there's no way I can catch it on day one and have terrible symptoms by day three. Well, I'd agree with that, except how do you know you'd catch it on day one? What if you catch it the day before day one, two days before day one, but you don't feel it until the end of day one, and then you don't really feel it badly until the end of day two? Hmm. Could that happen? Of course it could. Or what if you played a previous event, and you caught it there, and you didn't feel it yet until day two of the next event? Day three of the next event. The, you have to think of this, and believe me, we're going to hear things about this. And I still don't know what the World Series is going to do if somebody in an event seems to have pretty obvious symptoms of COVID. And people are asking this. Like, what are you going to do if you people, see people coughing at the table? Are, are you going to pull them out and make them get a test? Is, is there any mechanism to even do that there? That, that, that's like when COVID first kind of came out the first couple months and say people are grocery shopping or whatever, anybody that sneezed or coughed, like everybody turns their head and looks. like. And then you've, if you're the guy that just did a regular sneeze because of hay fever, you're like, I don't got COVID, I don't got COVID. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm afraid to cough or sneeze now in public for that reason. It, it is. It's true. I mean, that that's what happens. But, uh, hey, I was going to ask you, do you... Have you played any live poker since for the last 18 months? Yes, but uh, the last I did was in mid-June or mid to late June. I, I took a Vegas trip uh, when Resorts World opened in uh, mid to late June. And I talked about that trip here. And I did play uh, four sessions of the Bellagio, a 40-80, which didn't go well, by the way. I lost. And I spent a lot of time in that poker room. And I spent a lot of time in various casinos. Others. Did you have a mask on? I did not, and there was no mask mandate, and I was fully vaccinated, and I felt very comfortable because there was really not a Delta problem yet in the U.S. That happened in July. Yeah. Where I started getting nervous was in July, where I started, like, beginning of July, I started hearing about people 
people like in the poker community, people I knew personally that said, wow, I'm fully vaccinated and I just got a breakthrough COVID case. I'm not talking about like on the news. I'm talking about like people that I knew or knew of on Twitter or on Facebook that I knew weren't lying that said they got breakthrough cases. And I said, how come I didn't see that between April and now? How come I'm just starting to see this now? This is weird. This isn't just a matter of people getting really unlucky because the vaccine's not 100% effective. Why did I see like zero of this before? And now I'm seeing several at once. And then I started seeing more and more. And by the time I took my trip in mid-July, I was a little bit nervous. And I was a little bit nervous going with Benjamin to the course Field. I went anyway, but it was outdoors. But uh, I was a little nervous there. Fortunately, didn't catch COVID there. But uh, And Benjamin didn't catch COVID there. A uh, little nervous eating restaurants. But yeah, I did it. But I, I was mindful, whereas in, in May and June, I, I just acted like COVID didn't exist. And in July, I started to say, you know what? I, I got to kind of be mindful of this, just not as careful as before. And then with, with every passing day since then, I've kind of gotten, I've started pushing back more and more from what I'm willing to do. And I will definitely get that booster and I, I hope it helps. And But I probably won't be at the World Series still. So that's that's the update. Yeah. Do you guys have a where you are a like in BC um, and some of the other provinces starting Monday? You have to have an app that shows you're vaccinated before you can go into restaurants. No, um, like sporting events. Like if it's fast food, you can do it. If it's a grocery store, you can go in. But like what they call, um, I can't remember the word, but like leisure stuff like that is not necessary. You have to have downloaded the app that proves you're vaccinated. Um, and that's it. Yeah, we don't have it's, that it's going here. Until January fifteenth, and then they're going to review it again. Yeah, we don't have that here right now, but uh, businesses can require it, like the World Series is doing. And I know there's some a few states that are trying to resist businesses being able to require, which I, which I don't agree with. I think if businesses want to require it, they should be able to. And I don't believe that should be uh, something the state should enforce. I, I can understand the argument against it, but I, I think that if a business wants to enforce it. Uh, to make their customers feel better or their employees feel better than fine. And if a business doesn't want to, then also fine. I think this should be... Well, uh, yeah. I, I mean, I think if the anti-vaxxers want to go to a restaurant where nobody's vaccinated or doesn't, you know, it's not required, then let them go there. And the people that are vaccinated will feel safe going to a place where everybody is vaccinated. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying. But the businesses let the them decide. Thing. The The staff is not required to be vaccinated, which is really weird. I don't yeah. know why, but that, it's, it's strange <laughs> like that. And, it it uh, is. You know, I was asking you how you, like, our casinos are open. I haven't stepped inside a casino for 18 months, but poker is not, um, they don't have poker. They have, a, I think it's basically slot machines, like every other one. And I think they might have some table games, like every other seat, but definitely no poker. Um, there's there's a couple um, home games I know of that I, I'm thinking of maybe going to, like a couple two-table, you know, cash games. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. Here is, is there's nothing for poker, really. Yeah, I, it's, uh, it's interesting that it's, that it's not doing as well. Uh, someone texted from the 505, what happens if a dealer tests positive for COVID? Does, does every person they dealt to have to be quarantined or get booted? If a Caesars employee infects you, how can they not refund your money? Well, I can answer all of that. Uh, 
they were at first claiming that they will boot you if you were exposed to people with COVID, including a dealer. And then after all the player objection to this, they, they backed away from that. So now it appears at the moment they're just not going to disqualify anyone. But that's going to get a test, a rapid test. I, it looks like they're not testing anybody unless they actually volunteer they have COVID, which is crazy. So like I, I they're going to have big problems if someone is showing very obvious symptoms. If someone coughs once, they're not going to have big problems. If they, but if they have someone who's coughing up a storm, a dry-sounding cough, and uh, just looks sick, and like people are going to get real uncomfortable at those tables, and they're going to say, "How can you let this person keep playing?" And there's going to be big arguments. You watch; it's going to happen. Uh, but there, right there's now, there's going to be an outbreak. You can almost guarantee. Oh yeah, and there's going to be an outbreak. Someone said this is going to be a very interesting uh, medical experiment, and I said, "You know what? You're right. <laughs> it is. That is going to be a very interesting medical experiment. I will say that about the World Series. And but but to answer this person's question, the 505, uh, no, they're not. They're not going to quarantine or boot anybody. And apparently they're not going to force anybody to get tested, and I, I don't know how that's going to work. And if you get infected by a Caesars employee, you will not get refunded because you can't prove it. How can you say that that person infected you? Even if that person is found to have COVID and have dealt to you, um, probably still they're not going to give you a refund. Uh, maybe you could talk him into it, but I'm guessing no, because they can say, well, yeah, that guy had COVID, but how do you know you didn't get this from somebody else? How, how do we know you didn't give it to him? You know, like there's, there's a lot of different ways they can spin it to where they won't refund your money. So I have a feeling it's just no refunds, and uh, that, that's just the way it goes. But at the same time, they're not going to eject people or force them to test, which I think is going to cause a lot of controversy. This is they're they're pretty much flying by the seat of their pants here. They don't know what they're doing. They're just hoping for the best. Yes, they're hoping nothing major happens. That's what they're hoping, and I think you know when the World, when the World Series tries that, it never works out. They. <laughs> Hey, before I go here, um, I'm not a huge baseball fan, but I, I do kind of get interested in the in the playoffs. Um, quick question: Double headers are they only seven innings each? Yes, uh, that's well, they've been doing that since last year. Uh, I, I don't like it. I don't know if they're going to continue this next year, but because it, it, it screws up the stats for people. Right? Yeah, it's it's, it's dumb. I, I don't and like it because the the Jays, the only Canadian team, um, they've won the last 14 out of 16 and they're now in a wild tied for a wild card spot and they were like way behind. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, they've just been crushing it. So Well, what's sad is um, that the the Dodgers have the second best record in baseball and are probably going to be the wild card. Yeah. What's, what's the chance of that? See, the Giants won't lose. The Giants are playing fail team after fail team and the Giants just do not lose against bad teams. That, I'll say that for the Giants. They just when they are against a bad team, they just beat them every time. It's it's amazing just their record against poor teams. The the only little losing streak they had recently was when they played uh, two decent teams back to back, and then after that they've uh, they're, they've been playing fail teams and just crushing them. So even the Dodgers have done pretty well lately, and they have the second best record in baseball. They're still two and a half behind the Giants because the Giants are playing crap teams and just beat them every time. So I don't know if the Dodgers are going to catch them. Okay, Todd. We'll talk to you later. All right. Thank you, Matt. Yeah, bye. Bye. This is Matt the Rad, frequent caller to the show. Met him many times. Very nice guy. Gone to dinners with him. Let's move on here. Talk about uh, an update here regarding Andy Trombley and Fox Poker. We reported last week that Fox Poker shut down. We reported the week before that it seemed like it was going to be shutting down soon and was not paying people. So we've been covering this pretty aggressively now for the third week in a row. After the shutdown last week and the subsequent revelation of what had occurred and a shocking confession video that I played on this show of owner Andy Trombley, 
basically confessing that he did what he was accused of doing, which was loading one and a half million dollars worth of chips onto the site without actually backing it with real money. So he just injected them into the site and didn't actually put one and a half million dollars on deposit, which of course completely destroys the economy of a site that isn't that large. You do that into something like PokerStars, it, it, it can handle it, but not uh, not Fox Poker, obviously. So the, as the owner, he did that and played under fake accounts, and he degened the money away. He did not walk away with any money, I assume. Uh, I say I assume because I, I can't see his bank account, but I believe the reports that he lost it all, and it, it just screwed up the economy of the site because he lost it, and then people withdrew, and then there was no more money left because people withdrew money from the chips that he put on there without backing with real money. So it's basically the equivalent of stealing, except the small difference here is that he didn't actually walk away with money. He walked away with zero. And that's what he claims, and I believe that. Don't have proof, but I believe that is the case. The video he made last week that I I played you highlights of, uh, I was very surprised he made it, Number one, it could be used to prosecute him. Number two, uh, it is just uncommon for someone to make a video like that after doing something like that. Usually they just disappear. Like, I, I couldn't understand why he would make such a video. I also said that his his, his uh, feelings about the whole thing, the way he was very upset and rattled and depressed, looked sincere. A lot of times, scammers will feign that they are sorry, they will feign that they wish they hadn't done it, they will feign remorse, but in reality they're sociopaths and don't give a crap. But that didn't appear to be the case with him, and I'm not defending him here, I'm just saying that it appeared that he was legitimately really regretful for what he had done. Now, that doesn't let him off the hook. He still did it, and he still left a lot of people out money on that site. He basically stole from people on that site, players that trusted him. So he can feel as sorry as he wants, he still committed the crime, and there was still an impact from the crime. And even though I don't believe it was malicious, like he wanted to steal from them, it was something he knowingly did because he was a degenerate gambler and couldn't control himself. And, of course, there has to be a consequence for that. So, on one hand, I was glad to see that he wasn't a sociopath who just didn't care. Uh, On the other hand, he still did it, and that doesn't excuse it or let him off the hook. Now, some things have happened since then. He got the video taken down. See, he never posted the video to YouTube. He posted it to a Facebook group. Someone took it off the Facebook group and reposted it to YouTube. The person who did this, I don't know who it is, but uh, maybe it was a player on Fox Poker, maybe not. I don't really know who did it. But whoever reposted it obviously did this to share with everybody, and then it went around uh, the poker world pretty quickly. A lot of people saw it. And... He then had it taken down by filing a DMCA copyright violation with YouTube. (laughs) I kid you not. The person reposting was violating his copyright, he said, because it's a work he created. Well, I mean, yeah, it's a work he created, but it was a confession of a crime. So my argument is that to reshare this video falls under fair use because it's a video of someone confessing to a crime that was for over a million dollars. That's different than producing a work that is meant for entertainment 
and then someone redistributes it on their channel to get views and clicks and, and make money. This is him confessing to something. This wasn't an entertainment product. This is him confessing to a crime. And someone reposting this so people could know what happened should not be something that can be uh, used through the DMCA process. But the DMCA process often gets abused where people just want something off the internet that they don't like there rather than a copyright actually being violated. He did get it taken down. Not only that, but the person who posted got a copyright strike. <laughs> and if you get three of those, you get your channel yanked. So that, that was pretty bad. And I was so annoyed seeing that he did that, that I said, all right, well, guess what, Mr. Trombley? I saved the video because I had a feeling it could come down in some way. I knew the guy who reposted it was probably doing it to share it with everybody. It wasn't probably your buddy, but who knows? I, I thought there could be various ways this video disappears. I'm going to save it. So I saved it. And so I said, well, I have a copy. And guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to take this copy and I am going to repost it on the Poker Fraud Alert YouTube channel. Yes, there is a Poker Fraud Alert YouTube channel. Go onto YouTube and type Poker Fraud Alert in the search bar and you will find our channel. We don't have a lot of videos. We have some videos, but I posted that on the Poker Fraud Alert YouTube channel. However, if you go search for that right now, are you going to find it? No. Why? Well, first of all, he, followed, he filed a DMCA against me as well. But before you get too angry, Mr. Trombley, for this uh, egregiously offensive behavior, there's more to the story. He did file that, but at the same time, he registered an account on Poker Fraud Alert named Ninja Zebra, and he has posted a few times in the thread, in the Scam Scandals and Shadiness forum, that is really him. And he also emailed me. And we have been emailing back and forth. And you may wonder, what would emails between me and chip thief Andy Trombley, who stole from his own site, what would those emails be like? Is he threatening me? No. Am I scolding him about what a thief and an asshole he is? No. Are there threats about lawsuits being thrown around? No. They're actually very cordial emails. And they actually are making some progress. Because he came to me not in an angry and offensive manner. He came to me in a respectful and cordial manner. That doesn't erase what he did. But if somebody is going to come to me in a respectful and cordial manner, then I will do so in kind. So I responded to him in a respectful manner. And uh, we went back and forth, and I, I told him that I don't appreciate the DMCA and that uh, I don't like that. But I told him that... I am willing to voluntarily remove that video, even though I feel it's in the public interest. But what's also even more in the public interest is that he pays people back that he stole from. And since I do believe his claim that this wasn't an intentional plot to steal from everyone, but was more fueled by a degenerate gambling problem, and that he probably does legitimately feel bad about it, that I say, if you really feel that bad, and if you really want to do something about it, start repaying people. Come up with a plan to pay people, and then start actually doing it. And if I see that's happening, then in turn, I will do you the favor of removing it because you're showing good faith, so so will I. So I think it's my right to distribute this video. He put it up. He knowingly put this up on a public group on Facebook, confessing to a crime. 
and then it got redistributed. So I think it's my right to distribute, to warn the poker world, but at the same time, uh, people are pretty aware of what he did. It's not like I'm trying to cover up that he that he did this. In fact, the, I have not removed anything in the thread. The thread with his full name and everything in Fox Poker and all that is up, and he's not currently running a poker site. But as far as the video, which is very important for him to bring down, he regrets having made it. I'm shocked he did in the first place, but you, you can see why he wouldn't want that up there. That uh, it's very important to him that that comes down. And it's important to me, even though I have no personal connection to it, that he does the right thing and pays back, pays back the people he stole from. So I said, okay, if, if I see that you are making a real effort to pay these people back, then I will do you the favor of removing it. So he did. And we had a little complication that his DMCA was processed and I got a strike in the Poker Fraud Alert channel. And I said, no, 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 no. We, we can't have it removed that way. Okay, you've got to retract the DMCA and then I will take it down as promised. So he retracted the DMCA and then I took it down as promised. Why did I take it down? Because he actually came up with a payment plan and he has started paying people. And he said he, he's uh, gotten a job and that he's also pressuring this other guy that he claims stole 120K from the site, which of course is a lot less than he stole, but I mean, it's still 120K. He's pressuring that guy to start paying back. And uh, anyway, they're, they're coming up with money somehow. And payments have started. I, I don't have the full payment plan, but I, I've seen proof that payments have started. There's a Facebook group I was invited to where this is being discussed and where victims are acknowledging that they have received payment. So when I see good behavior out of someone who previously engaged in bad behavior and now they're engaging in good behavior to undo it, even if it's going to take a long time, because he's not going to come up with one and a half million dollars by snapping his fingers. But even if this takes a very long time, if he's making regular payments to people, if he's making a good faith effort to undo the damage he caused, then I want to, in turn, uh, give him positive reinforcement for that. I want to give people positive reinforcement for trying to right a wrong that they did. Because you know what happens with most people? They just run off. They just don't want to ever make right what they have done. Think of all the scammers we've seen in poker over time, all the thieves. What have they done? They've just run away. So he is not running away. And he told me you know, he wants to have a future. He's not that old. He's 31 years old. He wants to have a future. He doesn't want this following around forever. He doesn't want this preventing him from getting employment forever. He wants to work to undo this as much as he can. Even if it's going to take a very long time. And pay people back. And... Uh, try to move on with life so okay doesn't erase what he did doesn't make him a great guy obviously this shouldn't have happened in the first place people trusted him and he betrayed that trust and stole their money so we we can't forget that but we also can't forget that most people who do the same thing run off and never take responsibility for it and because of the way the justice system works typically uh people are never prosecuted for this sadly i, I would love to see all the scammers and thieves and poker uh go to prison but but how often do we see that like never only time we see it is when they've uh, committed some sort of illegal gambling violation, which, which he did too. But uh, it, I, he probably won't even go to prison for that because it it's just wasn't a big enough sight. So truthfully, from the uh, criminal justice standpoint, while it's not for sure, there's a good chance that he would have never suffered a consequence. People could have sued him and won judgments against him. But I, I do say that uh, he could have run away from this and very possibly just gotten away. His, his rep and his name would have been ruined forever. 
and people could have created sites all over the place calling him a big scammer and, and calling all this out and ruining his future. But uh, from a criminal standpoint, he probably could have gotten away for it, w- with it. But the fact that he is trying to now repay, you have to give him some credit. So, okay. I can at least give him some points there. And that's why I've taken the video down. And to be honest, while the video is interesting, it doesn't really provide much information. He, he rambled for 32 minutes, kind of slowly, too. Paused a lot, stuttered a lot, and he was very rattled. And it was basically 32 minutes of him saying the same thing over and over. That, number one, he did it, and number two, there were other people that deserved blame for this. Which I, I actually agree with the second part, too. So... I really didn't agree with... I I didn't disagree very much with what he said there in the video, but at the same time, he was confessing that he stole. So it's good to have that. It's good that I have a copy of that. And you know what I told him? I said, uh, you you can't just make the first payment and then think that this uh, buys the goodwill that you're doing something. You have to make the first payment and the second payment, and you have to keep paying. You have to keep working at this. Because a lot of times when people say they're going to pay back, they make the first and second payment and then disappear. So if that happens, I'll slap the video back up. Why? Because there will be a sign of bad faith. And in that case, the favor I did for him by taking that video down, he no longer deserves. Because it was a favor. I, I still assert that it is my right to distribute this video that he made for the public confessing to a crime. And I've just chosen not to because he is attempting to do the right thing at this point. So in turn, I have said, all right, I will do a favor for you. That's all. And you know what? If he eventually pays everybody back, and if he does not run another poker room, obviously he should never be in charge of any poker room ever again, then I will take the whole thread down. If everybody gets paid back completely, there's no more victims, and he agrees he's never going to run a poker room again, then I'll take the whole thread down. Which he hasn't asked for, by the way. That's another thing I should point out. He's never once demanded I take down the thread or edit his name or anything like that. Never once asked for that. Now, he hasn't been perfect since this all happened. In addition to these DMCA's he's been doing, uh, he also was arguing with Haley Hints on the Poker Fraud Alert thread, saying that uh, she didn't have all the information right, and that a lot of the info is wildly inaccurate, which I read Haley's article, and it's not wildly inaccurate. I mean, it looks she pretty much got it spot on. So I, maybe there's some small details she could have gotten wrong, but it's not a good look to show up and attack the reporter who wrote an article about it and say, oh, you got a bunch wrong. <laughs> First of all, you got to clarify with proof and then otherwise just sh- just shut up. Just shut up and start paying people back. So he wrote, commenting here for two things is on Poker Fraud Alert. One, your article has significant errors, including repeating some of the incorrect amounts owed along with some clear misunderstandings of the situation and anyone involved. What? Two, Payments to players will be starting this Thursday slash Friday with people already having pending, having pending withdrawals being first in line, followed by everybody else. I mean, number two is fine. It looks like he's doing that. But number one, significant errors. He doesn't explain what they are or provide proof of them. I'm not saying that everything that was said by these other administrators that are blaming him is 100% accurate, but it's pretty close to accurate. He admitted it. I mean, he's, he came on and admitted he did this, nor did he ever dispute the figure of one and a half million. It's not like he said, yeah, I stole, but it was really uh, 150000 at $1.5 million. He never gave a number. And if it was way off $1.5 million, 100% in those 32 minutes, he would have said something about that. He did not say that once in those 32 minutes. So I think we know that it was probably pretty damn close. But whatever. 
He's paying people back, at least for the moment. And our emails have been very pleasant. And no one has called each other names. No one's made any kind of uh, threats, legal or otherwise. No one has put the other down. I haven't said nasty things to him about what he did. I mean, he, he knows what I think of what he did. But there's no point for me to repeat that. If someone's going to come to me with want to have a conversation after they did something like this, I will have a respectful conversation with them. But at the same time, it's going to be a conversation with tough questions like, when are you going to pay people back and what are you going to do to make that happen? Like, I, I asked that right away. So he answered. Now, why is this my business? It's not. I'm, I'm just an observer who runs a poker fraud site that monitors these things and reports on these things. And I found this is a story worth reporting on. I never played on Fox Poker. I don't have an account on Fox Poker. I do not have any friends who played on Fox Poker. So no one close to me was harmed by this. But it was still a scandal with a poker site and one that I've warned people about before. So that's why I covered it. And if I can help people to get paid back that were stolen from, then that's a good thing. And I'm glad that I can have a part in that. I'm glad that I can get people paid back because these players who are unable to withdraw or had money sitting on the site, there's a whole lot of them. If they had money stuck there when it went down, that they thought was theirs, and now they don't have that money? They deserve it. This is their money. They may have counted on that money for rent or for a car payment or a house payment or who knows what, or even just because it's their money and they want it. It is their money, and they got stolen from, and it's wrong. So I decided to cover it, and now I'm trying to help get them paid back. I'll give you updates if any of this changes, but... I'm at least glad to see that he's making an effort to do the right thing. Now we're going to talk about somebody who is not doing the right thing and has not done the right thing for the last two years. That's one Michael Postle. Mike Postle definitely did the wrong thing when he sued me last year. We're close to the year mark of when I found out I was being sued. It was October 1st, 2020. I had not been served. In fact, I was never actually served. My attorney accepted service on my behalf voluntarily when I realized that I was named in a filed lawsuit, which I actually learned about the same day it was filed, which probably surprised Possible because someone recognized his name and the name of other poker pros and brought my attention to it. I was actually the first person to report this on poker media or on any media. I was the first person to uh, make this known to everybody. But I was also named in the suit. I wasn't just reporting there. I was reporting also about myself. I should not have been named in this suit. I've said this a lot of times. I think the whole suit was crap. I think the whole suit should have never been filed. And I've stated the reasons for that before, too. But especially not against me, because all I was was an observer. I was someone reporting on one of the biggest poker stories ever. And I was reporting after it was already huge. Before I said or wrote a word about it, it was already a huge story in poker. So I had no impact on it spreading around. If I were never born, the story would be just as big and known by just as many people. So I was not a major player in this one. I got into this one late. This was one I missed early on. So I came in late enough that it was already very big by that point. So I shouldn't have been part of it. I had no impact. I never played in that game. I mean, I played in the Stones game, but it was one without him in it, and it was before the whole thing started, really. Um, So I never played with him. 
and I really had no role in spreading this story around until it was already everywhere. So I shouldn't have been part of this. I, I was just thrown in vindictively. And we let him know that and said, hey, we're going to file an anti-slap motion when it's probably going to succeed and you're going to owe the attorney's fees and it can be expensive. So drop me out of it and do it with prejudice so you can't sue me again over the same matter. If you do that, we won't hit you for any of the fees up till now. Because fees had been incurred because uh, my attorney, Eric Benzamokin, he had to do research on this and he had to do work and he had to uh, do this meeting confer with Mike's attorney. So we, we had expenses already. We had racked up attorney's fees and and Eric said to his attorney, Todd will eat those fees. But he'll only eat those fees if you drop him out now with prejudice. And Mike said, nope. Todd stays. So we did what we did. And all the stuff happened after that, which I've talked about many times before. And the anti-slap motion was granted. Partially because he dropped the case himself on April 1st of 2021. And now he owes both me and Veronica Brill about 27 k of attorney's fees. So then there's a matter of collection. And of course, he's not exactly cutting a check to us for this. So my attorney, Eric Benzamokin, and Veronica's attorney, Mark Randazza, together filed a motion to put him into involuntary bankruptcy, which increases our chance of getting paid and also... Uh, the court would then, if it were to be granted, would then appoint someone, a trustee, to look into all his assets, and he'd have to answer a lot of things under oath, and it would give us a lot higher chance of getting paid. So that was the reason we're doing this, and I'm I following Eric's lead on this because his specialty is bankruptcy. So when Eric says we should do this, I said, okay, I know you must be correct because this is your area of law you know the best. So, uh, that was filed. Uh, Mike then uh, asked for a delay, and it was granted. But he has filed an answer. And I want to talk a bit about the answer that was officially filed in U.S. Bankruptcy Court. I have a copy of this. I have not uh, posted a copy of it, but I've talked about it. There's also an article by Haley Hintz on poker.org. Uh, talking about this document in detail. This was a 38-page document that he filed in opposition to the involuntary bankruptcy. Now, remember, it was filed jointly by my attorney and Veronica's attorney. We were the only two with judgments against him from this matter. The other defendants were never served and never acquired counsel and never did an anti-slap motion. So it was just me and Veronica that are out attorney's fees, and uh, we're both owed 27 k for this. Postle filed a response, and uh, it was a combination of a written response of, it's like uh, 13 pages, plus another 25 pages of attachments. So in those 38 pages, how many times am I mentioned? Remember, I'm one of the two parties that filed this. So, how many times am I mentioned in this filing, in 38 pages? Zero point zero. Can you believe it? I'm not mentioned once. The response to my petition to put him into involuntary bankruptcy does not mention me once. <laughs> How's that possible? 
But that, that's, that's what happened. He may say, well, then what's he talking about for 38 pages? I'll tell you. By the way, how many times is attorney Eric Benzamokin mentioned? Zero point zero. Well, not quite. Almost zero. The very, very end on page 38, he is mentioned as one of the creditors. Because the attorney's fees are owed. It's the only way he's mentioned. So what the hell's talked about for 38 pages? Especially the first 13, which is a whole uh, written diatribe. Well, it is a rant against Mark Randazza and, to a lesser extent, Veronica Brill. It's, it's a 13-page bash session against them. And you may say, why would U.S. Bankruptcy Court care about this? The answer, they wouldn't. This is insane. This is an insane filing. I'm not an attorney, and I can tell you this is an insane filing. I don't need Eric Benzamokin to tell me this is an insane filing, though, though he agrees. But um, this is an insane filing. I, I have no idea why Postle thinks. And, and the funny thing is he, he got advice, obviously. Because in this filing, which I'm not going to read to you, and I, I've read to you parts of this before, because it's uh, even though this is just filed on September 10th, uh, he has filed something very similar in the past, in the recent past, that was uh, asking for the extension. He said a lot of the same stuff, bashing Randazza and Veronica. So this is kind of an extension of that. I can tell you that he definitely got help. He definitely got help, and he even talks about the Honor Network that was founded as a result of the Sandy Hook shooting that is helping him now. Uh, He supposedly filed this uh, improper, which means uh, without counsel, basically representing himself. But it seems like a combination of something he wrote and something they helped him with. This isn't written quite like a lawyer would write it, but it's also citing too many cases and other things there's no way he would have found on his own. So it looks like they did some research for him or some attorney did a research for him. I can't say it was the Honor Network who did it, but I have to assume it was because he talks about them helping him. So I have to imagine that uh, someone at the Honor Network or some other attorney has helped him do some research and then he wrote up the thing himself is what it looks like to me. That's just my guess, of course, but uh, that's, that's kind of what it looks like. But anyway, the amazing thing is that if he was getting help, that he wasn't advised that he shouldn't do something like this, that he shouldn't just rant about Randazza and Veronica Brill about how awful they are, because bankruptcy court's not going to care about this. What seems to escape Postle when he does these things is the purpose of each hearing. He seems to think that each hearing is an opportunity for him to rant about what a victim he is. And that's not what the purpose of these, these hearings are. Like, once you've lost the case, for example... When there is a hearing for attorney's fees, the only thing they want to hear is why the attorney's fees are improper. That's the only thing they want to hear from the other side. They do not want to hear the case relitigated. They don't want to hear you bashing the other side's attorney. They don't want to hear you bashing the, uh, the defendant. They, they don't want to hear it because that's, that's for the courtroom. That's for the case itself. Once the case is dismissed on an anti-slap motion and they're trying to determine attorney's fees, at that point, you stop trying to litigate your case. You, at that point, you've got to stop and... If you want to fight the attorney's fees, you need to state why they're improper. And you should stick to that and nothing else. But for some reason, he didn't do that and, and ranted there, too. And, uh, and you know, people saw this on video, and, and a lot of people thought this was amusing. So he did basically the same thing here in written form in U.S. bankruptcy court, ranting about Veronica and ranting about Mark Randazza, where it really has no place. When we're attempting to put him into involuntary bankruptcy— 
the proper response is why he should not be put into involuntary bankruptcy, not why Mark Randazza is such a bad guy, and not why Veronica Brill is, is doing this to increase her profile in poker. Even if he believes these things, even if he thinks he might be able to convince the court of these things, the court is not interested in this, because this is U.S. bankruptcy court. All they care about in U.S. bankruptcy court is bankruptcy. I know, it's a shock, but somehow, somehow he doesn't get it. <laughs> I don't know. They're very bizarre filings. So I'm not even going to read all this crap. It's just a lot of ranting about Randazza. Randazza has, has it out for him. Randazza doxes him. Randazza uses foul language on the phone with, with, with someone from the Honor Network who's helping him. Uh, Veronica's trying to uh, only do this to increase her profile in poker and, and, and get jobs in the poker media. and Just a lot, a lot of these allegations that he's making that they're just out to screw him either out of vindictiveness or for their own benefit or both. That's, that's basically what he's trying to say there. Does not belong in this. Even if you think this is all true, even if you think what he's saying is 100% true, which I don't agree, but even if he thinks this is 100% true, it has no place here. It just shouldn't be in the filing, but it's in the filing. It's, it's been filed. It was filed September 10th, officially with U.S. Bankruptcy Court in the Eastern District of California. So he went on with his 13-page rant, which I, I won't bother to read to you. As I said, it's, it's similar to what I have uh, read to you before from the uh, where he asked for the extension. But uh, I'm, I'm going to scroll down to the bottom here because there's something interesting here I want to read on page 38. He listed his creditors. Now, the only point he raised in this whole long thing that seemed to be relevant to the involuntary bankruptcy is his claim that involuntary bankruptcy has what he calls a numerosity rule, which I don't really know much about, so I I don't know if he's right or not. But he says there's a numerosity rule that requires him to have fewer than 12 creditors. And he claims because he has more than 12 creditors that this cannot be done. That's his claim. And since I am not the bankruptcy attorney, since we don't have Eric on here, and since this is a very recent thing, I, I can't make any comment about that part. But what I can do is I can read you his list of creditors. And by doing so, I am not doxing him here because he put this in an official court document that he filed on September 10th with U.S. Bankruptcy Court that is now a matter of public record. So I'm, I'm reading page 38 of a document he filed in court that is now a matter of public record. And therefore, it is my right to put this out. It's also a case I'm part of. So... Here's a list of his creditors. He lists 17 of them, two of which are the Eric Benzamokin legal firm and the Mark Randazza legal firm, both for around 27K. So I'm going to read you the other 15. The biggest one is Ford Motor Credit, which presumably is a car loan, for 18111 The second biggest one is city-slash-A-Advantage, which presumably is an American Airlines credit card. Basically, you earn miles as you spend on it. He claims he has uh, 14000 that is owed there. However, I'm going to say something here that could be misleading that he's putting here. Um, For Ford Motor Company, he puts that he has an 18111 debt. He actually specifies it as debt, okay? All these credit cards are all listed as credit limit, not his debt, which is interesting. And he provides no documentation. He he gives the last four of the account number, which even though it's public record, I'm not going to read because there's no point. But 
he puts the last four of the account number, but talks about his credit limit. Well, that doesn't mean anything. I have I have lots of credit cards, and some of them have a high limit. But how much do I currently owe on all these credit cards, which cumulatively have a pretty high limit? How much do I currently owe? Zero point zero. Using that sound effect a lot today. Yeah, I, I don't owe anything. I, I pay off my balances in full. I never carry a balance on my credit card. But by the time the bill comes, I, I have paid it off in full. So I have a zero balance. So talking about credit limit, I think he might be playing some games here, unless he's just uh, stating this the wrong way. Now, I don't think he's stating it the wrong way because he actually wrote debt for the two legal debts he owes to Eric's legal firm and to Mark's uh, legal firm, and then a debt to Ford Motor, to Ford Motor Credit. Yeah, he writes debt. Every other one is credit limit. So maybe he doesn't owe to all these cards and this is a trick. Now, he's not going to get away with it because this can be examined. This, he, this can be challenged, obviously. This is his response, but of course, uh, it can be challenged back. I just actually noticed this now, which is funny. I actually read this before and I had a few questions for Eric. I forgot to ask that question to Eric and I don't think he wants me waking him up at 2.30 in the morning, so I'm not going to call him, but these are all listed as credit limits, so these may not actually be debts. So, the City A Advantage card, credit limit 14000 Synchrony Care Credit, credit limit 8000 Southwest Credit Card, that's for Southwest Airlines, uh, 8000 Wells Fargo, 5500 Amazon, presumably a credit card, uh, credit limit 4400 Discover, 4100 First Bank Card, 2500 Capital One, 2000 Walmart, presumably a Walmart credit card, 1800 Macy's, 1500 American Express, 1000 Fortiva, 5000 Genesis, 4000 Debsy, D-E-B-T-S-Y, 300 I don't know what that is. And that's it. Those are the 15 credit cards, 14 credit cards. Then there's the Ford Motor Credit, which is presumably a car loan. Now, notice the Ford Motor Credit is not a round number. It's 18111, which is kind of what you'd expect. All the other 14, these credit limits are round numbers. They all end in 00 or 1000. So I have a feeling that he has not hit the absolute limit on each of these because you sometimes won't. Let's say you have a 14,000 credit limit. Uh, You're going to bump up near the end of it. Maybe you'll get to 13,996. And you're not going to use it for the last $4 because who's going to use the credit card for $4? Like, you're not going to have every one of these bumping up at the exact credit limit. You're going to be close to it, but not the exact one, even if you've maxed them all out. So I have a feeling that this is a trick. I have a feeling that maybe of these 14 he's listed, that he doesn't owe anything to some of them. So we will have to have that examined as well. And uh, will we have a response back to this? Of course. Not just about this. So we will see what happens. And do I think bankruptcy court is going to consider any of the rambling stuff he wrote about Randazza and Veronica? No. They're absolutely not going to care about this. They're just going to scan it and say, no, uh, not relevant. Now, they do give him some allowance, presumably, because he is representing himself. And when people represent themselves, they do stupid things like that, and they ramble and say stupid things. Like, when you're a practicing attorney, you know what to write. Even a crappy attorney knows what they should be filing and what they shouldn't be. They understand the purpose of hearings. They understand what's relevant, what isn't. 
So even attorneys that aren't particularly skilled at their craft at least know that much, or else they would have never passed the bar. But when people represent themselves, they, they do all kinds of stupid things. And that's why they like to say that anyone who represents themselves has a fool for a client. And there's many reasons that's true. It's not even just that you don't know what you're doing, even if you think you do, but also because you just don't get much respect. But on the other hand, there's more leeway given for mistakes when people are representing themselves. So like whenever someone writes in and says, I'd like an extension because I'm representing myself, they tend to give it to you because it's assumed you need more time being someone who represents yourself. And they, they will give you a few more little allowances. So that's why Apostle the whole way has gotten some extensions and allowances that maybe he wouldn't have gotten if he had an attorney. But whatever, it's... Uh, I, I don't know why he doesn't learn this. <laughs> it's crazy. This crazy ranting. We do have a quote from Eric Benzamokin regarding this filing, even though I was not mentioned, and even though Eric was only mentioned as one of the creditors. I do have a quote from him because uh, Haley Hintz and Jennifer Newell, who cover this all pretty aggressively, and I give them a lot of credit for that. These are two very good poker reporters. And they've been around a long time. Both of them have been around since the 2000s. So Haley Hintz did this one. And Eric is someone who will always give quotes to them. So that whenever they want to write about this, they go to Eric. And he's always happy to give quotes because uh, Eric likes uh, being open about all these things. And I think that's great. So anyway, he said, It is clear from Mr. Postle's self-serving statements contained within his motion to dismiss the involuntary bankruptcy petition filed against him that he seemingly wishes to use the judicial system as a way to improperly advance his own narrative with total disregard of the fact that Mr. Mr. Wattellis and Ms. Brill hold valid and unpaid judgments against him. All this filing does is confirm that Mr. Postle should be in bankruptcy and a trustee should be appointed to investigate his financial affairs. All true. All true. This is like, he, he just wants to file this stuff to rant about things that he wants to say. But he doesn't address the fact that we hold valid judgments against him and he's not paying them. And that these judgments have been there for months now and he's not paying them. He's making no effort to pay them. He's ignoring requests to pay them. So all this other stuff is just him ranting to the court and wasting the court's time. All true. He calls them self-serving statements. That's what they are. They're self-serving statements. You don't go into bankruptcy court to say that uh, Veronica Brill is, is trying to advance her career on your back or Mark Randaz is a jerk. That's a, that doesn't belong in bankruptcy court. So bankruptcy court is aware of this. They know very well what belongs there and what doesn't, and they will rule on what they feel the facts are. And uh, I hope that ruling will go in our favor. And I think we have a fairly good chance of that. So we shall see. Never know what happens in court. So you can never say that it's a slam dunk. It's never a lock. But there's times you can feel better than others. And I have to say that uh, at the moment, it looks pretty positive. But I don't like to predict these things. I like to just wait and let them happen. And have things fall as they do. And Eric's done such a good job with this whole thing. Just everything you read from him that he writes and uh, his his demeanor in the courtroom and his strategy, every everything you look back on and say, this is all correct. This was all done as well as it could have possibly been done. 
So very impressed with all of that. Very impressed with his representation. Let's move on. I want to talk about Andy Stacks. Another Andy. Don't confuse him with Andy Trombley. Very different story. We have two Andys on this show. Not actually on, but we're going to talk about two Andys on the show. This is the second one. Andy Stacks. This story is kind of blown up this week, especially among people in the Southern California area or people who are fans or former fans of Live at the Bike. Live at the Bike is a live streaming poker show, which has started up again. There was a hiatus because of COVID. It is now competing with another large poker streaming show, Hustler Casino Live. And we had Ryan Feldman, who is the producer of Hustler Casino Live, on this show with a very long interview recently, which is very interesting. And he's done a great job with Hustler Casino Live. I mean, they, they've just right out the gate have just been massive competition to the live at the bike. And they're, they're really putting out an interesting product that people really like. So I don't know how the bike let that guy go. Huge mistake on their part. Live at the bike, let him go. Well, actually the bike did too. They both let him go. And I, I believe they didn't treat him very well. And we heard all that in the interview. But anyway, this isn't about Feldman at all. This is about live at the bike and a frequent player on live at the bike who goes by Andy Stacks. Now, Andy Stacks, I'm pretty sure that's a nickname. I don't know his full legal name. But unlike what his name, Andy Stacks, would sound like, he is a Chinese-American poker pro. A poker pro. He's well-liked. He has a mild-mannered demeanor. He is someone who does not typically start drama. He is not someone who is loud and gregarious at the table. He's not someone who is obnoxious in any way. He's kind of like one of these quiet, smart Asian guys who wins at poker. That's really what he is. Just picture the typical quiet, smart Asian dude who just bears down and plays well. That's that's Andy Stacks. But he's been on the Live at the Bike stream a lot, and people just got to like him. He seems like a nice guy. He doesn't seem like he's there for a lot of attention. He kind of just likes going on the stream and playing. So people have gotten to enjoy his appearances, even though he's not super entertaining. He's not one of these guys that you can't wait to see what he says next or always uh, is boisterous and loud and uh, you always have to watch at the table. This is just someone who who's there and is kind of likable. Anyway, he stepped out of character, character recently when he decided that he has had enough and he can stay silent no longer that another player who frequently is on Live at the Bike he has accused of ripping him off. Not only that, but it is a female player that he's accusing. Someone known as Jenny Leong, a.k.a. Savage. Jenny Leong is another player of Chinese descent. Andy claimed that Jenny borrowed $16,000 from him to play at the bike after a stream was over. I don't know on what date, but he was saying that on a recent stream, or after a recent stream, when people continued to play after the stream was over, that she busted and wanted 16 more K to play. Now, Jenny is described as someone who is very high-maintenance looking, carries around uh, expensive purses, wears expensive clothes, and even carries around expensive stuffed animals, I kid you not, that are worth $2,500 each from Louis Vuitton. (laughs) 
Have you ever heard of a $2,500 stuffed animal? Well, now you have. So he assumed that she had a lot of money. And he assumed that she was good for it, that she just busted and that she wanted to keep playing. It's possible that he thought she was the weak spot in the game. I don't know. But uh, this does happen sometimes where someone busts. And in order to keep that player at the table, either because they're not very good or they're not playing well at the moment, that someone loans them money. And because they're a regular in the game, it's assumed they're going to pay back. There have been situations where that backfires. And we've talked about some over the years where the person who has loaned the money either can't pay and they're not as wealthy as they appeared to be, or they decide they just don't want to pay because they've decided in their head that they got cheated in some way. I know of a story that was never publicized, and I was asked not to publicize it, but there was a story of someone who played a known fish in Southern California for high stakes, limit hold them heads up, and uh, that this player played on credit, but this guy was known to be very rich and was known to show up to commerce and just always dump money, so they were sure he would pay back. And uh, this person beat the fish for like uh, $100,000 heads up, and then the fish was convinced he was cheated somehow, even though it was heads up. I'm not talking about the Andy, the Andy or Jenny situation. I'm going back to a thing that happened years ago. But the fish would not pay because he was convinced somehow that he was cheated, even though how are you going to be cheated in a heads-up game? Some, he just decided he was cheated somehow. He didn't want to pay. And he went to Commerce. The game took place at another casino, so this way it wasn't fill up, couldn't fill up because you can't have a heads-up game. That has to be heads-up, so they went to a casino where people typically wouldn't want to play high-stakes limit hold'em and played it there. So when this guy went to, back to Commerce, he told the limit players at Commerce about this, and they said, oh, yeah, 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 you were cheated. Don't pay him, which is really shitty because they knew he wasn't cheated. They just wanted to keep him happy, and they wanted to get his money. They didn't want him to pay $100,000 to the person who he lost it to because then that would be $100,000 they won't end up getting from him. So in a very self-serving and nasty way, they decided they're going to fuck this person who rightfully beat him out of 100000 by telling him, yeah, you probably were cheated. Don't pay. So he didn't pay. And I wanted to publicize this story, but I was asked not to. So all I can do is talk about it without naming any names. That was years ago. But I was pretty disturbed when I heard it. By the way, this fish is no one you would know. But some of the players who told him not to pay, you would know. Or maybe you'd know. Anyway, I'm not going to say who they are. But uh, back to this story. And of course, before I get back to the story, there was uh, the Leon Sukernik thing that was much better known. Where this guy, Aussie Matt beat him for like $2 million heads up that was on loan. And then Leon claimed that he was cheated and wouldn't pay, even though he's an owner of a casino. He's the owner of King's Casino, which has a deal with the World Series to this day. And he wouldn't pay Aussie Matt because he said he was cheated. So it can backfire. The person can have the money and just refuse to pay you. Even if there's someone who you think is good for it or you know is good for it, and even if you think they're a fish and you want them to still be in the game. So you always got to watch out in casinos, when you loan the money, it often is as hard to collect it through the court system because sometimes you can't enforce gambling debts like this. So it's very tough. So be very careful when you loan anyone money to play with, even a fish. But let's back go back to this one. He's claiming that happened to him, Andy. He's claiming that Jenny Leong borrowed 16 k from him in a post-stream game 
so you didn't see this on the stream, but that she chunked it off and lost it, and then would not pay him. Now, this was uh, first discussed on a Live at the Bike episode at the table. Now, Jenny was not there. There was some talk that she would come that day, but I don't believe she ever showed up. But the subject somehow came up at the table on the stream on September 9th. And this is the one that was the 5100 and 100 Big Blind Ante game, No Limit Hold'em, from September 9th, featuring Andy Stacks and Maria Ho. Now, by the way, Maria Ho has nothing to do with this situation, but she did comment on it a little bit in the segment I'm going to play you, because she was at the table. So she was promoted as being one of the people there because, you know, these streams, they want to promote people that you're going to want to watch. So, of course, Maria Ho being a pretty well-known name in poker, she was going to be in this game. So they, they were uh, promoting that. It was Andy Stacks and, uh, and Maria Ho and one other guy. So Maria commented at one point here, but this is really an issue between him and Jenny Leong, a.k.a. Savage, who did not appear here. And this was not something premeditated. Uh, Andy kind of blurted it out when somehow the subject came up in a way. And then something happened after that. Before I play you this, I'm going to let you know that Andy then clarified in his own video. Andy put out a tweet where he linked people to a YouTube video. And he wrote the following in his tweet. He wrote... I've been scammed repeatedly in my many years in poker, have kept silent, and continue to give people the benefit of the doubt. But enough is enough. Is it fair for a scammer to continue to play on the stream, free-rolling everyone playing with money that isn't theirs? And then he linked the video that he did calling out both Jenny Leong and Live at the Bike for allowing her to play on the stream, even while owing him money that was loaned to her, he claimed, at the casino right after the game was finished. So he's like, if, if you're going to have one player just ripping off another like this, how can you have her continuing to play on the stream in these high-stakes games and not make this right? Why don't you tell her, pay back our other regular guy on the stream before we're going to let you back on here? So he was calling them out and calling her out. And he said that uh, he's kept silent all this time when he's been scammed repeatedly over the years, but the, finally enough is enough. He tweeted this on on, uh, September 10th at 8.25 in the morning Pacific Time. And that video and the tweet are now gone. He deleted them. Why? Well, we'll get to that. Before we get to why he deleted the video and the tweets, and why a 2 plus 2 thread about this is now gone, though, of course, uh, Poker Fraud Alert's thread is not gone, so we still are covering it, but uh, 2 plus 2's thread is gone at his request. I'm going to play you about 10 minutes, and I will stop it every so often, especially if you can't hear it that well, because this is like table talk mostly that isn't super clear, but you'll be able to make it out. And this starts at the, uh, around the one minute, uh, one, one minute, one hour, 39 minute mark of the September 9th stream, the one with Maria Ho. So I'm going to play this to you, and we're going to stop every so often to commentate on this and then we will discuss the aftermath this is the first anyone heard of it so people were watching the stream and this came up and they're like oh wow and then his statement about this on twitter and the video came after that 
Hey, hey, did you hear that? that was what he's saying? No, like, what? Want, I wasn't listening. So, so he's, he's making so me the like girl, Savage, owes him money, right? The girl who? Savage? Owes who money? Me. Oh. And then she's like trying not to pay. Like, and he's gonna, he's saying that he's gonna speak I, I don't want to make a scene out of it at, at, on the stream, but if she tries to like knock it up and talk to me about it, I'm gonna have to do it at the table, and I don't want you guys to feel awkward about it. I think you, you, know? could, I, I think you could just tell her, like, hey, can I talk to you for a minute saying, outside? What she's doing to me is not right. And like, I already heard it. It's already been like a month. I mean, I know I you know this, but what? you realize you're saying it on stream. Right? I don't care. That's okay. what I'm saying. But she won't know that for hours. What I would do if I were you, just. No disrespect, getting in the middle of conversation, but I would wait till she gets her chips. Yeah, I'm gonna <coughs> ask her about it. She said, <coughs> just say, hey, <coughs> can I talk to you outside for a Yeah, that's what, that's what I'm saying. Okay, so he's saying that he's going to confront her about it and he and he doesn't care if he's talking about it on the stream. Someone's saying, oh, you were mentioning on the stream, maybe you shouldn't do that. He said, no, no, I don't care. I don't care if everybody hears this. And someone said, look, no offense, but I think what you should do, and they're talking about if she comes that day, because they're playing on the stream and there was some talk that she was going to show up. That's probably what spawned this conversation. So someone's suggesting instead of talking about it on the stream, maybe right when she gets her chips before she brings them to the table. Because once she brings them to the table, you can't take it off the table. But once she gets her chips before she brings them to the table, say, hey, you owe me $16,000. Pay me now and then rebuy in here uh, because you owe me money. And he's saying, do that first before you say it on the stream. And he's like, no, I don't care. I'm just going to say it right now. I've, I've been feeling that she's going to be like, no, I don't want to talk to you. And then I'm going to have to go to the table. I might wait till after the stream, but if she has chips in front of them, I'm going to try to get it from her. You know? yeah. It's not right. Some drama here at Live Bike. Oh, she's trying to tell you, but it's, it's, I'm telling you straight out, like she's basically robbing you. Yeah, so, and then the commentators, they, they don't know how to handle this. Like, oh, well, there's some drama here at Live at the Bike. So, at least they're not muting this. I mean, this is a dispute between two of their players. It makes them look a little bit bad. It's not really their fault, but I was just saying that they don't want this. They, they want high stakes action to be just where you feel like everybody can afford to lose the money that they have at the table. You don't want it where one player screws over the other and one borrows from the other and the other has to call them out on the stream. Like that's not a good look for live of the bike, even if they did not cause any of this. But at the same time, you know, credit to them. They didn't try to shut him up or stop him talking about it. They just said, Oh, there's some drama on live of the book, <laughs> which it is. So you'll, you'll hear every so often it'll be louder than everybody else. Cause they're on the mic and the rest of them are actually at the table. Like the, you have the commentators are louder than the people who are talking. But you'll hear that every so often. Let's continue. Again, this starts around the one hour, 39 minute mark on the episode with Andy and uh, Maria Ho on September 9th. She has her friend sending me some fucking wire from China. It's ridiculous. Like, it didn't come through. Yeah, so he says he, she had her friend send me some wire from China that didn't go through. I'm so tilted about the situation. So it, it was kind of the check-in in the mail story that he's talking about, where somebody owes you money. They say, okay, I sent it. And you go, okay, I mean, you're, you're happy for the moment, and then it just doesn't come. Like, what happened? Oh, there must have been a problem. You, you get that over and over. It's kind of like the old check-in-the-mail thing, as I said. Hey, where's my check? Oh, I put it in the mail. I guess it didn't get there. Uh, we'll do it again. We'll send you another one. And then they say it over and over and you never get the check. So he's saying that this is the wire version that some friend in China was supposedly going to send him a wire for 16K and, and he claims that it never came and that he's getting tired of this that he doesn't even believe it. Surgery comes out says the surgery was successful but the patient died. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that, Andy. I hope it gets resolved. 
as Maria Ho. Well, she says she comes in here with a six hundred thousand dollar lamp. That's what I'm saying. Well, she does talk about money all the time. Like, how do you not pay me sixteen k? Like, you know, you're just playing on the table. Like, how does that even happen? Like, just laughing at every week with everybody just gambling and just literally in front of me just gambling with my money. Yeah. Doesn't make any sense. Well, hopefully it gets resolved. So you can see he's fuming about this. He's saying that she's always bragging how much money she has and that she's always making everything about money, but then owes him 16K and yet at the same time won't pay him and continues to play high stakes poker while not paying him. And he's it's just burning him up inside. He can't stand it. And that's you can see he's just blurting this out on the stream because her name came up because he can't stand it any longer. It just he can't keep quiet. He ha- he has to say it because it's been eating at him, and it's just he says he's she's going around laughing at him basically by playing poker with his money. There's only one thing I told her: so this is popular. I just don't pay their debts. It's just like not to mention you're playing with someone. Yeah, that's even more telling. It'd be different if they just disappeared and you never saw them again. Yeah, but they're for like them in financial trouble. Playing, right, like, thing, they're literally yeah. bragging about how much money they have. Let me just let me just stop nicely. Just, just, just. Yeah, I tried pulling her aside one time, and she's like. He's like, I want to see your bullshit. It's like, it's crazy, dude. It's like, well, you know what's interesting is? What's interesting is that she knows you're playing, and... She's still willing to come and play. She, yeah, well, no so, we, so we think she's coming out. I mean... She's played since, since the, like, on Yeah, he's saying she has no shame, and people are like, yeah, you know, she's played since this has happened, Maria Ho's saying. So, you can see that People are pretty critical about this, and of course, he's really pissed. Yeah. You actually played with her already? Yeah. Oh my god! Yeah, I, I've been polite with her. Like you see my text, it's gone progressively worse because I, I didn't start off like just attacking her. Yeah. I'm like, I'm like, hey, like, can I, you know? Andy's saying another player owes him money. It's so rare that Andy talks this much at the table. It must really be bothering him. Okay. Anything else? Thank Shut up. Shut up. Shut up. I got a belly. Thank you. Thank you. I guess we're doing a round of struggle. Um, <laughs> oh, shit. Who's Larry? Him. That's good. This tennis stuff is going to throw the shit out of me. Thank you. Yeah. You get your 16K or you tell her you want to drive the level cross country. For a <laughs> it's not a bad deal, right, Eric? It's usually like 2500 a day to run it. So I, I guess the, she has a Lamborghini. <laughs> so the guy said uh, either you get the 16K or tell her you want to drive the Lambo cross country. You can only put like 150 miles on it. At least get a couple of those dolls. At least, at least, at least, at least get a BB <laughs> test from her or something. No, I saw those dolls. Half of them look fake. Uh, trust me, my wife is a VIP at Louis Vuitton. I kind of have an idea of what's a real Louis Vuitton. I mean, I could be wrong. Oh, yeah. Just the well, it's my straddle, right? Money, right. but they don't like. Well, they still pay their debt. Like I have someone very yeah. that we're all very familiar with that comes to mind. That like you know what I mean? Like people yeah. who 
they just think they can get away with it, but that doesn't necessarily mean like in the moment they're, you know, like, no, no, it's just crazy. I'm sorry that that's going on. That's interesting. Maria then blurts out that there's someone that everybody knows that owes her money and just doesn't pay her because they feel they can get away with it. But then she drops it. You can see she's bothered about it too now that the subject's coming up, but then she drops it. Now, I don't know why Maria doesn't just call this person out. Maria would have a very loud voice in this situation because she's a prominent player. She's very well-liked. She is trusted. I mean, people don't think she's shady or that she's a liar. So I think if she were to say such and such person owes me money and owes a lot of other people money and keeps playing and won't pay, I bet that person would pay up. I, I think the last thing they would want is Maria Ho publicly shaming them. Or at the very least, you should go to them and say, I'm about to publicly out you. So will you pay me? That's what I would do if I were her. She, she's definitely someone who could put the pressure on pretty damn hard because that would be a pretty strong shaming to be coming from her because she doesn't usually do this and she's well known and there's even the element provided it's a male there's even kind of the male taking advantage of the female element to it which really shouldn't be one but you know she's been around in poker for 15 years or more so it's not like she's some damsel in distress but still it's bad optics when you're some dude and you and you cheat a woman so I mean, I have a feeling if she outed this person, they'd be coughing up the money real fast or, or round up that money in some way to pay back. But it appears that she's not outing them, and she says that they feel they don't have to, and I guess she's right if nobody's outing them. I'm saying, like, I don't know how she's testifying in her head. Like. Okay, I'm sorry. Like, I lose any amount in a poker game. Like, uh, here, I don't think I got your It's another thing when someone's just straight out just, like, robbing right. you and just... For sure. Um, how long did you know her before? Like, not long. Not long. She came, yeah, she came to me to this private game, and then her justification now is that, like, she thinks I scammed her, which is ridiculous because, like, I have nothing to do with that game. Yeah. Like, she literally just played in it with me, and I lost, like, more than her in that game. Yeah. And she didn't have money, and she pulled up in a Rolls Royce, and I was like, okay, this girl's not going to screw me. I'll cover her marker. 600 because, like, 2400. You know, just, just out of respect. Like, I met her at Live the Bike, and I was like, cover yeah. her marker. And then the next day, she's like, well, I'm having my friend trying to send you this wire. Didn't come through. I was like, and I've been dealing with it for, with, with yeah. her friend, like, for a month. Now, I'm not sure, now that I hear this, see, I didn't hear it as clearly before as they played it off YouTube. I couldn't make it as loud as I'm doing now. I thought they played actually at the bike, but not on live at the bike after the stream. But it sounds kind of like they actually went to a private game after that, unless it was a private game at the bike. But either way, um, I guess she was invited to it by him, and that both of them lost, and that uh, she doesn't want to pay him back the 16k she borrowed from him, even though he lost more in the game. She he claims that she's saying now that he cheated her, or the game was cheating her, and that he brought her in as a sucker to cheat. So that's why she's not paying him. But he's saying that this is already after that she had given him other excuses to not pay. So it's not like right off the bat she said, I'm not paying you, I got cheated. It was like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm having someone from China wire you. Okay, now, now it's really coming. Now it's really coming. Oh, actually, no, no, I'm not, I'm not going to pay you because you cheated me. And he's like, what? Then, then why would you have said you're going to pay me before? So if all that's true, these are very good points. Yeah, since the last time I saw you. And she kind of feels like she's not even apologetic. She's just like, well, my friend said it, so what do you want me to do? 
she's not taking any responsibility out of it. She's coming here and playing every week. So now she's not even using the she thought she got scammed. It's you. She's just saying that her friend sent it and you didn't get it. That's on you. Pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. I called my bank five times and I have wires coming. We have a, we have a hundred and my last resort is just like publicly. Oh my goodness. No, I mean, because like, I, I don't like to talk about personal issues, but like, I have, I have no other options. Yeah, oh, I, I understand your frustration. Trust me. You know, she can't be coming on the stream and playing. Oh, thank you. I, I think oh, it's 500. I think the problem becomes. I think the problem is also the community with founders specifically is 500. Yeah, exactly. And I was going to say, people sometimes don't out people that owe them because they are they're afraid that they won't get paid back if they do. But it's actually like it's it's like a impossible situation, right? Because yeah. if you never out someone, they keep borrowing from other sure. people, and you're only doing it to preserve your own debt with this person. But ultimately, they're going to keep. Now, it's interesting. That's going to play into what happens later, interestingly enough. What Maria just said there, it's going to actually kind of be the situation going forward with the remainder of this story thus far. But before we get to that, what Maria said is true, but what she's missing in that whole speech is that it appears that keeping it quiet when someone owes you will get you paid because you're not going to anger them and they're not going to withhold payment out of spite. It can feel that way. However, the reality is that outing someone gets you paid faster. And I say this as someone who has observed these bad debts in poker for 20 years now, and the ones that get paid are usually not the ones where people stay quiet. Usually it's the ones where people out them and embarrass the person, and then the person feels pressured to make it right so they can clear their name. If there's nothing to clear, if there's no urgency, if all you have is one individual or several individuals angry at you, but all staying silent so your reputation's intact, then you're probably not going to pay unless you are flush with cash. And that's why I'm saying Maria should just out this person who owes her and probably owes others, because I bet that person would start paying up if that were to happen. But with no consequence, why will they? Now, of course, if someone is very ethical, they wouldn't do that. But a lot of people in poker are not ethical. A lot of people who get into debt in poker are either just scumbags or they're degenerates who just kind of feel like their back is against the wall and they've got to have priorities and they put themselves ahead of others. So they're not meaning to scam or rip people off uh, like in a premeditated fashion. But when it comes to them borrowing, they will sometimes misrepresent their ability to pay back. And then when they can't pay back, they just kind of say, you know what, screw this person. They can afford it and I can't. So if one day I have a lot of money, I'll pay them. Otherwise, F them. And that, that's, that's the terrible wrong attitude to take, but that's what a lot of them take. So the only way you get paid back in that spot is by outing the person. There is one exception to this. If you have a friend... I'm talking a real real friend, not just uh, an acquaintance, but a real friend that owes you money and you know legitimately they're in a bad spot and you think that they really do want to pay you, but they are in a bad spot and that you'll eventually get paid. You've got to out them if they're not going to pay you, especially if they're still playing. If they've left the poker community, it's not as easy because they don't care as much what everybody thinks. But if they're still in the community, you've got to out them because that's the only way that they feel an incentive to make it right. You're going to feel like they're going to be mad and refuse to pay you out of anger, but 
They may be mad, but they also want to preserve their rep. Or what's left of it. Let's go on. Got to be very careful lending out money in poker. I'll just bring that up and let you know that. Like, I know you guys are friendly and like maybe you weren't aware of the whole situation. No, much, but but no. I'm, I'm, yeah, I know. I know you guys are like, I know you guys are friends and, you know, yeah. I wasn't trying to like, yeah, yeah. I just didn't want to make you think that I was attacking her. Like, I know you guys are playing together and like, Oh, interesting. So he's saying to somebody else in the game, I'm not sure who this is, it's, it's a kind of heavyset Asian guy. I know you're friends with her. I, I want you to know that I'm not just attacking her, that I'm basically doing this as a last resort. And, and the other guy's like, hey, you know, I understand. <laughs> so it, it's interesting that even with all this and everything Andy's already said, he, he wants the guy at the table who's friends with her to know that he's not just doing this vindictively, he's doing this because he's out of options. Maria gets this bluff through. I have a story. Yeah. What? That's weird commentating. I, 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 I'm not really talking about the poker hands going on during all this, but Maria had an open-ended straight draw on an ace-7-10 board where really nobody was putting in action. She had 9-8 for this open-ender, and nobody had any piece of it. So on the turn, when a blank hit, she fired, and it went fold-fold. Like, Maria gets this bluff through. Yeah, well, nobody had anything. It was not like she, they, it's not like she ran them off top pair or something. Like that was a super obvious bet at that point. Yeah, you know, what have you heard? Like, it's 100% true from me. Just telling you, like, I have nothing to do with that game. Like, I literally just played it a few times. It was like I got back to Taiwan. I've been running that game for months when I was on the seas. Like, yeah, I just played it. For me, I, I, I know you. I mean, I, I played with the players. Even if you did, what does that have to do with the loan? I don't know. She told me he was playing there, and I, well, I know so yeah that's, that's interesting comment by this other guy in the game just in general about people in in these home games that they'll be losing and they won't make any comment about how they think the game's rigged until they're bust and can't rebuy and then they go oh you know what i think this game is rigged and he's like why don't they stop in the middle when they still have money in front of them and raise that issue. Why is it only when there's nothing left and there's there's nothing left to lose as far as them accusing? Because he's saying people are kind of afraid to say anything that they'll be thrown out of the game if they make this accusation. So they wait till there's no more money to play with, and then they say it in, in, in a vain attempt to get the money back in some way. Well, well did, did it occur to you between the third and the fourth line? That maybe you're like, hey guys, I'm quitting because I think there's something wrong here, even though I have money in my pocket. Now that's interesting. He's saying that uh, they weren't even that eager to have her there. 
that she had 16K in front of her, everybody else has 70 there, and that she's the tightest player at the table. See, now, I don't know about that part. She was invited for a reason, and it could have just been that they were friendly. Uh, he had said at one point that they were uh, that she would speak in Chinese to him to kind of make him feel comfortable with her and uh, you know to kind of establish a rapport and that they kind of always felt like friends. And so maybe that's why he invited her. But it also may be, and I don't know, maybe there was a perception that she was one of the weaker players in the game. And it doesn't matter if she has uh, less than everybody else in front of them. You know, if, she, if she's buying in for low five figures every time, or even high four figures, and, and she's significantly worse than everybody at the table, sure, they're happy to have that player in the game. They don't have to have 70K in front of them. So I, I don't know if I agree with that logic. And saying, well, she's the tightest player in the game. Now that may be, but still, tight doesn't mean good. Uh, tight could mean someone you can easily run over. And it's and it's easy to know when to get away from your hand in No Limit Hold'em. Like a tight player in Limit Hold'em unless it's a very shorthanded game, doesn't provide a lot of value, even if they're not particularly skilled, because they're just not going to give away a lot of money. Like, you'll grind them down over time, over a long time, just because they're making too many tight folds. But but at the same time, they're only going to play premium hands, and they're not going to make a lot of loose calls, and there's going to be a lot of times that uh, you start off with worse holdings than they do, and you're at a disadvantage. So, even if you're a better player and you beat them over time, the, the very tight players, you're not going to get a lot out of them in limit hold'em. Unless again, unless it's shorthanded, where you, if you're too tight, that's a huge mistake. So, in no limit, somebody who's very tight that can be run off hands and things like that, they can still be valuable for the game. You don't have to be a maniac or, or a calling station to be someone who is a spot in a no limit game full of good players. So I, I'm just theorizing a lot of these things. I, I have no idea what her skill is. I've never watched her play, and I don't know what her skill is compared to everybody else in that game. It's possible there's some big fish in that game, and she's much better than they are. I don't know, but uh, I'm not sure what he's saying there about her being so tight and they don't really care about her money there. I, that, and that's not really relevant. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter why she's there. It doesn't matter if they think she's a fish and they invited her for that reason. If they think she's a fish and they invite her and she comes and plays and she loses, she owes the money. Now, if they're cheating her, I agree. Then, then she shouldn't know the money. If, or if they're uh, colluding against her, then she shouldn't know the money. But if the game is legit, but they just invited her because they think she's not good, then she owes the money. It doesn't matter the reason people want you in the game, as long as the game itself is legit. And as long as people play honestly at the table, honestly meaning that they're not colluding or soft playing or, or uh, doing anything else that is against the rules then it's fine. And if you borrow, you should pay. It's ridiculous things that were like conspiring against her. Not sure what's going to happen here tonight, but the, the rest of this stream could be pretty interesting. Yeah, he, it's one other guy at the table saying, oh, well, she seems like a fun girl to have at the table. Well, it doesn't matter. Who cares how fun she is? And he's like, oh, yeah, I guess the rest of her is fine, but she owes me money. Okay, so that's pretty much where the commentary about this ends. 
Also, according to Andy in the video that he posted that I can't play you anymore, he said that she, in addition to this, that uh, at one point he tried to take one of the stuffed animals that she brought, one of these $2,500 stuffed animals as collateral. He actually tried to confiscate a stuffed animal for collateral. And then she went off at him and and yelled, uh, do you think I get the name Savage for nothing? And then some tough-looking dude showed up and kind of intimidated him into not doing anything like that. Actually, this part was described by somebody in chat named Eric Hicks, who also plays on the stream, but he was not on that stream. This was described in chat by Eric Hicks, and that's where that story came from, that he tried to take this uh, Louis Vuitton stuffed animal, and then she brought these dudes there to intimidate him not to do this, and said, you think I get the name Savage for nothing? So this, this is from a third party, this Eric Hicks. This wasn't from his stream. Why did the video go down? And why did the tweet go down? He can't take this thing I played from Live at the Bike down because this is a Live at the Bike video I just played you. But everything he could control about this, he took down. And he asked 2 plus 2 to take down the thread. And in fact, they did. So he posted on 2 plus 2 in their thread. This is Andy. How can I get this full thread and post removed? This is actually he, this is after he removed his own posts about this on YouTube and Twitter. I am currently working it out with her, and I have agreed to take down the video in the meantime until we've tried to resolve this civilly and peacefully. How can I contact the moderators to have this thread deleted? I'm asking the Reddit community to please help flag this and get this taken down until we come to a resolution on this. So he's trying to get rid of it from uh, Reddit, and he's also trying to get rid of it from 2 plus 2. And uh, people were getting annoyed with this because in his video, which again, I wish I could play you, He was claiming that he wasn't calling her out because he needed the 16K that badly. He said, I don't care about the money. I'm doing this for the principal. I'm doing this so she doesn't victimize anybody else. And in fact, if she pays me back as a result of this video, I'm going to donate the money to Live at the Bike. (laughs) What? What? Live at the Bike? If she pays him back, he's going to donate it to Live at the Bike. Not to charity, not to a friend in need, not to a family member in need, not to an animal shelter, but Live at the Bike, a for-profit business that has done quite well over the years. For some reason, he's going to donate the 16K owed to him to a for-profit business that does well. That makes loads of sense. It'd be like if somebody rips me off as a third-party seller on Amazon and I call them out and I say, this isn't about the money, guys. This is about the principal. And if I get the money back, I'm going to donate it to Jeff Bezos. <laughs> I mean, that, that's how stupid it would sound, all right? You'd say, what? Why we, what? Jeff Bezos is the richest man, or second richest man now, I guess, in the world. Why would you donate it to him? <laughs> of all places to donate it to, why live at the bike? I know it's not Jeff Bezos or Amazon, but why not donate it to something that needs the money that's a worthy cause? Or just not donate it? Why would he have to donate it? What's wrong with saying, hey, this person owes me 16K, I want it? <laughs> that's nothing wrong with that. It's 16K. Nothing wrong with saying it's about the money. If somebody owes you money, you should get the money. 
So, because he said that, and because of this weird thing about donating to Life at the Bike, and then removing everything when she agrees that she's going to pay, people said, whoa, 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 I thought this isn't about the money. Why are you removing this if you're trying to warn other people about her the second she says she's going to pay? It sounds like it is about the money. So someone named uh, RiverPH7 posted on 2 Plus 2. After posting in this thread, as per your own admission, you will be getting back your money. In the opening post, you said you're posting this because you want to save other players from being scammed. What changed now? Why do you want to remove the thread, which which would help you? you? You should be asking to make a thread a permanent sticky, meaning just stick it at the top of the forum, which they wouldn't do, but he's saying that he should want everyone to see as much about her as possible, not whitewash this. Now don't get mad if people start questioning your intentions. Most of us who are not regular in this type of stuff first time learn a little bit of the dark side of the trade. Why people lend to unknown people. I think most of us now understand the, the shady unknown reasoning behind lending to unknown losing players. So this guy isn't an f- English speaker, obviously. This is someone who's learned it as a second language is what comes off a bit awkward. But this guy is basically saying that obviously this is all about money. Obviously, that was the real reason you were shaming her. The second you're going to get paid back, you want it all taken down. And I think we know why you lent it to her in the first place, because you think she's a losing player. And that's why you were so generous to lend her the money. And when she's going to pay you, then you don't care what happens in the future with anybody else. I mean, these are good points. Andy replied to this guy. He said, I will be doing a follow-up video that will answer your questions. In the meantime... I have agreed to help Ask get these threads removed so she can work towards rebuilding her damaged reputation as she has agreed to do the right thing. As I said, I will explain further in a future video. Thank you for your understanding. Well, okay. That doesn't really answer much. The problem is the way he uh, came with this in the first place. I think because he's not an outspoken guy who likes to enter into controversy. In fact, he's the opposite. He's a soft-spoken person who does not like controversy, who doesn't like calling people out, who doesn't like drama. So he kind of naturally was uncomfortable feeling like he's a money grubber, feeling like 16K is so important to him, a high-stakes player, that he needs to get it from somebody who uh, can't seem to pay him. So... Instead of making it look like the rich person trying to get money out of a possibly broke person, he tries to frame it like, well, I'm just putting this out there as a public service announcement so nobody else gets screwed this way. And in fact, I'll donate it if I get it back. So he puts that out there. And as soon as he's like, okay, 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 I'll pay you. Let's, you know, just let me get the money to you. Take this all down in the meantime. He's like, um, okay. Then everyone's like, okay, well, what happened to the public service announcement? What happened to the selfless act that you don't care about the money? You just want the word out. Why don't you want the word out anymore now that she's paying only because you shamed her? That was his mistake. Instead of just being honest and saying, she owes me 16K, she's still playing these high-stakes games on the stream, I think it's wrong, I think Live of the Bike shouldn't have her on there, because that's what he said there on his video too. He thought that it's egregious that Live of the Bike lets her keep playing when they're aware of this and won't do anything about it. And th- these are all good points. There's nothing wrong with saying, I want my 16K, she owes me 16K, Live at the Bike should not feature her playing high limit on the stream until she pays me back that 16K. That's all fine to say, and not one person would have questioned it. Not one person would have said he's an asshole, or he's greedy, or he's a money grubber, or he has no empathy. No one would have said that to him. People would have said, yeah, if she owes you 16K and wants to keep playing high-stakes poker, that's kind of messed up. She should pay you first. And yeah, we can understand why you don't want to see her on the stream until she pays you what she owes you. 
And the only way you shouldn't be paid is if you're incorrect about her owing you the money. But if she owes you 16K, then yes, she should not sit back down in this game till she pays. Like, I think just about everybody would agree about that. So he doesn't have to mask this that he's doing something for the world. He can say, I'm doing it for myself. I want my money back. I'm owed 16K. It pisses me off. It's like what he said on the stream. He should have said in his video. It pisses me off to see her at the table bragging about money, sitting here with the expensive stuffed animals, and playing on high-stakes ga- high streams, and then owing me money and refusing to pay. That's all you have to say. Not I'm doing it for the world. Not I'm trying to save other people. Because if you're trying to save other people, then you can't take it down. Now you say, well, you may say to me, hold on, hold on, hold on. Didn't you just say earlier that you took down the Andy Trombley video because he's starting to pay people back. And didn't you just say earlier that you will take down the entire thread if he pays back every single person who got ripped off on Fox Poker? And I said, yes, but this is actually accomplishing something because this is giving positive feedback to someone who is starting to do the right thing. I didn't start this thread with, I don't care what happens, I just want everyone to know about Andy. I said, this happened on Fox Poker, and it's fucked up, is what I said. I mean, that's, that's basically paraphrasing, but that's, that was the message I was basically putting out when I posted about all this. And then I said, okay, well, he's starting to do the right thing, so I'll do a favor for him in recognition of him starting to do the right thing. And if he gets it all done, I'll do a second favor for him in recognition of him doing the right thing. But that's different than, I don't care about the money, I want the world to know and then, oh, wait, wait, I'm being paid back the money. Okay, well, I don't want the world to know. And the big difference here is that I'm not owed any money by Andy Trombley. He owes me nothing. So I was doing this to bring it to people's attention, but at the same time, would like to see people get paid back. But he just wants to see himself paid back, which is fine. Totally fine. I'm not saying that sarcastically. It is totally fine. But then don't pretend you're doing this for the world because you're not. Aside from that, there's nothing else objectionable what he's done. Totally fine he brought it up on the stream. I don't agree with the people saying, no, 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 don't do that. Why don't you try confronting her one more time when she gets chips? And he said, yeah, she's going to say she doesn't want to talk to me. And she'll go sit down in the game. I know it. He's, he's right. That's probably what she would have done. If all of his story about this is true, then he has done more than enough regarding being patient for being paid back. And... It hasn't happened, according to him. So he doesn't have to give her the courtesy anymore of approaching her quietly before she sits down at the table there. If he wants to mention it on the stream, provided what he's saying is the truth, then he should be able to say it at that point without having to keep this hush-hush. The hush-hush thing would be before you really ask the person about it. So let's say someone owes you 16 k and uh, they said they sent a wire, and then it doesn't arrive. And before telling them about it, or before giving them a chance to look into it, you call them out on stream for cheating you. Well, that's messed up because you didn't give them a chance to make sure nothing went wrong or to make it right in some way. But when you're given the runaround for a while, and and now I, I'm reading now that this is like a month ago when this happened. So, you know, if that happens at that, at that point, after a month's time, if you want to say something in a public stream, then say it. So that's totally fine. And the way he put it on the stream was totally fine. What he said in the video and in these threads on Reddit and 2 Plus 2, that was not fine. It wasn't terrible, but he was not totally honest, it appears, about his motivation. Seems like his motivation was the money. 
Now, let's go back to why he was saying he was going to donate it to Live at the Bike, which, you know, he's saying she's paying him, so I don't know if he's going to be donated to Live at the Bike after this whole thing, but why Live at the Bike? Why would he say he's going to donate it to them? Well, it could be two things. Number one, it could be that he wants them to pressure her to pay it, and he feels they will pressure her if he's going to give it to them rather than just keep it himself. But there's another possibility. And again, this is just a possibility. I have no information that would suggest this is happening. But another possibility is that he's a frequent player on there. He's obviously on good terms with the staff there. They may not be his best friends, but, you know, they probably all get along. And it's possible that whoever he gives it to at Live of the Bike will just give it right back to him. And nobody will ever know. So it'll look like he donated to Live of the Bike, and then Live of the Bike would donate it right back to him. I'm not saying that is the agreement. I'm not saying I know anything about that. I'm just saying that's one possibility why he would be donating to them, because they may be very well donating it back to him. Whatever the case, it's a weird thing to say. You don't say, I'm going to donate to this for-profit company if I get the money back. It's so strange. It's not even a for-profit company that's doing anything charitable or good for humanity. It's a freaking gambling streaming company. There's nothing wrong with it, but it doesn't deserve donations. (laughs) It's not like he's saying he's going to donate it to KevMath. If you want to donate to KevMath, fine. But not, not Life of the Bike. Life of the Bike you should only give money to if you're b- buying services they're selling. You want to buy premium content or archives, whatever they charge for, fine. You want to advertise on them, fine. But you, you don't give them money for free. Just like you don't walk down to the local supermarket and just hand them money and buy no groceries. It's generally accepted that for-profit businesses, you don't just hand them free money. We'll see what happens. We'll see what he puts up as far as an explanation. I have a feeling if he gets the money back, he's going to have to put out some sort of BS statement that makes her look good. It was probably something along the lines of, I'll say nice things that it was all big misunderstanding if you pay me. So I'm just guessing about this, of course. But if he gets paid back, it may be something like, uh, I said something on the stream about uh, Jenny Leong, a.k.a. Savage, that uh, she wasn't paying me and she was jerking me around and she was refusing to pay. And I said a lot of bad things about her. And I just want to let you know, it turned out that there were just a lot of failed wires and just some poor communication between us. And while I was frustrated that I wasn't being paid as fast as I was, um, it, it turned out that some things really did happen behind the scenes to slow the whole thing down. And she was attempting to get me the money the whole time. So, uh, um, but let's just all forget about this. Like, I could totally see a statement like that. And sometimes that is the way people get paid back. We actually had a larger situation like this that we discussed with Mark Klang. Remember him? We even had him on the show when he claimed he got uh, no paid from an illegal home blackjack game where he just got super lucky when just super drunk and high and everything else and really didn't have his wits about him and somehow won a $500,000 at a very high-stakes home blackjack game. And then the players who were backing it, including you know, several poker players, just weren't paying him and were accusing him of all kinds of things to get out of paying, so he called them out. Eventually, he put out a statement after going on this show and other shows calling out the people who did this to him. He put out a statement that basically was all a big misunderstanding and that these people have paid him and everything's fine. And I read between the lines there. He, there was no misunderstanding. They owed him six figures. 
And they said, look, you totally trashed our reputation, so we'll pay you if you take this all back. And he's like, okay. <laughs> and, and so is there anything wrong with him doing that? No. If someone owes you a ton of money and the only way to get it back is to take back what you said about them, I can understand the motivation to do so. Now, if it's very little money, let's say someone owes you 100 bucks and you post that they're ripping you off and they have been ripping you off and then they go, whoa, 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 here, I'll send you the $100, but you got a post that was all a mistake. You may not want to because it's only 100 bucks. If it's a lot of money that means something to you, then you may find it worth taking back what you said and you'll know that some people will be able to see through it anyway to get the money, especially if it's like six figures. But even 16K, I could see where you're willing to take it back as long as the person pays back and as long as you don't have to call yourself a liar or say anything degraded about yourself. So I have a feeling we'll see something like that out of him. I don't think we'll really see a sincere statement about the matter. I think the sincere statement came on Live at the Bike when he was just ranting about it, what I played you here. I think we got a less sincere statement in that video that he deleted. Oh, I'm doing this for the public. I'm going to donate it to Live at the Bike, blah, blah, blah. And, and I think we'll get even a less sincere statement when this gets paid back because that's what he has to agree to. Do I think that he was a bad guy in this whole thing? No. I think he was a victim in this whole thing. And I think he normally doesn't want to make waves. And that when he finally had to make a wave, he kind of felt like he had to justify it in some way and said some things that really weren't uh, true about his motivation. And then once he is going to get paid back now, he's, got, he's finding himself in a situation where he's, he's got to take some of it back. So it's very tough. I understand, I understand where he's coming from. So I'm, I'm not crit- criticizing him that much here. Just The lesson from this is if somebody owes you money and you want to call them out, just call them out for owing you money. Don't be embarrassed about it. Or just don't do it. Like one of those two. It's better if you do it. But if you're going to do it, just be honest. Be honest about why. We're going to go on and do Druffy Time Theater. Hello, Ken and Nigel Fabersham here. Welcome to Druffy Time Theater. This is a segment on Poker Fraudulent Radio where Mr. Dan Druff tells you a story, either from his past or something he's read on the internet that he thinks you should know for some reason or another. Or perhaps it's something that happened in poker at some juncture in his career. Maybe it was uh, quite some time ago, and maybe it was recent. In any case, he feels this is something that should make good radio, that is told in story format, and eventually he's going to run out of things to say and tell you about, and he's going to have to abandon this segment, and you're going to be quite disappointed and say... Why the bloody hell didn't you hold some of this back instead of doing it week after week after week until you run out lickety-split and the whole thing's done tally-ho-pip-pip? And uh, he'll say, well, we'll come up with other things. There's there's many things to talk about on the show, and um, it was a good run. Now, if it were up to me, I'd say do this once a month or so, and this lasts quite some time. But, uh, you know... Mr. Trust is too impulsive. He got something that people enjoy. He's like, oh, everyone loves this. I must do this every week. And I say, this is bollocks. All right, well, on with the show. All right, thank you, Colonel Fabersham. This week on Druffy Time Theater, we're going to talk about a towing scam in Las Vegas. I was the victim of predatory towing. Now, what is predatory towing? Predatory towing is where a tow company knows that in certain places, people are going to commit some very ticky-tack minor violations that would make it technically legal 
to tow their car. And why do they do this? Because once they tow your car, you have to pay them a lot of money to get your car out of the tow yard. And that if you don't, then they keep your car. So they've got a lot of leverage over you. And they don't care what you think of them because you are not their customers. You're kind of their victim. So as long as the law is on their side, they will do whatever they can get away with. And towing companies tend to be a very scummy group. This is a very scummy industry. I'm not saying they're all terrible, but there's a lot of very shady tow companies. And the ones that engage in predatory towing are the absolute worst. The way predatory towing is done is by contacting businesses that seem to have a problem with people parking in their lot who aren't really patronizing the business. Or, in some cases, apartment complexes where maybe the manager or assistant manager would like to make a few extra bucks and they can find some very small violations of people parking there, even residents, to tow cars. Predatory towing is not towing a car that is causing a hazard or is somewhere for a long time that it shouldn't be and the owner can't be located. Those are legitimate reasons to tow a car. For example, let's say just some random car parks and blocks my driveway. Well, the first thing I would do is I'd walk around and see who did it and if they're around the neighborhood. And if I could find them, I'd say, hey, move your car. I don't know why you're blocking my driveway. And uh, if they refused to move it or if I couldn't find them, then I would call a tow truck and have it towed away so I can pull out of my driveway. So that's not predatory at all, even if the person eventually has to go back and pay to get their car out because they should not be blocking my driveway and they are creating a hazard for me by preventing me from leaving my home in my car. Similarly, if a car is uh, committing some kind of violation, like parking in a no parking zone on the street where it says uh, no parking anytime and someone parks there and blocks the lane, then yeah, they can be towed immediately. So things like that, it's reasonable to tow them. Another thing reasonable to tow someone is, uh, let's say they're parking in a assigned spot. So it says this spot for unit 354 only. And then the person from 354 comes home and someone's in their spot. And that person can't be located and the person in 354 needs to park. So it's very fair to call a tow truck to tow that person. That's not predatory towing. But what is predatory towing is where they're purposely setting up a situation where people are going to get their cars towed for either minor violations or even non-violations, where the whole point is to trick someone into getting towed or tow them for a very stupid reason and where no effort is made to contact the person who has parked, quote, illegally, and in some cases, they're specifically avoided to where you see the person who is parking illegally, and instead of telling them, hey, don't park there, nothing is said on purpose until they walk away and you can tow them. So that's what predatory towing is. Now, you may say back, wait a minute, if someone parks where they should not be, tough luck, they should be towed. And my answer is no, no. Towing should be a last resort. Towing should be when you absolutely have no other choice. Either it's been too long, or the person's creating an immediate hazard, or the person is taking up an assigned space, 
and where the person cannot be located. Remember that example I gave of someone blocking my driveway? My first action would not be to run and call a towing company. My first action would be to walk around the neighborhood, not really far, but like walk around the immediate area around my house and see if I can find that person and tell them, hey, move your car. Not call a tow truck first and not worry about finding them. Now, I don't have to spend an hour trying to look for them, but I'd I'd have to make at least an effort to find them because that's the right thing to do. Towing should be the last resort when you have no other way to get rid of that car that shouldn't be there. And that's what towing was designed to be. That was the spirit of involuntary towing. I'm not talking about towing when your car is broken down and you want your own car towed. When you tow somebody else's car, it should be when there is no other option. Predatory towing is towing someone that does not want their car towed when you're trying to trick them into doing so, or you're trying to find a reason to tow them when they don't really need to be towed. I'm going to tell you about a predatory towing situation I got into. In the year 2000, I was visiting Las Vegas. I did not live in Las Vegas. In fact, I did not even play poker yet in the year 2000. But I was visiting Las Vegas, I think it was in early 2000. I was not even a blackjack card counter yet. I was a negative EV gambler, which I'm ashamed to admit at the age of 28, I was a negative EV gambler. Not a high stakes one, but I was a recreational, low stakes negative EV gambler. And I was aware of plus EV gambling, but was too lazy to learn it, which is shameful. But anyway, that's, uh, that was a situation in the early 2000s. So I was visiting Vegas with my then girlfriend, not anyone, any of you know, and I was about to go back to the hotel. I forgot where we were staying, maybe the Las Vegas Hilton or something, but it wasn't something like Center Strip, but we were at Center Strip And we were getting kind of hungry. And I said, oh, look, there's a McDonald's there. So I was going to pull into the McDonald's. And I uh, overshot their lot. Like, I didn't see the driveway. And I overshot it. And you know how the strip is. You know, to turn around on the strip and get back isn't like uh, just quickly flipping a U-turn and going back. I mean, this was going to take 10, 15 minutes to turn around and go back and get into that lot. So I thought, all right, well, we're going to do takeout here. We're just going to grab McDonald's to go and get back in the car and drive it back to wherever we're staying and we'll eat it up in the room. That was the plan. So uh, wherever I'm going to park is not going to be long. So I saw the very next lot after the McDonald's was something called the Polo Plaza, which is a little strip mall. This is on the strip. And It was called the Polo Plaza because it was right in front of the condo complex Polo Towers. Remember the Polo Towers? It's still there. But the Polo Towers in Vegas was once uh, a big deal. If you lived in the Polo Towers or if you lived in the Jockey Club in Las Vegas, at one point, you were a big deal in Vegas. At one point, that would impress people. Not anymore. These are all kind of uh, older now. Now, the Polo Towers is not quite as old, especially back then. It was uh, it was built in 92, and then the second tower was built in, in 95, so then it was semi-new. The Jockey Club goes back to the 70s, so that was more run down. But anyway, the, the Polo Towers in, in 2000, it, it still wasn't that big of a deal at that point. There were much uh, bigger complexes that had already been built by then. But anyway, you, you can still actually rent rooms there. 
for people who rent out their condos. But the Polo Towers, I, I guess the owners of it also owned that strip mall. They didn't own the businesses in the strip mall, but they owned the strip mall itself and called it the Polo Plaza. So I parked at the Polo Plaza that had everything closed by then. I think we're talking about 1130 at night, midnight, something around that. So every business in the Polo Plaza was closed, but it was a well-lit lot. It was empty. And I said, okay, let's just park here, go in McDonald's, do takeout, walk back out, and get back in the car and uh, and drive back to wherever we're staying. It's going to be like a you know, five, ten minute uh, period I'm leaving the car there. So that's what I did. There was a sign, I'm not sure if I saw it, saying that this is parking for customers only, tow away, but everything was closed. I, I wasn't taking up space that other customers could use. There was nobody else in the lot. And every single business in the Polo Plaza was closed. And I was going to be there for like five, ten minutes. So I parked. Again, I don't remember if I saw the sign or not. And my girlfriend and I walked out. And we walked to McDonald's and we got in line. And we were there a few minutes. And then I looked more closely at the prices. And I couldn't believe it. The prices were way inflated for McDonald's. And I said, whoa, 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 look at these prices. And I, I showed my girlfriend the prices. And she was like, ugh, I can't believe McDonald's is charging that. I said, I can't believe that either. I go, you know, this isn't worth it. I don't want to pay these prices for McDonald's. It's, it's not that we can't afford it, but let's, uh, if we're going to pay this, we might as well go somewhere a lot better. She says, I agree. So I said, okay, let, let's just get out of here. So we walked back. By the time we got back to the lot, I'd probably been gone a grand total of uh, five minutes. And I was shocked after being gone a grand total of five minutes that my car was on a tow truck being towed out of the lot. I was really shocked because I wondered how this could have happened. Even if they want to make the case that I was illegally parking there, how did they realize that I was illegally parking there? Who called this in on me? And how did a tow truck get down there on the crowded strip and get me up on the tow truck and out of the lot all in five minutes? How is this possible? So I started yelling at the tow truck. I thought this must be some mistake. I go, whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, wait, this is my car. And I'm chasing after the tow truck. And then this other guy runs out. This other guy, not in a uniform or anything, but some other dude runs out. Looks like he's uh, in his uh, mid to late 30s. Runs out and says, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on, sir. Hold on. Um, your car's being towed because it's parked illegally. I go, what do you mean parked illegally? He says, look at the sign right here. Says parking for customers only. I said, but but everything's closed here. There are no customers. Da, 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 da. You're not a customer because you left the lot, and the second you walk out of the lot, you're no longer a customer, and we have a right to tow you. And I said, so I started going off about how this is a scam. How uh, yeah, I knew right away what this was. I'd never heard of it before, but it was very obvious to me to figure out what this was, that, that, that they were obviously lying in wait. They must have hidden a tow truck there with someone also hiding to watch me. There must have been two people, one driving the tow, the tow truck who is skilled at getting cars up really fast on it. And there must be a guy watching for whoever parks there and leaves, and they grab it super fast where in five minutes they can have the whole thing up and out. So I told him it's a scam, and I started yelling at him, and he goes, whoa, 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 whoa. You watch your tone with me, because if you continue yelling at me and you continue arguing with me, 
we're not going to get your car back. It's going to go to the lot and you're going to have to go down there and pay weekend rates to get it back, which is like $254. Even if you get it back on Monday, it's going to be $178. I mean, whatever. It's like he said, it, I can do you a favor here and I can get this brought back for $55. If you uh, are going to continue yelling at me and, and accusing me of things, then uh, I'm just going to let him take it because that's my right to let them take it. I'm trying to do you a favor. I thought, what a freaking dick. What they really want is they want to save the trouble of dragging this all the way down to the lot, which might be pretty far. They want to hit another sucker because they only have one truck. That's what they're doing it for, I thought to myself. But still, I want my car back now. I don't want to have to go down to wherever their lot is and and pay $254 to get the thing back. Of course, I'd rather pay 55 bucks now, even though I know they're scamming me. Then I had a brilliant idea. I said, aha, I know what I'm going to do. I will pay them on a credit card and then dispute this. Well, I, of course, I didn't say that out loud, but I said, okay, well, you take a credit card? No, you have to pay cash. Well, so much for that idea. So I was seething inside. I was so pissed. I just, I felt angrier than Andy Stacks when Jenny Savage Leong shows up to play while owing him 6K. Nevertheless, I knew what I had to do. That was pay the $55 and get my damn car back. So I said, okay, I'll pay the $55. Will you give me a receipt? He said, yes. So I figured what I would do is report this to the police, that this is an obvious scam. This is a a predatory towing scam. I didn't know the name of it, but I knew what it was. I knew it was something that, uh, to me, couldn't be legal. How could uh, the police tolerate that uh, the the, the truck hides and that a person hides and instead of saying, hey, whoa, 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 you shouldn't be here, they wait till I'm out of sight and then quickly tow the car? This this sounds like a scam to me. So I thought, okay, they'll give me the receipt and I'm going to report them to the police. Well, naive me should have known that they wouldn't be doing this if the police would stop it. Obviously, tons of other people must have called the police by now on them, too. But I was not really thinking that way. I probably wasn't thinking straight. So they took my $55. They gave me a receipt. They gave me my car back. And I said to my girlfriend, I'm going to find a way to get this back. So I called the police when I got back to the hotel. And they said, oh, we're very familiar with this, and we're very upset about it, and we don't like it, but there's nothing we can do. This is technically legal. I said, what? How is it legal? They said, because as long as they have a sign up there saying that this is for customers only, and as long as you have left the property, by law, they are allowed to tow you. We don't like that they do it. We get these complaints all the time. This is a huge headache for us. We've asked them if they could stop this. They just said, no, it's their right to do, and our hands are tied. There's nothing we can do for you. So I said, oh boy, this is going to be harder than I think. The police are not going to help me. And technically the law is on their side, so I can't even sue them. I'm going to have to think, how do I beat this one? Now, before I go on, you may again think, Druff just does not want to face the consequences of his action. No one forced him to park in a lot that was not for the business he was visiting. And it was not his fault that he didn't see the signs that were well-lit and prominent. Not super prominent, but they were not hidden. That is for customers only. So, yeah, it kind of sucks that they had a tow truck waiting to grab him, but that was the chance he took. And my answer is no. That's not what towing is for. Again, towing is a last resort. Towing is not something that someone is enticed into and tricked into. The reason that truck sat there is because they know that on the center strip where parking is difficult to come by and where the lot is big and well lit and empty because all the businesses are closed that people are going to be enticed to park there and that they're not just parking people who are parking there the whole night 
that they're getting people up and out within five minutes because they know some people that are only going there for a few minutes and are going to leave and are causing no harm. And they're obviously seeing them doing it and they're not warning them. They're not saying, hey, don't park here. It's one thing if they say, hey, don't park here and you give them a middle finger and say, tough luck, I'll do what I want. And they tell you. That's one thing. If they hide and say nothing to you when they know you're parking when you shouldn't be and let you walk out just so they can tell you that is damn predatory and that's not what towing is for. So I said, I am going to get this money back somehow. I've just got to figure out how. So I thought about it. And after I got back, because I didn't live in Vegas at the time, after I got back to the L.A. area, I came up with a plan. I said, you know, I'm going to call the Polo Plaza because obviously they gave permission for this to be going on and maybe they don't know what's really happening here. And if they do, I'm going to threaten that I'm going to expose this, that the Polo Plaza is scamming their customers. I'll even call up all the businesses in the Polo Plaza and threaten them with bad publicity. I have a feeling I can pressure someone into giving me the $55 just to shut up. So... I researched who owned it, and it turned out that the Polo Plaza was owned by the Polo Towers. Okay, that made it even better, because now it wasn't just a little strip mall. It was a strip mall owned by a pretty prominent condo complex that is known in Vegas. So I thought maybe they'll even be more willing to uh, pressure the tow company into giving me my $55 back, or maybe even giving give me the $55 themselves. But I had to come up with a cover story. I could not say that I walked off the lot because then technically they would be legally in the right, even though I felt this was predatory. I, I did not want to give them the legal out here. So my, I had to come up with a story to explain why I was out of sight for five minutes. I couldn't say that I never left where my car was, or otherwise they couldn't have told me. I had to be away from my car, but not off the lot. So I thought about the way the place was laid out. And I realized there were some businesses in the back that everything you see right when you drive into the mini mall is not the entirety of businesses there. There were some businesses in the back that you'd have to kind of walk around it. So I decided that would be my story, that I parked and I was looking for some open businesses there. I wanted to see what there was to eat. Maybe there's some business in the back, I thought. So I walked to the back of the business, I claimed, even though I didn't. I I really did walk across the street to McDonald's, but that was not my claim to the Polo Towers. I said I was going to claim to them that I walked to the back of the business and uh, of the mall to see what businesses were open there. saw everything was closed, came back to my car, five minutes had passed, and they had my car on the tow truck already. And my argument was going to be, why are they towing people after five minutes? There's no justification to tow people after five minutes because I wasn't creating a problem. I was not filling up a lot. I was not uh, getting in the way of any business. Everything was closed. And it was only five minutes. They can't say that they uh, didn't want to have me all there all, there all night. They, didn't, they, they, they did it so quickly that just me walking around the property gave them enough time to tow me out. That was going to be my argument. So that was my argument. I called the, pol- the Polo Towers, and I spoke to the manager of the Polo Plaza. And this person, a, a woman, sounded like a woman kind of like in her 50s. She seemed receptive to what I had to say. And she said, I had no idea they were doing this. Let me tell you how we got involved with this tow company. We had a big problem that after all the businesses were closed, a lot of drunk people would congregate in our lot and would smash beer bottles and would sometimes vandalize the businesses and were just a a huge nuisance. But it would be very expensive to hire security 
between the time that the businesses close and when they reopen in the morning. To do that every day, seven days a week would be too expensive and we'd have to raise people's rent and they'd get upset. We were approached by this tow truck company that said they will provide security. They will not let people drink in the lot and smash beer bottles. They will chase anyone out that tries to congregate there. In return, they want the right to tow any vehicles that park in the lot because they're technically there unauthorized. And they were not going to charge them anything. Basically, they get paid by towing people who shouldn't be there. So it's free security services for them. And the ones paying for it will be the ones who are parking that really shouldn't be that lot anyway. I said, okay, I understand. It makes more sense now. But did you know they were towing people after five minutes? She said, no, we did not. I said, well, that's a big problem. Would you agree? She said, yeah, they never told me that. They said they're going to uh, chase people out who were causing trouble and that if anyone... Uh, uses us as a, a parking lot, basically, for uh, and, and leaves that they're going to tow them. But I had no idea in five minutes they get the cars out. That's, that's not what we wanted here. That's not, you know, she said, your argument is very legitimate that uh, it, no matter what's going on in five minutes, they should not be getting your car out of here because who knows what you're doing in five minutes. We, she said, I don't even care if you step off the lot. If you're here for five minutes, I don't give a crap. And they shouldn't either. And that's not, that's not what we're trying to do here. We, we don't mind so much if they tow cars of people who park there and leave for hours, but, but people leaving for five minutes, this shouldn't be happening. I said, well, it did. She said, I said, can, so what can we do about it? And she said, I'm going to talk to them. And I have a lot of leverage here because you know, they, they want this job. And I'm going to get them to give you your $55 back. So give me a chance. I'm going to talk to them. I bet I can get them to do it for you. I said, thank you very much. She said, no problem. Very good pr- conversation. So you may think that's where the story ends. No, 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 no. I wouldn't be telling this story if that's how it ended. So I didn't get a call back from her, even though she was very nice on the phone and understanding and agreed with everything I said to her. At least she claimed she did. I didn't get a call back. So I called back about a week later. I said, did you ever talk to them? She said, oh, yeah, yeah, I did. And here's the name of the manager of the tow truck company. He said to call him and tell him what happened and he'll refund your money. I said, oh, good. Okay. Well, thank you very much. She says, no problem. I said, can I call you back if, the, if there is a problem? She said, yes. So I called the tow truck company and asked for this manager. He gets on the phone. I explained the whole story to him. Of course, I claimed I stayed on property so they can't use a technicality to keep my car and not pay me back. And he said, okay, well, uh, we have cameras on the premises. So we're going to check the cameras. And if you didn't walk off property, like you say, we'll give you back the $55. I said, "Uh uh-oh, to myself, that is. They're going to see I walked off property. But I thought to myself, do I really believe that they had cameras there? And were the cameras necessarily pointed to where I was? I'm going to call their bluff, even though I wasn't a poker player yet. I will let them, quote, check this camera and see what they tell me. So he said he'd check the camera and call me back within 48 hours. Of course, I don't get a call back within 48 hours. I try and try and don't reach him. Finally, maybe about a week later, I get a hold of him. Oh, sorry, sorry, I didn't call you back. I've just been so busy here. I forgot. I'm really sorry. But anyway, uh, I'll let you know I did check the camera. And uh, you did walk off property. My heart sunk, but I thought, wait a minute. 
I had a feeling they might say this to me. If they're lying about having cameras, or if the camera didn't catch me, I had a feeling they're just going to say they saw me doing it, and I'm going to make them prove it. So I said to him, oh, well, I don't know how it caught me doing that. I wasn't walking off property, but okay, um, just to make sure that's me you saw, can you tell me if I was alone or if I was with somebody else? Remember, I was with my girlfriend then, but he didn't know that. I never told him who I was with. So he said, oh, well, you were alone. I said, really? I was alone? Yes. (laughs) Busted. So I said, nope. I was not alone. I was with somebody else. So obviously, whoever you saw walk off the property was not me. Now, what I felt like saying was, you're full of crap. There is no camera. But I just said it the more polite way. And he said, oh, well, I must have seen the wrong thing. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm going to check the camera again, and I will get back to you. I said, okay. He didn't call me back. Tried and tried to reach him. Maybe about 10 days later, I got him on the phone again. I said, so did you check the camera again? He said, yeah, um, I did check the camera. And yes, uh, you were right. The, the person I saw walking off before was not you, but uh, I did find you. And uh, yes, you were with another person. I said, really? So the person I was with, was it a guy or a girl? He said, uh, it was another guy. <laughs> this guy's not a very good guesser. <laughs> he's, he's 0 for 2 on 50-50 shots. I said, nope, I was with... Uh, my girlfriend and it was very clearly a girl so obviously that wasn't me oh yeah maybe i saw the wrong person again i'll call you i'll call you back wait 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 sir you you haven't called me back every time you say you're going to call me you're sure you're going to call me oh no no i really will this time i'm really sorry i'll call you this time i said okay doesn't call me back again very hard to reach him probably took about two weeks to get him on the phone again i don't know why i didn't call the manager of the polo towers at that point but uh i hadn't yet so I get him on the phone again after another two weeks. I said, okay, now did you check the camera? He said, yes, I did. I said, okay, and you saw me and a girl walk off property? He said, yes. I said, okay. What kind of car did I have? And what color was it? Uh, uh, um, um, and then he just took a guess at some random car. Wrong color, wrong make, wrong model. Nope. <laughs> I said, that is not my car. And the funny thing is, uh, even though he had what type of car I had, I believe, on the receipt, he didn't have that in front of him. Or maybe it wasn't written. Maybe it's just the license plate number. I think that's what it is. I think it was just the license plate number. He didn't write what type of car it was on the receipt. Something like that. Whatever it was made me ask him that, knowing that he may not know it. And indeed, he got it wrong. The next thing I was going to ask, by the way, was uh, what was I wearing? Because I actually remembered what I was wearing that night. And if he told me that I was wearing something that I was not wearing, at that point, I was going to say, okay, I, I want to see a picture of this. And then he was going to obviously not be able to provide one. But we never got that far. When he couldn't accurately describe my car, after the previous errors of saying I was alone and that I was with a dude, uh, I said to him, look, you know, you, it's, this is the third time where you say you've checked the camera and it was definitely me walking off property and then you give me the wrong details. So... I think here that either you aren't telling me the truth or um, you're just not looking for the right thing and for you're just not getting me and you're just picking any random you're finding on there and assuming it's me because he doesn't know what I look like. He doesn't, you know, he just hears my voice. He doesn't know anything about me. He was not the one who told me or was there. So um, 
and, and they do this to so many people. By the time I spoke to him, he didn't know which one I was. So a- anyway, um, he gave up at that point. He said, all right, all right, you know what? Um, fine, uh, you're probably right. You're probably right that we uh, don't have you on camera. So I guess uh, I'll have to take you your word for it that you never walked off property. We will refund you the $55. We'll send you a check. I said, okay, when are you going to send the check? So I'll put it in the mail tomorrow. It should be to you within a few days. I said, okay, thank you. Do you think I got the check? Of course not. (laughs) (sighs) So I called him back and I said, where's the check? He said, "Um, let me see. Oh, that's weird. I gave it to my secretary to send out, but it's sitting right here. I'm going to send it to you now. Okay. Wait, wait, wait. No check. Try to call him back. Can't reach anybody. This time it's a several weeks long. Yeah, I'm not getting him. I called back the Polo Towers and said, this is getting ridiculous. And I told the woman the whole story. At this point, she was not as friendly with me. At this point, she was a little bit combative. She was saying, look, I didn't have to do this in the first place for you. I tried to help. I got you in contact with him. This is really up to him. If you have an issue with them, you can sue them, blah, blah, blah. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. You told me that you did not want cars towed after five minutes. He said, yeah. She said, yes. And, you know, and I told them that and I expressed my concern. But, uh, uh, but really, this is an issue between you and them. And I did you a favor. I got you a hold of that manager. I, I told him to talk to you. Otherwise, there's, he probably was not going to. And, and I, I've done a lot for you here. I, I can't get in the middle of this. So I was getting really annoyed. But I, I was just about to go off on her and, and start making threats about exposing them. And I said, you know what? I'm, I'll, I'll reserve this. I'm going to wait. I'm going to go back to dealing with this guy. So I said, all right, well, I, I am going to call back again if, if I absolutely can't reach him or if he just won't send me the check. And she said, eh, okay, whatever, bye. And so like she, I, I could already tell that she wasn't going to help much more. Called back again. Finally got him. And he said, yeah, so uh, you're saying you didn't get the check? I said, no. He said, let me look into it and I'll call you back. I'm like, oh, no. Of course, he doesn't call me back. You have to chase him down, get him on the phone again, probably two weeks later. Can you imagine how much time is passing here? (laughs) All this for $55, but I was not going to let it go. Got him on the phone again. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You're right. We didn't send it to you because this had to come from our home office and our home office rejected it. They didn't understand the reason. They, they, they flagged it as a valid tow and didn't send it and didn't tell us. I'm like, oh my God, a home office? They didn't tell me about a home office? Like home office mean like in someone's home. They mean like the, the main office of their operation. Well, you're going to send me the check? The home office going to do it? Oh yeah, yeah, they, they will. Of course it doesn't come. Another three weeks pass get a hold of him after a lot of effort. Yeah, the home office never sent me the check, I tell him. He says, that's weird. I don't know why that is. I go, you know what? This is getting really frustrating because you know how many times you've told me you're going to send this check? You've told me I'm due the $55 and for some reason you're not sending to me. Every time it's a different excuse. And he says, look, I'm trying to help you. I'm trying I'm trying to refund this to you. You know, we, we never do this for anybody. You're the only one we've ever done this for. I'm trying to do you a favor here, and we're, we're having some issue getting you the check. So you, had to, you had to cut me some slack. And I said, I'm not going to use some slack. I was I was improperly towed, and, and you've promised me just, you know, this is $55. This is not big money you were talking about here. Just write me a damn check for $55. And he's saying, look, I understand your frustration, but you know this has to go through the proper channels. I will personally call the home office. 
I will make sure they send you that check. I will make sure you get it. It will happen this time. Okay? Didn't come. I bet you're tearing your hair out at this point like I was 21 years ago. So I realized something. I said, well, I'm never going to get this money unless I go down there myself and pressure them to give it to me in person. Now, I'm not going to drive all the way to Las Vegas for this, but next time I have a trip there this year, I will do it. So I traveled to Vegas in July of 2000, my next trip that I would have gone on anyway, and decided to make some time on one of the days, on a weekday, to drive down to that office and confront this manager, who I hoped would be in, and if he wasn't there, I was going to confront somebody else. But I determined that I was not going to leave until they gave me this check. So I drove down to the office in North Las Vegas, in a bad area of North Las Vegas. Not Northern Las Vegas, but the city of North Las Vegas, which is a different city than regular Las Vegas. So I went to North Las Vegas. I went to their towing yard. I walked in. I could not believe the scene. So it was a blazing hot day in July. It's a non-air-conditioned, or I shouldn't say non, but probably poorly air-conditioned small room, which is their office. There are tons of people crammed in there. Of course, it's in 2000. There's no COVID concern, but tons of people crammed in there online to get their car back. Or should I say inline, not online. And it's a long line of people, some of whom don't look like they can afford it. Some of these look like people who are living from hand to mouth, people who really, really need their vehicle and were scammed in some way into getting their car towed by these predators. But the saddest thing I heard was right behind me in line. I heard a teenage-sounding girl arguing with her mom. And I looked back, and there was a Hispanic girl arguing with her middle-aged Hispanic mom. And her mom was lecturing her that she doesn't know if they're going to be able to pay rent this month. They, they needed this money so badly. They can't afford to pay $178. How could she let this happen? So the mom was mad that the girl let the car get towed. So I was wondering, hmm, I wonder what her situation was. Well, her situation was much worse than mine. She said, Mom, what was I supposed to do? I parked the car there because um, and I, I left the lot because my car wouldn't start. So I went to go call someone to give the car a jump, sh- a jump start. I had to go across the street to a payphone. Remember, in uh, 2000, most people didn't have cell phones, especially people in the uh, lower and lower middle classes. So she went across the street to the nearest payphone. And this was actually during the day. This wasn't even at night after everything had closed. So I guess they're there during the day too. And she went across the street to use the payphone to call about her car that would not start. And while she was on the payphone, they rushed over, slapped her car up on the tow truck and pulled it out before she could get back over there to object. Her mom's still yelling at her. How could you let this happen? I don't care. How could you let this happen? And she said, what the hell was I supposed to do, mom? Bring the car on my back across the street? And the girl was crying. She was right. What could she have done? She didn't have a cell phone. Most people didn't have cell phones in those days. A lot of people in 2000 didn't have a cell phone. Her car wouldn't start. There was no payphone in the Polo Plaza. She had to leave property to use a phone. So what could she have done? And within five minutes, just like with me, she was towed. This was a lower-class family that couldn't 
afford this $178. And that's why her mom was freaking out. But this tow truck company didn't care. They just wanted their money for their predatory tows. I thought, wow, these are such pieces of shit. And I looked in line and these weren't people who looked like it could afford it. Most of them looked like people that were really going to be hurt by losing this money. Anyways, nothing I could do about that. So I get to the front of the line and I asked for the manager. I'm like, just with my luck, I bet he's not going to be here. I didn't announce I was coming because I knew if I did, he was going to tell them not to uh, see me, not to have them uh, bring me back there. But I figured if I surprised them, they wouldn't uh, know why I wanted to see the manager and they'd bring him right out. Well, indeed that worked because I asked for him by name. They said, oh yeah, yeah, um, we'll bring you right to him. So they brought me to him in the back. And I said, hi, I'm Todd Wittellis. Remember me? And he's like, um, no. I said, I'm the one you're supposed to send the check for $55. Uh, no. You know, the guy who you towed from the Polo Plaza by mistake, and you kept checking the camera, and it wasn't me. And then you keep saying you're sending me a check, and I don't get it. Um, oh, yeah, 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 I remember you now. This guy was like a heavy set white trash dude that looked like he probably spent some time in prison at some point in his life. He was the manager of this lovely business. And I said, well, can I have my check? I said, because obviously the home office you're talking about didn't send it. And I figured the only way I'm going to get it is if I come down here and ask for it. And he said, um, uh, yeah, okay. He said, wait a second. So he goes in some other room. And I'm thinking, I bet this fucker is going to come out with some lie or some bullshit of why he can't give me the check. And he comes out and he hands me an envelope and in there it says, pay to the order of Todd Wittellis, $55. That was like freaking gold in my hands. I got the check. The only question is if it's good or if they're going to stop it after I leave. So I said, all right, thank you. Walked out, got in my car, drove as fast as I could to the nearest bank that I banked at. I don't remember which one it was at the time, but whatever, a branch in Vegas that uh, I also had back in LA. And I ran in and deposited the check. And I held my breath that it was not going to bounce. And indeed, the check was good. And I had my $55, and the ordeal was over. Victory was mine. Victory is mine! But at what cost? A lot, a lot, a lot of time and aggravation that was nowhere near $55. I mean, I I never worked that hard for $55 in my life. I could have earned the 55 much more easily by going to work at McDonald's, even at the much lower minimum wage of those days, and it would have been more enjoyable. But I was not going to let them steal this from me. I was going to get it back. I was not going to let them get away with it and get away with lying to me and get away with uh, the, the check in the mail ploy. So here's the postscript to all that. Do you remember some years ago... There was a story about a a pretty female ESPN reporter where she was having an issue with a towing company. This was uh, in 2015. Her name was uh, Britt McHenry. She was an ESPN personality. And a viral video went around of her mocking 
a woman working at a tow company, and here's Britt McHenry, this pretty, blonde, white, young, probably fairly successful woman who's paid good money, and she's mocking this working-class woman who's kind of uh, overweight and dumpy-looking with bad teeth who works at a towing company and calling her names and saying all kinds of awful things to her. And this went around, and ESPN suspended her for a week, and it was thought that she might be fired. Also, social media, even 2015 social media, which isn't as harsh as it is today, boy, were they nasty to her. If there was a version of being canceled, she was getting it in 2015 before canceling was really a thing. And it was turned into a matter of class. Both people involved were white. There was no racial issue to it. But it was a matter of the pretty mean girl putting down the working class, plain looking woman just trying to do her job. The entitled pretty girl on ESPN deciding that the laws don't apply to her. Well, guess what? It was a predatory toe. And this footage that was released by the towing company was edited. And it was funny because when this was released, for some reason, nobody seemed to care that it was edited. For some reason, nobody seemed to care that it started with her yelling at the woman and calling the woman names, and you didn't get to see what preceded it. And I said, wait a minute. Why are they releasing a fairly lengthy video which starts exactly when Britt McHenry is going off? Why can't we see what preceded that? People made excuses. Oh, that would make it too long. It's long enough. I go, what do you mean? They can, they can release an edited version and then also have a link to the full version. Why do we only get to see the edited version? Why do we have no access to what happened before that when obviously the camera is running the whole way? I said, I have a feeling that before that, the woman was very nasty to her and very rude to her, and they don't want you to see that. They just want you to see her the reaction to this. That was the first problem. Second problem was that upon researching what this company was, this towing company, it turned out that it's a towing company that only does predatory tows. They do nothing else except predatory tows. So her car was predatorily towed in a same in a similar fashion to how mine was. And she came down there, argued with them about it, and then the woman got nasty to her, and then she got nasty back. So that's how it happened. It wasn't her going in and berating a, a woman who wasn't as pretty as she was, who was working class when she wasn't. That wasn't what happened at all. Now, because of the shitstorm that Britt McHenry endured, she put out an apology, which she shouldn't have. She said, in an intense and stressful moment, I allowed my emotions to get the best of me and said some insulting and regrettable things. I'm sorry for my actions and will learn from this mistake. Well, I guess you do learn from this mistake that you can't do things like going off on, on a worker if you're a famous person because it can always be twisted even if you were in the right. But she should have just been honest and said that this woman said a lot of nasty things to me first and they are conveniently not showing this. And furthermore, this is a predatory toe that uh, at least I can afford this. Uh, they, they victimize a lot of people who can't. But she didn't say that. I wish she did. Anyway, I had a debate with some people after this Britt McHenry thing, which happened 15 years after mine did. And I explained my situation at the time. 
And I had a lot of people telling me I was wrong. I had a lot of people telling me that the business owner has a right to tell you the second you violate their sign and step off the lot. And I said, that's not what towing is supposed to be about. And they insisted to me that I'm entitled. I think the world owes me. That I, I think business owners owe me free parking, even if they don't want me there. And that I think I should get no consequences because I want to use free parking at other businesses that I have no plans to ever visit. And how dare I think this way? How dare I be the entitled asshole that I am? They said to me. So I did some research. I said, I wonder if since 15 years ago, if maybe there are some laws to address this. Well, what do you know? There were. First of all, I found in my own state of California, the California passed a law to fight predatory towing that made it illegal for any towing company to tow you from a publicly available and free lot for one hour. So if you've been there less than one hour, that no matter what, they can't tow you, even if there's a sign. As long as the lot is open to the public and it's free. So that doesn't apply to going into a lot that you have to pay to park there and you don't pay. It doesn't apply to a lot that uh, has restricted access but just any lot that's just open and you can drive into and is free to park, even if it's intended that you're supposed to park there for the businesses, even if the businesses are open, even if they have a big parking problem, that no matter what, they cannot tow you until you have been there for an hour because they want to prevent predatory towing actions like this. They don't want people towed for walking across the street to use a payphone. They don't want people towed because they have to park there and and run into a business next door and leave within five minutes. That's not the spirit of towing and the state of California determined this and made this illegal and actually made it a full hour that they have to wait to tow you. You have to be in a legal spot. You have to be in a public lot. Public meaning open to the public, not publicly owned. And it has to be a free lot, but all that applied to what I was doing and to what Britt McHenry was doing. However, she was not doing it in California, nor was I. She was in, like, I think Massachusetts, and I was in uh, Nevada. But I looked at other laws. Now, at the time, I couldn't find Nevada, but I did find many other states that had even harsher laws against towing than California, such as Missouri, which said that 90 hours had to pass before they tow anyone in such a situation. 90 hours. I think that's too much. I think they should have a right to tow cars that shouldn't be there way sooner than 90 hours. But uh, I, I think one is fine. But I could see even more than one. But 90 too much, but it, it shouldn't be zero. Anyway, I researched and not all states had laws against it, but a number of states had addressed it and had passed laws against predatory towing. So this wasn't me being an entitled jerk. This is something that has been handled by various state legislatures since my problem occurred in 2000 when predatory towing was fairly new. That's why I hadn't heard of it yet. But this was the thing that ramped up a lot in the 2000s, and a lot of states took action. And this includes red states and blue states. It was states with all different political leanings, several of them agreed, and there's more and more each year that have agreed that predatory towing should not happen and that often it victimizes the poor and that it defeats the entire purpose for allowing towing of other people's vehicles. Another reason it's so bad, by the way, is that 
there has to be a pretty high standard for allowing someone to touch and take somebody else's property. There's a big difference between not allowing someone on your property and taking something of theirs that is on your property and then making them pay you to get it back. To allow someone to actually take possession of your property, there has to be a pretty good and extreme reason for it. And that that's really the rationale behind these anti-predatory towing laws, is that it's not just trivial for people to just take your car away from you. It's a pretty big deal to have your car taken. So just because you commit the ticky-tack violation of parking in a lot and stepping off property for a few minutes, that should not be something egregious enough to take your car because you're not causing any kind of immediate problem. And you should have the ability to come back and leave without having your car taken from you. By the way, there's even worse scams than this with predatory towing. There's the apartment expired registration tag scam where they give kickbacks to assistant managers and managers of apartment complexes and they drive around lots and they tow any car that has registration tags that are even one day expired. So if your registration tags say August 2021 and if it's September 1st, 2021, that means your tag is one day expired. You probably just didn't put the tag on yet. I'm sure you've probably done that before. Well, unfortunately, that triggers the, quote, abandoned vehicle law, because anything without current registration tags can be called an abandoned vehicle in many states, even though clearly it isn't. So even if the apartment complex knows that this is the car of the resident there, that is not abandoned, and that the tag is one day expired, because it's technically legal to tow, the towing companies get the permission to tow to uh, patrol the lot and to tow any car with any registration tags expired one day or more why should the apartment complex care about this this was happening in a complex i lived in in vegas by the way didn't happen to me because i actually had a garage there where they couldn't get into my garage i had a single car garage that i rented from them but uh one of my friends had his car towed and i i told him to really fight it and with, with the management there, but uh, he didn't have the same resolve to do it as I would have. So I could not force him to fight it. He just kind of angrily told me he didn't appreciate that and they didn't care because they're, they're getting their kickbacks. And then a short time afterwards, he kind of regretted not fighting it because he was uh, dating a woman who managed a different apartment complex in Vegas. She's like, oh, no, no, this is all over Vegas. Like the... Um, I used to work in a different complex where they were giving me kickbacks <laughs> to, to uh, let them do this. So that's definitely what's happening here. She said this is very common that they give the manager or assistant manager kickbacks to allow them to patrol the lot and take these cars. Because it has to be with management permission. That's why they have to get the kickbacks. Very, very, very shady. Should the apartment complex care if you have registration tags that are 100% up to date if they know it's your car and it's not abandoned? Of course not. Should you be towed for that? Of course not. Do they do it because the manager gets a kickback? Of course. Is this super shady? Yes. Do I think these people belong in jail for it? Yes. Don't just assume that when this happens that it's your fault. Don't find a way to blame yourself. Do I feel the slightest bit guilty for lying about not having walked off the lot? No. Why? Because it's a scam and I don't feel bad about lying to scammers to get my money back. They should not have towed me after five minutes. This is illegal in many states. So F them. I don't know if it's le- illegal in Nevada now, but uh, watch out for predatory towing, though. And if it's in a state where you don't know if it's legal or not, if it looks too good to be true, 
where you can park in a very congested area where uh, there's a wide open lot and for some reason nobody's parked there, probably shouldn't park there, especially in Vegas. Because I haven't kept up with whether that's allowed now or not. That's my predatory towing story on Druffy Time Theater. Oh, look who's here at the end of this story. Trader Risky, hello. I listened to the whole story, Druff. One point, I thought you were going to pay for a poor woman's rent or at least donate the $55 to it. <laughs> I have to say I was disappointed about that. Moment. You know what? I, I hate to say it, but you're right. Uh, <clears throat> you're right. I, I should have, but I didn't. I, uh, I I was so happy to get that $55. I, I sprinted out of the building to get to the bank. That, that was really all that was on my mind. But I remembered it. Like I remembered that girl and her mom, and I felt so bad for them. I, I, I felt bad. I just... Uh, what what overruled that was was just my uh, desire to get the fruits of my labor. But yeah, you know what? Had I thought of it, I probably would have. I felt very bad for them, and it, it really was the principle here. I, not, not not like Andy Stacks earlier in this, where he pretends it's the principle and it's really just to get his sixteen k back. Uh, for for me, it really was the principle. I would have never worked that hard for fifty five bucks. I never have worked that hard for fifty five bucks. It was insane how much time and effort I put into this. But uh, yeah, I, I got it. So. But yeah, I probably should have given it to that girl and her mom. You're right. I feel I feel bad now. I, I wish I could go back and, and give it to him. Exactly, and then you know, and then if you think about it too, it's like back then. How were they? Even, would they even be able to store all the video for more than like a day? No, I don't think there was video. I think they made the whole thing. And that's I I, I thought yeah. of all this. I'm like, I think there's a good chance they don't have video, or if they do, it, it's not going to be clear enough, or it's not going to be of me, or they'll have deleted it already. So I'm, I'm going to call their. I'm going to make them prove it to me, and. Uh, they eventually realized I wasn't buying it. It was funny how they took all these guesses, though, <laughs> especially about the car. Like, why even try to guess about the car? Well, Truff, well, they just feel like, you know, they, they just, who's going to spend this much time getting their $55 back? No, I think I'm the only person in the history of that company who ever got it back. I, I really do. I think there's nobody else who managed to do it except me. Because remember, they wouldn't even give it back till I went down there and, and got in the manager's face about it. So, like, well, you you know they probably got the calls all the time, and that's what they do. Okay, first tell them this, then if they say that, yeah. then we'll send the check. I'm kind of surprised they didn't just say to me, uh, "Sorry, we can't generate a check from here." I told you that. I was I was kind of surprised they didn't get that story. So kind of surprised the dude just walked away, and, and I, I was he was probably just sick of me by then. He's probably like, "Oh shit, this guy's now here in the office." <laughs> like, okay, fine, fine. Just here's fifty five dollars. Get the fuck out of here. That's probably what it was. Let's go to the next story, which is about Perlad Friedman. This is so bizarre. Uh, I, I've i talked about him to someone that I know who used to be in the poker community and really isn't, but someone that knew him doesn't even dislike him, someone who, who kind of likes him, not a good friend of his or anyone who really talks to him anymore, but someone who always liked him. And so they're, they're not all that receptive to my stories about him. But they, they told me he's doing this all for attention. They, they said the, he just loves attention. A lot of this is BS. Uh, and and I, at first I was telling you, said, no, 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 I don't think so. I think, I think he's really meaning a lot of what he says. I'm starting to come around that a lot of this is for attention and that a lot of this is just BS. I'm still going to report on it, but it's funny. But um, <laughs> And I don't know why he, like, he's getting attention in this way, but I do think that some of these stories are invented. But this this is crazy. This last one, you, you you think you think it's bad that he did this whole I'm bisexual and then nobody cares and they're like hey I'm bisexual why why did anyone respond to me I, nobody cared why why did nobody care I'm bisexual like I I thought that was bad enough that you had to come out twice to get people to give you the response that you want but this what happened this past week is far more bizarre 
I won't say worse because it's just kind of weird. It's not bad. It's just kind of weird. Uh, so he was posting a whole series of bizarre messages about what's going on in Brazil with him, like deciding to cross-dress basically. He's not even saying he's trans. This is what's so weird. He's like conflating the two. He he says he's bi and okay. He says, hey, who, who, which, which peeps are going to uh, rock a skirt with me on the gram or a, a dope skirt on the gram, <laughs> whatever he said last week, and saying that, uh, you know, why, why should people not be able to dress how they want? Well, that has nothing to do with being bi though. You, you don't have to be wearing skirts if you're bi. You could just be a, a dude who, who just likes men and women. That's what bi is. So I don't understand how the, the two are the same. And he's not saying he's trans. He's not saying he's trans or, or, or non-binary. He's not using any of those terms. He's just going, you know, why should I be able to wear a skirt if I want to? So then, he, And why should I be able to paint my nails bright colors if I want to? So he, he started talking about how uh, he's painting his nails, what color should he do, and then he writes this really bizarre tweet, which I can't read you because it's gone and I stupidly didn't capture. I've got to realize that Prahlad, you got to capture the funny tweets because he deletes half of them. But he wrote this really bizarre tweet after the whole thing of what color should I paint my nails? And most people aren't responding to this. He's got like a lot of followers and yet he's rarely getting answers to any of this stuff. Everyone just feels like really awkward, like they don't even want to engage. Like they're not even making fun of him. They're just not engaging. They just don't even know what to say to this. So the guy has uh, 18,000 followers, and he'll get like like zero responses to these, and like one or two likes or something. So, hey, what, what color should I paint my nails? I'm thinking maybe like a rainbow color. Should I do that here? I don't know. Like my, my daughter thinks I should, but I think it's my right to wear, make my nails however I want. It's really weird. So he, he goes on with this whole thing with his nails. Then he says that he's going to wear a skirt and going to go out in Brazil, where he claims to live now, where he probably does live, and he's going to go go out in Brazil wearing a skirt and having his nails painted, and that uh, he's going to do what he doesn't care what people think. Then he tweeted something, and I wish I still had this tweet, but it's gone now, but something like, yeah, you wouldn't believe it, but when I was walking down the street, I got no fewer than 20 death threats because I'm wearing a skirt and have my nails painted. I had to have three bodyguards with me protecting me. If I didn't have that, who knows what would have happened. It's dangerous around here to walk around like this. People aren't tolerant here. So I'm going, what? What? Is this true? Did he, did he really walk down the street in Brazil, whichever, whatever city he's in, and with bodyguards surrounding him while he's wearing a skirt with painted nails and got 20 death threats? 20 death threats? Not 20 insulting comments. 20 death threats, he said, and had to have his bodyguards around him. Good thing I can afford bodyguards, but most people can't. He's actually like saying, at least I can afford to do this, but most people who, who want to do this, they don't have the freedom to. So I, the, my immediate thought about this is, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why don't we have a picture of him wearing a skirt? Why don't we have a picture of him with the painted nails? Why? Why, why wouldn't he does videos of himself or pictures of himself? He, he, he doesn't have that stuff on. But yet he claims he walked down the mean street to Brazil getting 20 death threats wearing this. So for some reason, he's brave enough to walk down the street in Brazil with people threatening his life for wearing this stuff, but he's not brave enough to post a picture of himself in that stuff on Twitter. <laughs> like, if this is such a big event to him and he wants to make such a statement, why doesn't he have a picture taken of himself, have his girlfriend take a picture of him, and, and uh, post this up on Twitter and the gram? 
and show everyone, hey, I, I, I'm wearing a skirt and I don't care what you all think. I can wear whatever I want. It doesn't make me less of a man. Like, wh- why aren't we seeing that? Why do we only see him talking about it and not doing it? So I think maybe this person who told me that he is making this stuff up, yeah, I think they might have a point. I think that he's doing this for attention. And I think the bi thing might be true. He was talking last year about how he likes to kiss men. Now, we've seen no evidence that he's ever dated men or even had sex with men. Like, we've seen no evidence that's actually ever happened. He talks about it, but it's possible that's not even true. It's possible he isn't bi and just wants to say it so he, he looks uh, tolerant or looks different or isn't the, the, the heterosexual white male that he likes to always go off about being so terrible. So maybe this is to make put him in himself in a marginalized group that otherwise he would not be. Because if you look at it, he's white, he's wealthy, He's male, and if he's straight, then what does he have? Really nothing. He's, he's, uh, he's got all the privilege. So maybe that's not good. Maybe he's got to pick the only thing that he can say he is that is marginalized and claim that he's, uh, he's bi. He can't say he's gay because he's got a, a live-in girlfriend. Maybe he's even married to her now. I don't know. But he's been with this second Brazilian, young Brazilian girl in a row now. Uh, so he can't say he's gay, so he could claim he's bi. And I, I don't understand the cross-dressing part, though, because he's not claiming to be trans or non-binary or anything like that. So it's I think a lot of this is just being made up now. I don't know about the bi thing, but I, I think all this cross-dressing stuff is made up for attention. And it's really weird. Like, it's a really weird type of attention to seek on Twitter when you're over 40 years old. Really, at any age, but especially over 40. Like, imagine being over 40 and trying to get attention on Twitter by pretending that you wore a skirt and walked outside down the streets of Brazil and, and got 20 death threats. And again, if this is true, why didn't he take a picture of this? Why have we seen zero pictures of this? Uh, he, he's deleted a bunch of tweets along these lines. The only thing that still remains from that group of tweets was from September 8th at 9.40 a.m. Pacific. It's very dangerous in many parts of the world to be an activist. Many activists end up dead. I'm done. Sorry, world, but I got a kid. I'm a 100% straight man who loves pussy. We good? No more death threats? So you see what he's saying here. He's pretending like he's been intimidated into feigning that he's 100% straight, who, quote, loves pussy, and that now the death threats will stop. So it's kind of like a sarcastic comment, like, okay, guys, okay. It's, it's just dangerous in, in many parts of the world, including this one in Brazil, to be what you really are. So I guess from now on, I'm wink, wink, 100% straight, and now you guys are going to stop threatening me. But I, I don't think there's any threats. I don't think there's any skirt wearing. I don't think there's any nail painting. If there is, he probably takes the nail paint right off. I, I don't think any of this is happening. I think all of this is to get woke points on Twitter and to look edgy, which is weird. So Perlot, if I don't know if he ever hears this stuff I say about him, but if he hears this, let's see pictures of you in this stuff. And let's see pictures of you outside in this stuff. I guess now he doesn't want to do it. He claims it's, it's too dangerous. But let, let's see pictures on Twitter. Let's see a picture of you in a skirt on Twitter. Now, that still won't be proof that's what you normally wear because you could put it on for a second for a Twitter picture. But at least there'll be you'll be on record there on Twitter with a picture of you that can't be taken back. But it seems like all you want to do is talk about it. And it's just strange. And I'm only reporting it here because it's funny. I mean, it's, it's, it's weird and funny. And we, we've been following Prahlad's follies for years on this show. So, of course, I, I can't leave this out. What, what a strange set of tweets we're getting from him though he's just really going off the deep end and some people are responding to him saying you need to see someone for help like you need to get seen by a psychiatrist who needs to talk to you <laughs> like there's people saying that not me i can't respond because i'm blocked but uh there, there's people who are telling him that really like they think he needs help now here are some other tweets recently 
go listen to my demos on the gram the gram uh, progress that's progress is the name on there p-r-a-g-r-e-s-s tell me i don't only make hits if you don't like my music you don't like two billboard hits i don't know what that means simple i can sing in any key and beat right away then he does hashtag only hits hashtag i write hashtag i produce hashtag i mix hashtag i make beats hashtag autotune wizard i mean is that something to brag about you're autotuning uh, hashtag confidence immense hashtag connections hashtag i rap hashtag i sing hashtag best chorus creator ever <laughs> Jeez, there's more uh, hashtag speak fluent portuguese hashtag good looking hashtag can make anyone laugh okay i'll agree with that part Hashtag got mad swag. See, now you just made me laugh. <laughs> I, I see. Oh, you did it. You proved it right away. Hashtag every woman wants me. <laughs> I don't know what to say with this. Hashtag I will win a Grammy. Oh, my God. Hashtag end of story. Oh, this. And, and by the way, there's no responses to that. That, that group of hashtags. Right, well, let me see the responses to the the things about the gram, though. Uh, someone is, are you on any streaming platforms? Any live shows upcoming? And honest question, if you only make hits, why haven't you made any hits? That's a good point. I give credit to that person. I was thinking the same thing. What do you mean you only make hits? You don't have one hit yet. Maybe poker is fun. That's the closest thing he has to a hit. <sighs> so I, I guess he's past the cross-dressing thing and the buy thing. I guess we're back to, he's a great musician. <laughs> Oh, hold on. I'm sorry. I, I missed this one, guys. This is from September 8th. The, the same day he posted about uh, how he's a 100%, 100% straight guy who loves pussy. What are the odds I win a Grammy? So the odds that he posted were 5%, 1%, 12th percent, or 0.01%. What, what's sorely missing in those odds that he wins a Grammy is... Zero point zero. Yeah. That's what I would choose, but I can't choose this. Obviously, I'd choose 0.01%, which is the lowest one by far. 0.01% out of 489 votes got 87% of the response. <laughs> I mean, this is like self-ownage. This is self Why would he post a poll like that? Does he really think his fans are going to be that supportive to tell him there's a 12% chance he wins a Grammy? Or even a 1%? Like... I'm surprised he even got 13% of people saying that. He, you know, he got uh, 87% of people saying his chances of 0.01% only because they couldn't choose zero. It's almost like he just wants people to bash him. It's like he, it's like he's a masochist. Someone named Gedge LT responded to that saying, from the music I've heard so far, I'd say zero. <laughs> and, and the response from him was, looks like you don't know what hits sound like. Well, I, I think they do, because you don't have any. I don't know if he's just trolling everybody. Maybe I'm the fool here by reporting on this stuff when he's just doing it to get people riled up and to get people talking about him. I've seen in some uh, videos he's made of himself what he really looks like these days. He's not wearing skirts, and he doesn't look like a woman. He has dyed his hair blonde. You know, before he was never blonde. He's like, I guess at one point, kind of light brown or dirty blonde, mix of light brown. But now he's just dyed his hair almost completely light blonde. You can see the brown roots, though. Uh, he's got a beard. And uh, he's got pretty thick eyebrows now, for some reason. But uh, 
here's him talking in this video. I don't know what he's going to say. Let's, let's just uh, hit the video. It says, uh, been about a minute by progress. If you don't work with me now, you're going to be begging to work me with me later. Facts. Like, does he really believe this? Does he really think that he's highly in demand? This rapping white boy who's 43 years old in Brazil? Like, I, I don't know why he thinks that he'd ever be in demand. But okay, let's listen. A long time and you know Oh I don't know why you let go This is like him lip-syncing some music he did. Like I, I, I didn't want to do it. Seven seconds is too much. I thought it was going to be him talking. Just him lip-syncing. He's lying down on a pink pillow and lip-syncing. This is very weird. That's your Prolot update for the week. I mainly did it because of the weird story about the death threats on the mean streets of Brazil wearing a skirt where we don't have a picture of him wearing a skirt. Very convenient. But yeah, I think a lot of this is just acting. All righty, let's move on to our next topic we have on the agenda. I get a lot of people always requesting Prolot updates, so I had to give one. Again. There is a weird proposal on the table to require banks to report transactions, total transactions, not just individual transactions, for $600, and that if this proposal becomes law, then every bank and every payment app like PayPal and Cash App will have to make these reports to the IRS. Now, Trader Ruski, have you heard about this? I have not. But I mean, six hundred bucks, like for business, if you pay someone over six hundred, you have to ten ninety nine them. So no, but this this is total six. This is six hundred total. This is not six hundred uh, in in one transaction. Right, but it's. I mean, I know for businesses, this is within the calendar year, or not? Yeah, within the the calendar year. Okay. Well, so, so but have you heard about the recent change or not? Oh no. Okay. Well, so I, I, let me uh, explain this further and. Uh, this is really disturbing some people, and I'll give you my reaction after I explain what's going on. A lot of people are confused by this. Some people think it means that uh, every time you do a cash transaction of 600, you're going to have to fill out forms, or that if you hit uh, anything over 600 at the casino on a machine instead of 1,200, it's going to be 600 now that they're going to have to fill out. They're going to have to do hand pays for you, and Vital Vegas will be mad if you don't tip, and then uh, uh, maybe even if you win... Uh, if you go bring chips to the cashier, if it's more than 600, they have to fill out forms for you. And some people think this will be a disaster. Well, no, it's not quite that bad. Let me explain what's going on, and then perhaps you'll understand better. This, first of all, is not the law yet. This is something that is proposed. On home.treasury.gov, it says, introduce comprehensive financial account reporting to improve tax compliance. So right away, we can see what this is about. This is a way to prevent tax tax dodging. But what are they actually doing? It says, current law. Business income is subject to limited information reporting. Current information reporting of gross receipts exists only for types of revenue from forms 1099-MISC, 1099-NEC, and 1099-K, and there's no information reporting on total deductible expenses. So what does that mean? What that means is that other than where there's actual tax forms required to be filled out, like what Trader Ruski just talked about. We're talking about for business now. That there is no way for the IRS to keep track what money is going in and out of the business without having to 
audit the individual business. They have no way to just quickly look at what the business is, is doing financially other than what has to be reported on those forms. So then it says reason for change. The tax gap for business income outside of large corporations from the most recently published IRS estimates is one, estimates is $166 billion a year. The scale of this revenue loss is driven primarily by the lack of comprehensive information reporting and the resulting difficulty identifying noncompliance outside of an audit. While the net reporting, misreporting percentage is only 5% for income subject to substantial information reporting, the net misreporting percentage for certain categories of business income exceeds 50%. So what does that mean? Well, similar to what I just said, that unless they find a business that they want to target that they think is cheating on taxes and underreporting, that they have no way to just crunch numbers and figure out which businesses are pulling this. So they don't know who to suspect. And that they have no way to, on a mass scale, identify which businesses are doing this, and they think that more than 50% of businesses are under-reporting categories of business income. So it goes on to say, requiring comprehensive information reporting on the inflows and outflows of financial accounts will increase the visibility of gross receipts and deductible expenses to the IRS. Increased visibility of business income will enhance the effectiveness of IRS enforcement measures and encourage voluntary compliance. Now, you may say, okay, sounds like this is aimed at small businesses and maybe medium businesses, but uh, I don't have a small or medium business, you may say. Why should I care? Well, listen to the proposal. You'll see why you should care. The proposal would create a comprehensive financial account information reporting regime. Financial institutions will report data on financial accounts in an information return. The annual return will report gross inflows and outflows with a breakdown for physical cash transactions with a foreign account and transfers to and from another account with the same owner. The requirement would apply to all businesses and personal accounts from financial institutions, including bank, loan, and investment accounts, with the exception of accounts below, below a low de minimis gross flow threshold of $600. Go stop here. So first of all, you heard the personal part. So it's not just that aimed at business. It's aimed at all bank accounts and all pseudo bank accounts, like things like Cash App and PayPal, where money flows through. Furthermore, that this isn't about just tracking large or medium transactions. This is about tracking all transactions and forcing these financial institutions and pseudo-financial institutions to report everything unless the account has a total transfer of money of $600 per month or less. So let's say you transfer $100 seven times. Well, you've exceeded it and it's going to be reported. Now, you may say, wait a minute, how am I going to fill out forms for all this? This is going to be a tremendous form burden. No, it won't be because you're not going to fill out forms for any of this. This is going to be invisible to the individual and to the business. They're not going to fill out anything new. It's going to be the bank doing automated reporting. The bank is also not going to have to sit there filling out forms. They are going to have automated reporting to the IRS that gives all this information to the IRS, which the IRS then can process. The IRS will have a huge clump of new data that they can use to analyze who they think is underreporting their income, whether it's small business income, medium business income, or personal income. And this is a new way to identify tax cheats without having to look at tax forms and see if they match with the tax returns file and without having to count on tips 
or uh, other means where they identify tax cheats. This is where they can do it through number crunching by basically looking at what you're doing with your bank account. Now, that is pretty important, wouldn't you say? And also it says similar reporting requirements would apply to crypto asset exchanges and custodians. Separately, reporting requirements would apply in cases where taxpayers buy crypto assets from one broker and then transfer the crypto assets to another broker and businesses that receive crypto assets and transactions with a fair value of more than $10,000 have to report such transactions. The secretary would be given broad authority to issue regulations necessary to implement this proposal. This proposal will be effective for tax years beginning after December 31st, 2022. What they mean is that this would start being a requirement on January 1st, 2023, which sounds far away, but actually is only about uh, 15 and a half months from now. Now, it's possible this would be delayed even if it is implemented because there is a new pretty heavy burden on the banks to have to reconfigure their systems to do such reporting because it would be automated. It wouldn't be something a human being would be doing. This would be an automated thing that the computer system is doing. It's just shipping a ton of info to the IRS that they did not used to have access to unless they requested it. The IRS does have the right to request banking information about you if they're looking into you, but they at the moment do not have the ability to just uh, request mass banking information from ones they do not suspect of any kind of tax cheat. They can't just say, give us all your banking information of everybody at your bank. They can't do that right now. So this doesn't quite take it that far, but close. So that, that's basically what this authorizes, which uh, some people are disturbed by, and some people also don't understand this and are disturbed for the wrong reasons. The Biden administration says that they estimate that the country could get $200 billion to $350 billion in extra tax revenue, which basically means they're going to make far more than $100 billion per year. This is very aggressive. This is very, very aggressive. And not everybody's for it. Mike Crapo, and yes, that's a real name, Mike Crapo, a Republican of Idaho, a U.S. Senator, and he's the ranking member of the Senate Finance Committee, filed an amendment that would have thrown out the proposed rule when the uh, infrastructure deal was under uh, discussion. This was part of the infrastructure deal. Uh, Republicans voted for against it and Democrats Democrats voted uh, or de- Republicans voted to scrap this part of it and Democrats voted against scrapping this part of it, but they didn't have enough votes to make it happen and it failed. So at the moment, it's not law yet because it failed when it was they were trying to put it under the infrastructure bill but it's not dead so they're attempting to still uh push through this proposal and uh it's not clear where this is going to go if it's going to really happen or not but this is getting some people upset there's also some concern that this is putting an unfair regulatory burden on credit unions and small community banks which don't have the resources to be able to do such reporting. And it was said that new software would have to be written to about 100 different data processing programs to make all of this work, and that these smaller banks simply can't afford to buy all of this new software. Also, there's fear that 
what people will do if there's this if there's these very prying eyes into all banking transactions is that businesses that wish to dodge taxes will simply migrate to places where there's no reporting such as not depositing much into banks storing in uh, foreign bank accounts or doing other things to avoid this sort of reporting the biggest concern in my opinion was also expressed and i'm not sure if you've thought of it yet but what about privacy if the government sees all these transactions you're doing, if you do transactions over $600 per month out of your account, which is not hard to do, I don't mean $600 individual transactions, I mean add them all for the month if it's more than 600 that they have to report everything you've done and who you've been transacting with, that would be a massive, massive data dump that the government's holding on to about every one you do business with and every one that you uh, pay money to personally through the banking system. Now, how would you like a gigantic database of that that holds all of this? What if it were to be breached and people could see and the the hacker could see everything about your life? Every dollar you ever pay through your bank account can be exposed. So Doug Trotsky, who's the CEO of Community Powered Federal Credit Union, said that the vast majority of accounts at that credit union will have to be reported. He said only a small portion have less than $600 in transactions. I'm sorry, it's not per month, it's per year. Wow, I didn't know that till now. It's 600 per year. That's, that's really offensive. So yeah, it's just about everybody. He said, uh, you know, there's been a lot of breaches of data. If the government houses all data, how are they going to keep it secure? Is there potential for someone to leak that information or to hack that information? You know, that's a big concern for me, he said. That's a big concern for me too. There's been a lot of data breaches. He's right. There's been a lot of hacks, including at the government level. Even the Department of Defense has been hacked. So do you really want the government just having all of this in one place? You may say, well, yeah, but banks have been hacked. That The same thing has been found. Well, yeah, individual banks have been hacked. But can you imagine if this gets hacked and all the financial transactions by everyone everywhere and every business everywhere is just open to the public? It's a gigantic privacy violation. So I see what they're trying to do, but I really think this is very, very much a government overstepping authority. It it really is along the lines of, we're going to watch your every move. We're going to watch everything you do and every one you transact with. And if you're not doing anything illegal, what are you worried about? And you're like, well, I'm, I'm worried about you watching everything I do. It's none of your business. And I'm worried about this information falling into the wrong hands and being abused. So that's pretty offensive. That's something that really should be alarming people. And there's many reasons to be against it, even if you are not cheating a bit on your taxes. You can't just trust that the government will keep your data secure. And you can't just trust that it will be used for proper purposes. Also, how would you like if this information is breached or leaked and then used to market things to you? Wouldn't that be disturbing if you bought something and all of a sudden you start getting advertisements for similar products and you go, how did they get that information? I thought the company I bought it from is, is very insistent they never give out customer information. And it turns out they didn't and it was a leak from the government. Or what if you start getting blackmailed? 
What if you bought things that uh, are embarrassing products and that you wouldn't want people to know about that you bought? Nothing illegal, but just something embarrassing you wouldn't want made public on social media that when you're Googled, people will see you bought this product. You want the government holding that? So this, this, this is something that I don't like at all. And I understand what they're going for. I understand that they're saying that businesses pay taxes based upon what they say they've earned and what business they say they've done. And we have very little way to verify this and that over half of them cheat on this, maybe even far more than that. And that only the large corporations uh, report this fairly accurately. You know, everything can't be perfect. Sometimes the cure is worse than the disease, and that's the case here. Even if everything they're saying is true, that this is vastly underreported by small and medium businesses, and even if they're saying, and even if there is 200 to $350 billion in taxes that should be paid and are not, that doesn't mean that a massive violation of privacy is the answer to this, even if it solves the problem. It creates a bigger problem. Furthermore, why are they doing this to personal accounts? If it's a business problem, then look at the business accounts. Now, the answer back could be, well, then people will funnel this through their personal accounts. But this is where you get the problem. And every way to try to stamp out the problem, you have to violate more and more privacy. So eventually the IRS says, yay, we've collected the proper taxes that everybody's supposed to pay. And we see everything about your life. And if there's ever a breach, then everything about your life will be known. Happy? No. So I do not like this at all. It may never become reality, but it is uh, being talked about. It is currently a uh, federal proposal. And it was ripped from the $1 trillion infrastructure bill that uh, didn't remain there. So they're trying to push it through on its own. Yeah, that's that's a big problem. (laughs) I don't, I'm surprised a lot of Democrats are supporting this, to be honest. I remember when Democrats used to care about privacy. What happened to those days? I want to talk about an interesting proposal that's on the table about a city of 5 million people that is proposed for the middle of the desert where currently nobody lives. <laughs> Now, in a recent show, we talked about a little town that was purchased called Desert Center. And it was purchased by an individual. But we're not talking about something like that. We're talking about the construction of an extremely modern, in fact, futuristic city that is planned to be a 5 million population major center. And that it's going to be built in the desert where presently nothing is. So here's the story with that. Billionaire Mark Lohr has put out a vision for a 5 million person, what he calls New City in America. And he has hired a very famous architect to design the city. And... It's like a super master-planned city that originally will start off with a smaller population, but is supposed to 
be built to grow to eventually have 5 million people. This is not an attempt to modernize or expand an existing city, but to find some out-of-the-way desert location where there currently is nothing, either in Nevada, Utah, Idaho, Arizona, or Texas, and to build the city there. They promise 150,000 acres of eco-friendly architecture, sustainable energy production, and drought-resistant water systems. Because you may say in the desert, how are they going to get water there? They're going to make what they call a 15-minute city design, which will allow residents of the city to get to anywhere else in the city within 15 minutes. So no more long commutes, even in a city with 5 million people. They released some digital renderings, and this is by the architecture group called the Bjark Ingels Group, with the acronym BIG, B-I-G, B-J-A-R-K, Bjark Ingels, I-N-G-E-L-S Group. They did some drawings of the city. It looks really very futuristic. It looks like something that you would picture a city looking like in the year 2200 or something, like long after all of us are dead. This is not for the year 2200. This is for something fairly soon. And the iconic figure would be what they call the Equitism Tower, which has elevated water storage, aeroponic farms, and an energy-producing photovoltaic roof that allows it to share and distribute all that it produces. And uh, on this picture I'm looking at now, and you can see this in a CNN article, by the way. If you if you type in uh, CNN Mark Lore, which is L O R E, maybe it's Lore. I don't know. Uh, you can uh, New City. You can go to this article and see the picture of this uh, futuristic-looking place in the middle of the desert. You can even see this building they're talking about. They're going to build the first phase with one percent of the intended residents, fifty thousand residents for $25 billion. And then they're going to expand to uh, for another uh, $375 billion, I guess by today's dollars, to uh, eventually house uh, $5 million, which is the target population. They claim that the funding for this will come from various sources, such as private investors, philanthropists, federal and state grants, and economic development subsidies. When will this get going? They claim very soon and that they are going to welcome the first residents, the first 50,000 residents in 2030. Well, I don't think it's going to happen, but good luck. They said that they're going to have transparent governance. Yeah, especially good luck with that. And a new model for society It's going to allow residents to participate in the decision-making and budgeting process. Yeah, good luck with that, too. (laughs) And that uh, a community endowment will offer residents shared ownership of the land. (laughs) I can't imagine a lot of this working. Lore, Lore, whatever his name is, uh, described it as the most open most fair and most inclusive city in the world. You may wonder, who is this guy? He founded Jet.com 
sold it to Walmart, and then joined Walmart as the head of e-commerce five years ago. But earlier this year, he decided he's quitting Walmart and that uh, he's going to be working on a reality TV show and building a city of the future. The city is going to be called Telosa, T-E-L-O-S-A, and it is from the ancient Greek world, ancient Greek word telos, T-E-L-O-S, which is, was used by Aristotle to describe an inherent or higher purpose. This sounds very pretentious to me. So he says that capitalism has significant flaws and that the land ownership that, the, that America was built on is flawed. He said cities has, have been built to date from scratch and they're more like real estate projects. They don't start with people at the center. Because if you start with people at the center, you immediately think, okay, what's the mission and what are the values? The mission of Telosa is to co- create a more equitable and sustainable future. That's our North Star. Well, that's very sweet. Bjark Ingels, the Danish architect who is the founder of BIG, said that Telosa embodies the social and environmental care of a Scandinavian culture and the freedom and opportunity of a more American culture. Well, I don't know. It doesn't sound like a lot of freedom and opportunity there. It sounds kind of like uh, everything's very controlled. So it's, it's not the... And so that that is the plan they have here. And the question is, will this ever come to pass? I still don't understand the water thing. They said it's a drought-resistant water model. Okay, but where's the water going to come from? It's got to come from somewhere. They are purposely building it in the desert, which is weird. Maybe they think they can come up with some way to capture water that falls in the area and store it somewhere better than we currently do. But they don't really go into how they're going to manage to do this, especially for 5 million people. 5 million people suck up a lot of water. Even if, even if they're living in what looks like by this model an area that isn't very large and with a lot of skyscrapers, which uses up less water because there's less landscaping and a lot of less use of water in common areas. But, but still, you have 5 million people using up water, even just for showering and drinking and, and, and washing. So uh, there's... And, and you know, usage of the toilet, there's going to be a lot of water used and it's going to run out real fast if, if it's got to be just in the middle of the desert. Even Las Vegas is supported by Lake Mead. But this, this is not going to be supported by any existing lake or any existing uh, reservoir. They don't really explain how they're going to do this and how they're going to prevent drought issues from really screwing them. They claim there's going to be uh, sustainable energy production and uh, eco-friendly architecture. I-, I don't know what they mean by eco-friendly architecture. If it's the middle of the desert, what are they worried about? What, what, and what even is eco-friendly architecture? But uh, sustainable energy p- production, I mean, maybe. Maybe something like a lot of solar panels, I'm not sure. But I, I think the water is a, a huge problem there. But even the energy could be a problem if there's 5 million people. 50,000, yeah, I, I guess they could get enough uh, solar panels to be able to power the city, especially if done in an efficient manner. The whole thing to me sounds a little bit too much like a pseudo-utopia. It's one thing to say we're going to build a very modern, in fact, futuristic city in the middle of nowhere and kind of start from scratch. We're not going to build on what already exists. We're going to be able to start new and make it better. It's kind of the same concept of 
why in Vegas, when they want to build a new mega resort, even if there's an existing large hotel there, they will often knock it down rather than renovate it because sometimes building fresh is cheaper and better and uh, just looks a lot more modern than trying to renovate something that's already standing that's older. So I can understand kind of what they're going for here from that standpoint. And I can even understand that if they plan a city really well, rather than just kind of haphazardly expanding as it gets bigger, that they can bring down commute times and efficiently design it to where people can get within the city in a short period of time. And maybe they can bring some sort of uh, futuristic public transportation system to the table which uh, enables that even more. But some of this seems way too ambitious, and especially the government format they're talking about sounds like something that sounds good as you say it, but would never work in practice, especially something very large. The larger a city gets, the more bureaucratic it naturally gets, and the, the more natural problems develop with any kind of large government. And some of these just can't be avoided. And there are also going to be questions about what freedoms people will have and how that will match with current law in the state they're in and even with U.S. law. They can't just uh, make all their own rules and laws and decide that it's going to be the utopian society where they control everything. They're, they're, people will have certain individual rights that may conflict with what they want the city to be. I don't know how they're going to handle all of that. They also haven't explained how they're going to handle people from the outside visiting who may not be on board for a lot of these ideas and could cause problems. They also haven't explained what is going to support this city, what industry is going to be there, how they're going to deal with potential pollution issues or traffic issues or other issues that can come up when uh, large businesses come to the area. You know, where are 5 million people going to work? I guess some of them could telecommute, but I can't imagine a city of 5 million where everybody telecommutes. Uh, there's there's going to have to be probably some kind of, uh, there's going to have to be a lot of physical production. Then food, where are they going to get food from? Where's all food going to be to f- support 50 million, or 5 million people or even 50,000 people? They're not talking about building any farms nearby or what, what could even be produced on the land around there. And if they're not producing any food there, where's it going to come from? They're going to have massive amounts of food trucked in from uh, other locations. I mean, I guess if they're along an interstate, I guess it can be done. But I guess it also depends how remote they are. Is this going to be something you can just go to off an off-ramp, off of I-15 or I-40? Or is this something that you're going to have to follow a long road to get to that's going to start making things a lot more expensive to bring there? There's just several things off the top of my head that I think could be a challenge here. Do I believe this is actually going to happen by 2030? No. It's incredibly ambitious what they believe they're going to get done in nine years. Do I think it's going to exist at all? I think probably not. Do I think that something like this will ever exist, 
even long after all of us are dead. Well, it's possible. I remember as a kid, and even as not so much of a kid, but uh, you know, teenager and young adult, and I would be in the car and my dad would be driving to Vegas or somewhere that requires us to pass through the desert. And I remember looking at all the open space and I say to myself, you know, I wonder if one day this is all going to be filled. I wonder if all this open land that they're doing nothing with will one day be filled up with people and buildings and houses. And even if I'm not alive to see it, if this will be what they have to do to accommodate the ever-growing world population and even growing U.S. population. And I had thought about, as we were driving the challenges, about energy and about water and about food and about an economy. And my head started to hurt thinking of all that stuff, and then I would just drop it out of my mind. But I, I would think about this sometimes as we pass that. I don't think about it quite as much anymore when I pass it myself, I guess because I'm the one driving. Hello again, Trader Ruski. My bad. Okay, so yeah, so I'm, I'm the one driving, and I don't think of it as much, but I've, I've had this thought. Trader Ruski, you probably see on my screens, I'm generously sharing my screen with you. Uh, you see a picture of this city up there? I do. What do you think of this? Do you, can you picture this, anything looking like this in nine years? You know, <clears throat> nine years seems a little aggressive, but... Uh... I like some of the ideas behind it, and some I think are unrealistic. Yeah, well, it'd be interesting to see. I'd love to see him attempt it. I'd like to visit this place if it existed. If like if this came to be like into the picture, or even somewhat like the picture, I believe me, I'd go there and take a look at it and spend a little time there, see how much I like it. But uh, yeah, I think some of this is unrealistic, and especially nine years. What's also weird is that they, they show things in the air, almost like this isn't supposed to be in <laughs> nine years. It almost looks like just... Uh, like these aerial vehicles that are flying around. Like, what the, what the hell are those? It's just the people can be traveling by plane within that city where everything's supposed to be within 15 minutes. I, I don't get that either. What those are supposed to be? Just, just like supposed to make it more futuristic because in the future everything's supposed to be in the air, like in the Jetsons? I don't get that. But I, 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 these are just drawings, so who knows? Well, there's, there's a lot in ag tech going on where they build kind of these horizontal type or vertical type farms that grow upwards and you know so maybe they have a lot of i don't know things built into it i haven't looked at it too much i've heard about it vaguely over the last month or so but yeah there's been talk of this recently in fact this was in vegas news that's how i found it that because not that it's going to be in vegas but because it's being talked about as possibly something they're going to place in the nevada desert somewhere maybe won't be that far from vegas so this this is all possible. That's not too far from that area. So they they start they're recovering it. We'll we'll see if this goes anywhere. It's very possible it's going to go nowhere, and it's something we're going to look back on in ten years and go, whatever happened with this? Oh yeah, yeah, they never started this. I think there's a good chance that's going to be the case. And of course, they've got to arrange funding. They think they can get funding, but thinking you can get funding and actually getting funding are two different things. So I don't know. It, there's something that someone wants to do. The thing that interested me interested me the most of all this was really just the whole thought of placing something large with a ton of people in the middle of the desert where there's nothing, which I've always wondered if it's going to happen and, and when. 
Or is this land just going to forever sit empty? It seems weird to me sometimes to see how you have a lot of stuff crammed in and then you go north of Los Angeles and then you get past uh, Santa Clarita and then there's very little for about 30 miles. Then you get to Lancaster and Palmdale, Palmdale, you get a bunch of stuff again. And then you pass that and there's nothing for a very long way. There was a belief in the 90s when Lancaster and Palmdale, which are desert towns in California, which again are north of Los Angeles, there was a belief that that area was expanding so rapidly that it wasn't going to be all that long until it expanded far enough south to reach the Santa Clarita Valley, to where basically once you get into the Santa Clarita Valley of, of Newhall and, and Valencia and Canyon Country, that you just keep going north and have city after city after city, which would connect with Palmdale. But it never happened. There's still a, a pretty large space where there's very little in between the north end of the Santa Clarita Valley and the south end of Palmdale. And I'm just talking now about Southern California. This isn't even being considered for California. I'm just mentioning that was the that was one of the stretches of desert I had wondered, like, when is this going to fill up in between? And even that hasn't happened yet. The, at one point, there was a boom in that area in Lancaster and Palmdale, and that was mainly driven by the crime of the 80s and early 90s because it was cheap out there, and a lot of families in the inner cities of uh, the inner city of Los Angeles and other bad areas in the Los Angeles uh, region thought, you know what? Let's get our kids away from the gangs and all the crime and all the bad influence, and let's move to this area in Lancaster and Palmdale, and you know we'll sacrifice for our kids and drive to our jobs in L.A. It's going to be a drive both ways, but at least the kids will grow up in an area free of all that stuff. Well, it backfired a little bit because enough people did this to where new gangs formed in those areas. Not as bad as, the, as, as parts of L.A., but uh, those areas became problematic in some ways too and then now everybody had to drive a long way to work and and it's still like that to this day you 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 have to leave extremely early in the morning to get to work from palmdale if you live in la i'm shocked people do it like you uh, people take hours to get there or you have to leave ridiculously early before traffic starts when i say ridiculously early i mean like from 4 30 a.m and just get to work super early and and hopefully you're allowed to work those hours but if let's say your work starts at 8, you're kind of screwed because if you leave at 4 a.m., you won't have the traffic, but then you'll get there hours early. And if you leave at 5.30, you're going to hit terrible traffic and sit in two and a half hours of traffic to get to work. So it's a no way to win doing that. And then going back home, it's the same thing. They've tried to add carpool lanes and stuff like that, but uh, it, it, it really hasn't done very much. Those get backed up too. So I actually have to watch out for that when I drive between L.A. and Vegas that I don't run into that. Either then there's there's two places it happens in in uh, Southern California. There's the San Bernardino area that backs up going into L.A. in the morning, and also the Palmdale area backing up going into L.A. in the morning. So you you do not want to leave Vegas at 2 a.m. on a weekday driving to L.A. because what may feel like an easy middle of the night drive will not be so easy once it gets to about 5:30 in the morning and you're in the outskirts of Southern California and you hit bad traffic of people going to work. You go, ah, I didn't think of that. Oops. All right, we're going to move on. Arizona now has legalized sports betting. And this is a pretty recent story. Sports betting became legal in Arizona on September 9th. 
A lot of states would legalize sports betting these days. Arizona, the latest to add it. There was a court challenge to this sports betting bill, even though uh, most of the 22 Indian tribes on the gaming compact in Arizona signed on. The Yavapai Prescott tribe did not sign the agreement and then started a legal battle to prevent it. But the funny thing is they didn't start the legal battle immediately. They started the legal battle several months after being presented the agreement. This new law will award 10 sports betting licenses to the uh, Arizona professional sports franchises and other athletic operators like NASCAR and the PGA Tour. And then those companies can offer betting on-site and on a mobile platform. And then another 10 licenses will be given out to tribal nations that have both online and brick-and-mortar options. However, the lawsuit had to do with the fact that all 22 tribes won't qualify. Remember, there's only 10 licenses. So there's 22 tribes competing for a license. And actually, not even 10 managed to qualify. Nine of the 22 managed to qualify. I guess that left one license unclaimed. And the Yavapai Prescott tribe, which probably knew they weren't going to qualify, uh, filed this lawsuit that the new rules were unfair. Well, this lawsuit failed. Maricopa County Superior Court Judge James Smith refused this injunction request from the Yavapai Prescott Indian tribe and said that the planned launch date for Arizona legalized sports betting of September 9th will go forward. They were trying to get an injunction to stop it. They claimed that this new law violated the Voter Protection Act because it illegally amended Proposition 202, which was the initiative that allowed gambling in the state in the first place back in 2002. It was Proposition 202 in 02. It's kind of confusing, but that's when gambling was allowed in Arizona. In case you're wondering when it began there, that's why there are Indian casinos in Arizona. That's why there's casinos, real brick-and-mortar casinos, and poker rooms in the greater Phoenix area, but it is on Indian land. So not only are there going to be these uh, Indian sports betting operations, but there's going to be sports betting outlets at all the different professional sports franchises that have gotten a license, which presumably will be the Diamondbacks and the Phoenix Suns and uh, their, their NHL team and uh, their NFL team. So there, there's going to be, uh, and of course, uh, I guess uh, NASCAR and the PGA, you're going to have it as well. So there's going to be a lot of uh, on-site betting at sporting events in Arizona. So this is just legalized. And they have now joined the states that are allowing legalized sports betting. Craps and roulette are now allowed in the state of Arizona. These started being allowed in August. And this is part of the same agreement. The agreement allowed craps and roulette to be in tribal casinos in August. I'm not sure what date in August. And sports betting to launch on September 9th. Prior to that, they were not allowed to have these games 
I never understood that. I don't know why some of these states have a bug up their ass about things like craps and roulette. They seemed okay with card games, but for some reason it bothers them to have something like uh, roulette with a ball or craps with dice. That's why you would see these weird options like uh, card craps, which is basically a similar game, but he takes all the fun out of throwing dice. Like, why? I never understood why they have these weird restrictions. Like, either allow gambling or don't. Don't say we can allow this type of gambling without that type and just have weird arbitrary rules what is okay and what's not. So that has allowed craps and roulette to show up in these casinos as well instead of just the card games and slot machines and poker, of course. So if you're in uh, Arizona and you wish to legally sports bet, now you can. I don't know what the lines look like. I haven't checked. I don't know if they are offering dime lines on the NFL, for example. Or if they're having 15 or 20 cent lines, which would be pretty crappy. Because this would be way too much house juice that you could not beat. Even if you were a skilled NFL better or NBA better or whatever. You have to have lines that at least give the skilled better a chance. But if the taxes are too high, then they can't offer that and then you have problems. So who knows? Moving along, Trader Ruski, have you been to Resorts World now? I sure have. Do you remember the Rolls-Royce exhibit? Absolutely. Would you say that the Rolls-Royce exhibit is the most memorable thing about Resorts World upon your first visit there? For sure. I would say that too. I will admit I thought it was a bit weird when I walked in and there's a bunch of Rolls-Royces parked in the hallway of the of the casino that is not the hotel but like in the hallway of the casino you walk right in and there's this big line of parked rolls royces and you can walk around them there's there's pathways on each side of them but you you walk past them to get to the remainder of the casino and they're all different colors it almost looked like something out of a the miami vice theme song that's what it reminded me of and i thought this is really bizarre but by the time i finished walking past them i said well it was bizarre, but at least it's unique. It, it's, I guess it's kind of cool. Because you have these different colored, Rolls, brand new Rolls Royces, one after another after another, and it's just kind of weird that you don't expect a big line well, of Rolls Royces. Well, sorry, Jeff, to cut you off, but there are also different styles of Rolls Royces I've, I've never even seen before, like, you know, a, a two-door two and, and just different types. And yeah, stuff. that too. Not yeah. just different colors. Right, it's, a, it's different types too. So, anyway, um, it's not... Uh, super uh, extravagant uh, thing like the Bellagio uh, Conservatory where they, they have to put tremendous effort into maintaining and it's something super unique in that way. This is just something kind of unexpected to see and just kind of unique. So still, it was unique. It's something that I thought defined the property in what otherwise kind of seemed like a generic uh, large casino hotel resort. So I think it's a good thing when they have things which may not be something you feel you have to go and see, but something that kind of defines it, that kind of is memorable about the place. And go, oh, yeah, the Rolls Royces. Well, that's why I was so surprised that with all of Resorts World's other struggles, that they have done away with the Rolls Royces. I don't know why, but it has been reported that the Rolls Royces are gone. Vegas Travel I they News. Were giving them away, Jeff. No, I don't know, but they're all gone. Every single one of them. Why don't they replace them? If they're giving them away. Maybe, maybe your boys at the tow truck company got them. <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's the best explanation I've heard yet. The Vegas uh, 
Travel News, I've never heard of them before, Vegas Travel News, which is on Twitter, put, hearing the Rolls-Royce display at Resorts World has been removed? Can anyone confirm? Thanks. And indeed, people confirmed it's gone. I think they just took away the whole display. I don't think they just went away one by one. I think they are just gone. And it didn't last very long. And it's not clear why it was removed. Now, some people responding to this on Twitter were happy to see it was gone. Someone named the Vegas Fanatic said, Good riddance. It's too nice of a hotel to set up a car lot in the public areas. Hope they use the space for some sort of pop-up art collection. Well, this, in a way, kind of was a pop-up art collection, just a kind of unique one. Uh, someone else wrote, rent was due and the place is failing. <laughs> and then someone else tried to give some information. I don't know if this is correct or not, but they said it wasn't their collection. They gave a charity space to display the cars. It was just a temporary exhibition. So maybe it's a rotating area that they exhibit things, but what's in its place now? I wasn't told that, and I'm not seeing any information about that. Someone said the display was ra- lame anyhow. I don't know. I, to me, it seems weird that they would take that away when people really noticed it, unless it was something that was just planned to be there for a short time, and they didn't realize it would be one of the more memorable features of the property. Very bizarre. But you'd think if they were going to replace it, that they would put something else there that was equally notable. And I'm not hearing or reading that this is the case. So why they would do that, I don't know. It's so many weird things at a resorts world. I mean, it could be something where they wanted them to sponsor something. Or maybe, you know, or maybe it was that type of deal with Rolls-Royce or a local dealer. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, maybe this ended... uh they opened on like what June twenty something. So I don't know what day it disappeared, but you think if it disappeared like August twenty something, that we would have heard of it by now. So maybe they ended it on September first. We just haven't heard, or, or maybe they—I uh, don't know. It's kind of a weird date for it to end if it just happened compared to when they opened, and it's not the first of the month or that close to the first of the month right now. And this was reported on September eleventh. It's hard for me to believe they went 10 days without someone saying anything about this. But yeah, it's 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 been confirmed. It's gone. Resorts World, let's take a look. Let's do a little Resorts World update here. I'm going to take a look at Resorts World and see if the prices are still ridiculously cheap to stay there. So I'm going to click Stay. It's put in from Monday the 13th through... Wednesday the 15th. Let's see what it offers me. Yeah, it's cheap. It's uh, in the Conrad, which is the middle grade tower. You can get a one king bed, quote, premium room for 163.50 plus tax and resort fee, and 170.50 for a, quote, city view premium room. Now, it's not the dirt cheap rates I saw before, but it, it listen to this in, in the Hilton part. It's uh, $76 plus tax and resort fee. And $83 for a city view. That's, I mean, this resort fee is pretty high, but it's pretty high everywhere. So that's pretty crazy. That, that, that their Hilton property, which is brand new. It's not supposed to be as nice as the Conrad, but it's still brand new. It's supposed to be still a pretty nice hotel. 
that you're, you're getting this for the base price of well under 100 per night, uh, plus resort fees. Now, let me fast forward here to uh, September 17th, Friday, for two nights. Okay, so that gets more expensive. It's to be like uh, 200 a night average, and I think with including uh, just two nights. So it's, uh, it's about 200 a night plus resort fee for the Hilton, let's see, Crockford's little uh, boutique hotel they have there that's supposed to be expensive. Yeah, that's for something. I think they're still not doing well. And Vegas is still getting a lot of action, a lot of traffic. The mask mandate isn't really affecting them that badly. So I'm not getting why Resorts World is struggling this badly, but they've definitely done something wrong. So we'll see. I mean, I'm not going to be surprised if they eventually sell it. It's not going to be right away because it's a huge company, this Genting, and they can eat some losses for a while. But if they determine it's not viable in the long term, they may just give up and punt it. We will see. This could be kind of like the Revel that was also a super expensive property in Atlantic City that they just could not bring in the revenue they needed to keep it profitable. And they ended up selling it at a tremendous discount. It is now uh, Ocean Casino. And I believe they're also struggling. But at least they didn't pay for it what uh, Revel did. Uh, according to Brandon, you should get Genting Rewards if you want to get a good deal there. You can get some really good deals even on Crockford's. Brandon stated Crockford's. He was actually very impressed by Crockford's. But he got a, a good deal to stay at Crockford's, like 200 bucks a night. And it was like a very luxurious hotel with a, lot, a high ceiling and with all these uh, extra perks. And he, he was very impressed by the whole thing. But he said the place was kind of a ghost town. <laughs> but he said he got offered this by joining Genting Rewards. So if you have an interest in staying at Resorts World at a discount, maybe even in the highest end tower of Crockwards, you should get Genting Rewards at G-E-N-T-I-N-G. It's an app you can get and sign up for it and see what they offer you. I haven't gotten it yet, but you may want to try that. Brandon was raving about the deals that are offered on there. Where we went there, by the way, Drop, it was like a line that was probably 100 people deep just to get a card. Oh, wow. But that was a while ago. That's kind of near opening, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I'm sure it's probably cool. That yeah. You may not even need a card, though. Genting Rewards, I, I think, may be something you just sign for online. I believe that's just an app you get. That's not the same as a player's card. That Maybe the player's card is attached. Oh, yeah, yeah. It may be attached to the player's club, but you may be able to sign up online. He said that he got... I don't know if he got... A, he just told me he went and got the Genting Rewards app, and that's gave him some great deals. So it's it's possible it's just for all Genting properties, not necessarily casino properties. It may be kind of like H Honors, which mm-hmm. also works with Resorts World. If you have an H Honors account for Hilton, you may want to check the rates they offer you. It may be better than what you're getting on the Resorts World website or on travel sites like Expedia. Okay, so finally, I want to do the COVID segment, which we kind of semi-covered unintentionally (coughs) during the uh, WSOP no-mask mandate segment, but I want to attack it from a different angle here. And that's about how safe you should feel without a vaccine booster, which is almost everybody right now, and how safe you should feel once you get a booster. 
because the Delta variant is super contagious. It is now 99% of all new cases in the U.S. It's almost certain if you get COVID now in the U.S. that it is going to be Delta. Delta, fortunately, is not more deadly than original COVID. They're having a little trouble determining if it's less deadly because it's also skewing younger because uh, people who are older are vaccinated more. The older you are, the more likely you are to be vaccinated because people realize the older they are, the higher chance they will die from it. So it makes sense. So the vaccine is complicating things a bit regarding comparing it to regular COVID where a lot of the death occurred before vaccination was available. Anyway, it's it's definitely not more deadly, maybe a little bit less, but it seems comparable compared to the regular COVID. The big difference now is that the cases are skewing younger and the cases are that they require hospitalization and and sometimes lead to death are almost all unvaccinated people. As Matt the Rat said when he called in with someone he knows that works in a hospital in Canada and said that just about 100% of the cases they're getting there are people who are unvaccinated, which is something you should take note of if you don't want to get the vaccine. I think the only reasonable case to be made for not getting the vaccine is either if you're very young or if you already had COVID because there is some belief that the immunity you will get from previously having COVID is even better than the vaccine, though getting both couldn't hurt. Anyway, the booster is the source of some controversy. There's been some criticism of the booster. Some are saying that the U.S. should be shipping the boosters to other parts of the world that haven't even gotten their first dose yet. There's some parts of the world really need to get vaccinated with the first two shots and that we shouldn't be worrying about third shots here when some parts of the world have a hard time getting the first two. There are some saying that the booster is coming too soon, that it's proof that the vaccine does not work very well and that the vaccine is a failure if we need a booster so quickly, some people say. I'm not saying I agree, but there's some arguments being made. There's some people who are concerned about side effects or how often we're going to have to do this. And is this something we're going to have to keep doing for ourselves every four or five months, keep getting these boosters every time the thing starts to wear off? And also further concerns that what if a variant like this mu variant take hold that just busts right through all the vaccines and that the vaccine is not uh, particularly effective against them? Why are we even bothering? So quickly touching on those, if you just look at the hospitalization rates now and you see just about everybody in the hospital is unvaccinated and just about everybody dying is unvaccinated, it doesn't take a genius to realize you should get vaccinated especially if you're in a risk group that dies from COVID, which really is anyone over 45. And even, I'd say, 35 to 45 even falls in that somewhat too, but especially over 45. There are people that I know of that have died of COVID, even people I knew personally, not close friends, but uh, people I knew personally that died of COVID who were 50 years old, 52 years old, we even had, uh, who's now a regular listener of Poker Fraud Alert Radio, uh, Robert Goldfarb on here talking about his good friend, Robert Gray. And we had a memorial free roll for not too long ago. And Robert Gray, a poker player known as uh, A-Game Rob in Vegas, died at the age of 56. So 
if you're around that age, you shouldn't just say, oh, I'm healthy, I'm fine, I'll fight it off. You you could be one of the unlucky one to kill. So if, if you can get a vaccine and pretty much eliminate the chance of that, why wouldn't you? I mean, vaccine's not perfect. There's not uh, 100% chance that it's not going to harm you in some way, but there's a hell of a lot higher chance that the vaccine is going to be safe for you than COVID being safe for you. If you get COVID and you're 50, you got to kind of hope that you're not going to be one of the unlucky ones. That's why I've been so scared of it. And when I say unlucky, it doesn't just mean dead. It also could mean permanently damaged. So just look at the hospitalization data. You'll see. You should take the vaccine. But what about the booster? What about the booster for people such as myself and Trader Ruski who are in an age group where there is danger, but not extreme danger, and where we got the vaccine around April, and now we are in September, which is five months later. Now, Trader Ruski, did you get Pfizer or Moderna? Pfizer. Yeah, I did too. Unfortunately, that's the one that is degrading. That is the one that in Israel they were finding that was less than 50% effective after six months. And of course, that doesn't just start on six months and zero days. It's something that's cumulative that probably ramps up starting around the four or five month mark and rapidly degrades. I haven't seen that study, but obviously it doesn't just go from 94% effective to 40 something in one day. It doesn't work like that. It's something that has a degradation process that probably speeds up as you get past a certain point. So the Moderna one, which has a triple dose compared to the Pfizer vaccine, is doing better. And it is now believed that it is because of the bigger dose. The bigger dose is also being blamed for stronger side effects, which is actually the reason I went with Pfizer, because I said, you know what? If they're both equally effective... Might as well go with the one with the lesser side effects. Now, I still had plenty of side effects from it, but I did dodge the terrible headache from it that some people described getting, including my own mom. And I also dodged the stomach sickness for the most part. I got nauseous for about half an hour, did not throw up. Some people were sick to their stomach and vomiting repeatedly for an entire 24-hour period. So I, I didn't get those symptoms, which were the worst of the common side effect symptoms. I did get the fever. I did get the muscle and joint pain. I did get the pretty extreme fatigue, but I did not get the nausea, the vomiting, and the horrible headache. So to get those on top of the other stuff I had, that would sounds like days of misery. Now, it's not guaranteed I would have gotten that, but my mom, who is half of me, did get that horrible headache. So that's not exactly encouraging. However, uh, I was thinking I'm going to get the Moderna as the booster that you can mix and match them. But now they're, they're starting to say that this is not something you should do at the moment, that there's not enough research, and that one, it's possible this is not as effective, and two, it's possible this isn't all that safe. So they, they really want to research it more, and it's recommended at this time that you just stick to the one you got previously. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm not I'm not going to make myself into a guinea pig here. I'm, I'm not going to mess around with it. I'm going to go with what they know the most about. And They have done the third shot in Israel, and they have seen that it has effectiveness, and it 
really helps. But that was for an over 60 population because they were only giving people over 60. So that doesn't really give us all the answers for people who are not 60 and have different type of immune systems. So the difference may not be as large. But with that said, I'm going to get it. But at that point, how safe should I feel? Should I feel like I've just been renewed and I can go out again without a care, like in May? Maybe even play at the World Series? Or should I say, well, it's good I got it, but maybe I should still use some caution because I don't know how much this is really helping me. And if you choose not to get a booster, how should you feel? Should you feel unsafe, almost like you're unvaccinated? Or should you say, hey, I think I'm still pretty good because the truth is almost everybody going into the hospital presently is unvaccinated? Well, it depends what your goals are. If your goal is really to prevent death and major illness, like ending up on a ventilator, then two shots should be enough, at least for now. Because we're not seeing many people hospitalized who have had two shots. And those who are, are people who are very old. Now, it's possible that the people who are very old are also the ones who got it first. So that's why we're seeing a lot of them in the hospital with the bad breakthrough cases. But it also could just be that because they're old and more vulnerable, that's why it's happening. And there were a lot of younger people who got it early for various reasons. And we're just not seeing many of them ending up in the hospital and breakthrough cases, even if they got vaccinated back in January or early February. So if your goal is simply to pretend, prevent a catastrophe from COVID, then you can do without the booster, at least for now. If your goal is to avoid getting COVID at all and avoid the mid-grade problems from it, such as lung damage, such as uh, brain fog, such as just persistent fatigue and feeling of being ill, what's known as long COVID or permanent loss, either partial or total of smell and or taste. If you are afraid of those things happening, which are much more likely to happen to you in middle age and older than if you're young with or without a vaccine, then you should be careful then you may want to wait for the booster until you start doing riskier things. I'm not sure how much time you need to wait after the booster until you can feel comfortable that the booster has fully worked. I I guess I have to look that up. I never tried to. If you remember with the second shot, you were told to wait for uh, two weeks after that. And that's why, even though I got my shot in uh, April, that I did not consider myself fully vaccinated until early May, because I had to wait two weeks. Now, nothing magically changed at the two-week mark, but it was one of these things that every day it's supposed to become more effective, that the first day after I have the uh, second shot, my immunity to COVID is probably more similar to just having the first shot and no second shot, but then after some time passes, it uh, it builds. And I, I believe that's how it works. So I don't know if it's like that with a third shot, but I, I'll feel better, 
But I would love to know the data. And that's why I was talking about during the World Series segment. I would love to know the data of how much. So let's say it becomes the case after they've studied it that you just need a booster, say, every four months or every five months to really make yourself safe from getting COVID. Or let's say at least with the Pfizer one, that's what you need. Then, okay. Then I'll know. Then I'll know that maybe if I want to do something risky, I should time getting the booster around when I'm going to do something risky, like going to the World Series. So maybe if, if that's what's discovered, I'll, I'll, I'll get the next booster two weeks before I plan to go to the World Series. And I can feel pretty confident. It's also possible they're going to study it and say, hmm, you know, it's really not doing that much. It's really not helping that much. That yes, you have a better antibody response, but you're, there, there's enough uh, memory cells that your body has that will be able to reproduce the antibodies anyway when they need them, so this really isn't that helpful. Or maybe it'll be found to have been helpful for old people, but for people who uh, have better functioning immune systems, they really don't need it. So th- these things might be found, and you may say, well, what about the breakthrough cases? It's possible that the breakthrough cases are going to happen no matter what, and this isn't really going to stop them. So it's also possible that the Delta variant will fall off, and then the next thing to become dominant is something like this Mu variant, which just busts through the vaccine anyway. So imagine that. Imagine you finally get this booster and deal with the side effects. And you go, okay, I'm good. And then guess what? Two weeks later, Delta variant uh, has disappeared or almost disappeared. And now the Mu variant is here. And now it's uh, busting through the vaccine and your booster was useless. That kind of suck, wouldn't it? They're talking about having the dose of the Moderna shot in order to make it more available. It is believed that the Moderna shot may not be ready in time if they don't do that. So this is being discussed. In addition, there is some belief, though I haven't seen this confirmed, there is some belief that the Pfizer dose was what it was because Pfizer was afraid that people were going to find the side effects too unpleasant with the same dose that Moderna is giving. So that they actually made the dose lower so more people would get the vaccine. There's even some conspiracy theorists saying that this was something Pfizer did for profit and they realized that people would probably need a booster but didn't want to admit it at the time. But that what they didn't want is that a bunch of people, the word would get around that people are having terrible side effects and people were going to refuse to take the shot. So they made the side effects more tolerable. So the word of mouth was better. And then guess what? They get to sell another shot, which you don't pay for, but the government pays for, but still they're making money. They get to sell another shot for a booster they know everybody's going to need. And this conspiracy theory, which may not be untrue, is bolstered by the very strong statement that was coming pretty quickly from Pfizer when breakthrough cases were happening, that people are going to need a booster. They were real sure about that. And the, the government's going, no, 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 not necessarily. You know, no, we're not saying that at this time. We don't know why the Pfizer uh, CEO is saying that. And then now they're like, uh, yeah, you probably need one. So, and I saw that one coming a mile away. I knew as soon as Pfizer said it and then Fauci denied it, I'm like, okay, that's, uh, they're not saying a direct no. They're just kind of like, no, we haven't determined that yet. And that really meant we don't want to admit it yet. So I knew that was coming, that we're going to have to do it. And it looks like this could even be Pfizer's fault that they just decided that they were going to make the dose lower, knowing that it would wear off, but that they felt that was the only way to get people to take it without putting all over social media that the side effects are awful. 
Funny enough, though, looks like Moderna, which has been doing better, they're going to cut the dose in half, maybe, for the third shot. I guess maybe figuring that the dose has already been cut into a third by Pfizer. So they said, well, we might as well cut it in half. So I guess the answer to this, how should you feel with a booster as far as safety and how should you feel without one? I think you should definitely feel safer with a booster after the amount of time passes that you're told to wait. And you should feel safe for a few months, but maybe not completely safe. Maybe you should still be cautious. You shouldn't treat it like we did in May before Delta and June before Delta became a problem in the U.S. Maybe you should still treat it with caution until we have more data about this. The truth is we can't chase this forever with vaccines. The public's going to become tired of it. They may already be getting tired of it. I have a feeling the booster is going to have much less uh, cooperation from the public as the first two shots did. I think it's going to be a much lower percentage of people seeking the booster, especially given how soon people are expected to get it. And when there's other variants that are just smashing through it, that's going to make the vaccines even less appealing, especially because you have to endure side effects from them. It's not something you just get a shot and you go on and you're fine. It's something you have to be sick for some time for a lot of people. And I think that they're going to have the problem where they see these variants that are busting through and have to figure out why that's happening and then adjust the vaccine to deal with those variants if they can. And once they do that, then there may be a new variant that uh, does it again. It's also possible that mu breaking through the vaccine will cause illness, but will not cause severe illness, and that COVID may eventually have to be something that we just have to accept may get us sick and may even cause us harm, but won't kill us provided we get vaccinated. And when I say won't kill us, I don't mean nobody will die, but I mean not in the large numbers we've been seeing since it first showed up on the scene. But I still believe that the solution we're going to have will be in a treatment. Be something that you rush and take. Not Russian, like from Russia, but you rush and take when you see symptoms and then test positive for COVID. It's probably something you take for a period of time. And that will be expected to hold down your symptoms and minimize or eliminate any kind of long-term damage or long-term illness. I think once such a thing exists and provided it works against all the variants, that will be the future of fighting COVID. And then it will be something that's in our lives that we know we have to deal with. And the narrative will be, oh, I have COVID. Let me take a test. Yep, I have COVID. Okay. Pop this pill twice a day for a week. Okay. Hopefully it works. Yep. It works like it does for most people. Okay. Wasn't that bad. I move on. And there's be something you always have to keep in the back of your mind and always have to have access to wherever you go. And the government will probably provide for free. And that's going to be life. I don't think it's ever going to go away completely. But then again, neither has the flu. And that kills people every year. So it's just something we're not used to. And we may have to get used to it. And it sucks, but sometimes things change. And we've kind of been spoiled for a long time prior to COVID that we didn't have anything like this. Didn't have to really fear diseases like this, the communicable diseases in the U.S. or in 
other developed countries. It's just something that you really didn't have to worry about. You had to worry about other health conditions that could pop up, but not diseases you catch from somebody else that are going to kill you or damage you in middle age. And now you do. But look, the flu, that's that kills a lot of elderly people each year. Not so much this past year because of the anti-COVID measures actually suppressing the flu. But in normal years prior to COVID, there were a lot of elderly people, not as many from COVID, but there was a lot of elderly people dying of the flu. And that was just a fact of life, especially ones that didn't get the flu shot. But the flu shot wasn't even that good. It was like 60% effective. So it was just a fact of life. If you were very old and got the flu, there was a fair chance you're going to die from it. It just wasn't something everybody talked about because the vast, vast majority of the population was not in that category. There's not that many very old people. Like, I think there's only uh, 6.6 million out of the 330 million in the U.S. that are 85 or older. So it's like 2%. And if 98% of the population is not that vulnerable to it, then people don't talk about it as much. It starts getting a lot scarier when you start seeing younger people die from it. Don't have to be really young, but just, you, you know, you see 50-year-olds dying from this. See forty-something-year-olds dying from this. You see a lot of people in early sixties dying, and you go, "Wow, shit, this is." (laughs) Then you see it just really ripping through old people. You're going, "Wow, this is uh, kind of scary." And then it's also causing all these long-term problems. The flu does not do. The flu doesn't leave you with lung damage. The flu does not typically leave you with brain fog or uh, loss of smell and taste forever. Like you, you don't have these things for the flu. So usually you get the flu. You have a crappy few days, and you're over it. That's the typical experience of the flu, whether you are 18 years old or 55 years old. So COVID's different, but we've been spoiled for a long time not to have anything like this. So it may just be back to the old days in a way that we have a communicable disease to worry about that we don't have a complete answer to and we can't completely eradicate. All right, so I'm going to finish off the show by playing my appearance on Vital Vegas or, or on the Vital Vegas's uh, girlfriend podcast. I hate reducing her to just being Vital Vegas's girlfriend. Her name is Melissa. She's very nice. Her, her, she goes by uh, Melissa Vegas. And she lives in Vegas, of course. She is the live in girlfriend of Vital Vegas. And uh, you can see a picture of her. I think she's the Melissa Vegas on Twitter. Let me see if I can verify that. But it's her podcast, but she does it with her boyfriend, Vital Vegas, who is uh, better known than she is. And she's not doing this for a living. This is a new podcast. She works in the uh, service industry in Vegas. And yeah, it is the Melissa Vegas, if you want to see her Twitter page. She's been with uh, Vital Vegas a while. And if you look at the two of them, if you wonder if there's an age difference, there is. They're probably about 20 years apart, but, you know, good for him. (laughs) And uh, uh, you can hear me on the podcast where I am debating with him, and she's kind of the moderator, regarding tipping in the casino setting, especially from the standpoint of tipping hand pays, where a slot attendant does a 
federally required hand pay when you hit something that's $1,200 or more. So should you tip that and how much should you tip, especially if it's a large hand pay, like $120,000, what is the right tip to give there because someone processes tax paperwork for you and hands you a check? So I had my opinion, he has his opinion, and I also debated with him about just tip shaming in general. And it was a very uh, respectful and cordial debate. We were friendly to one another. You're not going to hear any insults or uh, nasty remarks to one another. Everybody was very nice to each other on there, and uh, I appreciate them having me on. In case you're going to yell at me for uh, playing their copyrighted material, you'll be glad to know that I was uh, given permission to play the entirety of the episode, which, uh, unlike Poker Fraud Alert, is not a seven-hour show. It's about a one-hour show. And uh, I'm going to play it on here. And this podcast is called Melissa Does Vegas, and you can find it on iTunes and, I assume, other podcast formats. It is very new. They're still getting used to their equipment and everything. It did make me feel better on there that they had technical fail, too, because... I have technical fail on the show, some of which I edit out when I put it in the archives. But I, I feel like such a chump. I feel like uh, it's amateur hour. And then they had technical fail. And I go, ah, see, it's not just me. See, I, and they don't even edit out like what I do. They, they, they throw it out there <laughs> with a lot of the fail. But they're still learning the, the equipment there. This is on the seventh episode or something. So uh, I, I think each time they're uh, getting more used to it and... Uh, it's it's a podcast just basically about Las Vegas and different topics of the week. And so you can listen to my appearance on there. I won't sound as clear as I do on this show, because on this show I'm broadcasting directly into my own equipment, whereas there I was actually on the phone with them. They they called me up and I was on a, a telephone. You'll be able to tell it's me, but it won't sound exactly the same. But they gave me permission to play this in full. Again, the name is Melissa Does Vegas. I decided to put this at the end of the show so you guys can hear it. And uh, Trader Ruski, this will be the last I speak with you. I'm just going to start it, and then uh, we're going to end the show. So, uh, I mean, you can stay and listen, but uh, I'm going to be honest. I'm not going to sit here listening to the whole thing. I'm just going to start it and put the headset down and go take a walk. Have a good walk, Jeff. Well, I'll talk to you soon. I, I, I hate to confess it's not a real walk. It's it's a figurative walk. I'll, I'll walk around my house, but uh, <laughs> I should take a walk. Actually, that that's the truth. But uh, this would be a good time too. Also, it's six nineteen in the morning. Be uh, yep. nice and cool. Not going to have the sun beating down on me yet. I mean, there's there's some light now, but it's not. Uh, so it'd be a good time for a walk. But I'm actually not taking one. I'm not going to have the energy for that right now. But I I will start this here. So. Thank you for coming on, Trader Ruski, and joining me for the second portion of our show. Brandon will come back next week, presumably. Uh, at least he plans to. He would have been here if we had the show last night as planned. I just decided, you know, I'm going to do it on the anniversary of 9-11, because I'm going to do a long 9-11 retrospective, and it feels weird to do it on September 10th. So decided to have the show on September 11th, though I, I didn't think of that most of the show would have been on September 11th because I always started so late. Oops. 
but whatever. Uh, when I made that decision, I told Brandon, he's like, oh, man, I don't think I can make it because I, I got to be up for NFL Sunday. And I go, shit, I forgot about that. I forgot about how much Brandon loves the NFL. Trade Risk, are you going to watch the NFL all day today? Um, you know, I'll certainly watch some of it, but I've got some work to do today. So okay. I'll have my eye on things. All right. So thank you, everybody, for listening. Always appreciate those that uh, enjoy the show. I've gotten some nice messages lately from people who told me how much the show means to them. And uh, even people who've told me that when they have stress in their lives, that uh, this is a little escape from it that they can have for seven hours or so. They can just listen to what I'm saying and not think about whatever's going on that might be stressing them out. I'm flattered that I can do this for you and that you enjoy listening to me, especially for this length of time. And I, I really do appreciate that we have a dedicated audience here that, that does listen and that does enjoy the content that I bring. And, of course, we're going to be uh, continuing to do so for the foreseeable future. So thank you, Trader Ruski, and I'm going to put on my conversation with Vital Vegas and his girlfriend, Melissa Vegas, on the Melissa Does Vegas podcast, which I think is once a week. You can find on iTunes and whatever else that they've put themselves on. Just search for it, Melissa Does Vegas. And it's about an hour here. I'm going to play it on this show. And you can go listen to other episodes to your heart's content. And thank you to them for inviting me on the show. This was their idea. And as soon as they asked me, I said, yes, I would like to come on because I like to have these discussions and I like to argue with people. So it was a good fit. All right. Well, have a good morning, Trader Ruski. And you, here comes the podcast. Welcome to the Melissa Does Vegas podcast. Just like Debbie from Dallas, she's here to show you a good time. So sit back, relax, and take a shot every time she says box wine. You'll be wasted in no time. It's the vivacious, curvacious, the girl who never turns down libations, Melissa Vegas. This is going to be a long-ass podcast, so I'm just going to get right into it. So for this episode... I'm going to give you just the tip. And as weird as that sounds, coming from a woman, episode seven here is not only a lucky number, it's also dedicated to the tip-shaming controversy that has rocked the city of Las Vegas. Okay, I'm being a little dramatic there. But it did make it all the way to some national news publications, thanks to the magic stick of Twitter shitstirring, say that five times fast, held by the hand of, you guessed it, Vital Vegas. I also have a special guest, an actual real guest this time, and I'm super stoked about that. So now let's get on with the show. Oh my God. <laughs> Anyways, now so it's recording. Todd, thank you so much for being so accommodating with the scheduling. You know, I was um, busy today being a uh, quote unquote cocktail whore, you know, as my hater loves to call me, uh, now a podcast whore. So, Todd, he may um, call you a poker whore. For being on my podcast, so just a fair warning. But anyways, uh, you know I've been called worse things. People are <laughs> saying nasty things about me all the time. So there I'm you used go. To it. So you understand. 
awesome. And you're not a diva, so that is a bonus. So um, I was like- a diva. I'm the diva. Yes, you were so <laughs> difficult. We live in the same house, and we had scheduling issues. Like, explain that to me. How do you have scheduling issues when you're when you reside in the same home? Anyway, Todd is very nice for being on your podcast. Have you told him that yet? He is. So, I'd like to give a formal intro- introduction here. So, please welcome my special guest, um, Todd, aka Dan Druff, Wattellis, professional poker player and host of the poker fraud alert podcast and blog it's so nice to have someone other than vital vegas and it's kind of weird that i actually call you vital vegas and you're my boyfriend and you're sitting right next to me but anyways (laughs) so welcome todd oh wait oh that's actually cool oh yeah She's what using is that? The, she's using the applause uh, sound effect. We so. have a, oh, it's applause. <laughs> I, it sounded like something mechanical. Oh yeah, no, we have. Oh wait, be. can you hear that, Todd? Or yeah, oh yeah, I could hear it, oh, but it was like awesome. it, it didn't sound like applause to me. Oh, I don't want to say didn't. what it sounded like, but yeah. it, it didn't sound like applause. <laughs> okay, because we have a machine called the Roadcaster, and we have all these fancy buttons. So I'm actually I'm really excited, you know, to like actually take my podcast to the next level. So, um, just <laughs> hey, all my I, fancy side effects. Can I say one Sound thing effects. about Todd before we start? Yeah, go for it. So, I'm a big fan of Todd uh, because he was one of the few local journalists or few journalists at all who um, fu- kind of did an analysis of the whole Sahara lawsuit. The only one who really grasped the importance of it, the significance of it, and who really broke it down and I think into to, and made it digestible to regular human beings. Uh, so, Todd, I just want to say up front that I was very appreciative of your doing that. Uh, you were very objective about it, but you you obviously understood the ramifications of it. And um, so, I just wanted to say thank you. This is the first opportunity I've had to do that. So, uh, I just appreciate. Yeah, no that. problem. You know, I, I I gave my true opinion of the situation, and I never like seeing people who are trying to report things that are happening out in the world being the subject of lawsuits. Uh, sometimes you will get information that either isn't correct or is uh, is correct at the time, but then changes, and uh, it appears the latter is what happened to you. And uh, I understand the Sahara was irritated by what was going on there, but you were reporting something that looks like uh, – they were considering it looks like you got good information that just kind of changed over time so for some reason they were very bitter about this and went after you and i thought this is wrong and you you shouldn't be facing a lawsuit over this so i i put out there exactly how i felt about it and then i guess uh i guess it was reverse karma that i ended up on the defense defendant end of an anti-slap type suit myself where i had to use the same sort of mechanism to and the suit on my end, not about the Sahara, but uh, a guy I had reported on sued me and several other people and, and tried to quiet us. And we used the exact same legal mechanism to uh, get out of it, which I'm very happy exists in both California and Nevada. Yeah, I t- totally agree. Sorry, uh, Melissa. Yeah, so well, thank I you wanna, for I stealing my spiel. You oh, know, sorry. sorry. I did have some stuff mapped out here because, uh, you know, unlike you, I'm not an improv genius <laughs> slash former mime. Do people know that you were a mime? Jesus, too? God. God. This is not the time we're playing. Mr. Performing this. Arts over here. But, anyways, <laughs> so let me give a little bit of background here. So, Todd and I go way back, all the way to four months ago. Um, so we had chatted on Twitter about, yes, the hellish nightmare the Sahara lawsuit was for us. And 
Um, as Todd explained, he did a very in-depth analysis on his show because he went through that similar situation in the poker world. And I just thought, you know, with the whole barrage of hate and the shit show that Twitter has become, you know, I just found it refreshing that someone... I mean, and mind you, the bar might be set really low, but, um, you know, that someone, even if they didn't fully agree with all the traits of a person or every single thing they tweet could actually argue their points, you know, in an intelligent and respectful manner. So, you know, um, Todd's a smart dude. He's an articulate dude. I respect that. So I thought he'd make a great debate opponent for the topic of, I'm so excited to use these freaking sound effects. Oh God, the drum roll. (laughs) Tip shaming. <laughs> okay, oh is this overkill now? <laughs> overkill. Okay, so I promise I'm, I'm wrapping up here. I know I know what men love listening to women ramble. It's it's your favorite thing. Mm-hmm. So la- let's uh, fast forward now to last week. Vital Vegas, aka Scott, took out his shit stirring Twitter stick. That's really hard to say. And he once again stirred the pot, and this time with tip shaming. So there were several tweets you put out there about big jackpot winners um, only tipping, a couple hundred bucks. You also put the Las Vegas Raiders, you know, the much-revered Raiders on blast for being shitty tippers and being just overall kind of arrogant and rude and all the, you know, just all the cliche things you'd expect to serve a staff. And then Todd did a segment on his show, Poker Fraud Alert. And he said that you, Scott Rubin, took your shit stirring way too far. And he had a whole different take on tipping and shaming. So how I'm going to format this is I'm going to take your blog post, Vital Vegas, on tip shaming with the 10 points you made. And I'm going to have you guys kind of offer your own arguments, rebuttals. You know, I did listen to Todd's podcast as well, and I felt like, it kind of lined up, you know, pretty well. So I'll let you guys switch off so it's fair. And so... That's a lot of structure. <laughs> a lot of structure, huh? Oh, boy. Here we go. Okay. Wow. We, we might end up needing the structure, so that's not Yeah, bad. that's a good exactly. point. Oh, boy, okay, now... Right. Now well, oh, oh is, a, is a woman steering the ship? Is that... Oh, kind God. Of, here we go. <laughs> is that a problem for you? Anyways, oh, that's a whole other podcast. So... I'm going to go kind of out of order here, but I am going to start with, it's a lucky number, number seven on Vital Vegas's excuses why people don't tip. Number seven is, well, they didn't really do very much. So I will let Todd start out with this one because, you know, I did listen to your podcast, Todd, and you... Um, kind of went into detail about, obviously, you're an avid gambler, so you, I believe, play video poker, and so you hit hand pays pretty frequently, I'm assuming, and a lot of tenants come out and have to do that paperwork, and you kind of had a take on that about, you know, well, really, how much how much work is it, really? So, go ahead and just kind of give us um, your overall take on tipping when you feel like your service attendant didn't really do all that much work. Okay. So first of all, it's important for the listener to understand, if they don't already know, that this is a federal requirement. It's not just you're too lazy to stop your video poker session and go get paid. It's that 
when you get any kind of payout from a sh- from a machine from either one hand or one spin, just basically you press a button, and if that button results in a win of twelve hundred or more, it is a federal requirement that uh, the machine has to lock up, and they have to get your social security number and give you a tax form, and then pay you by hand. They can pay you by hand in whatever way you want, by check, by cash, whatever. And this is twelve hundred all the way up to whatever millions, you know, no matter how big a hit. Okay. So. This happens to me when I play video poker, and when I do get hand pays, unfortunately, I don't get the $1.1 million hand pays. I wish I did, but I usually get something along the lines of 1200 2000 something in the low four figures, which by the time I hit that, that often doesn't even get me to even for that session. I'm not talking about the day, the week, the month, the year. I'm talking about the session. I can be down, but this is not something by choice. This is not what I consider a service. This is just something they're required to do by federal law to process paperwork. That's really all they're doing is processing tax paperwork. And for that reason, I don't think it should be tipped like a service. Like most things that are that you're tipping are a service that usually is optional in some way. Even restaurants where you can't serve yourself, you don't have to go to the restaurant to eat. You can go to uh, you can go eat at home. You can go do takeout. There's a lot of different ways where you don't have to be served at the table. But uh, if you want to play video poker and, or you want to play slots or whatever, you want to play any machine and you hit over 1,200, then by federal law, you have to be hand-paid. So it's not a service. It's just something they have to do by federal law. They're processing tax paperwork for you. And I believe the reason people are tipping there is because there's a perception, well, you've just won a whole lot of money. Well, not necessarily. If, if I've won a bunch of uh, $50 hands in a row and I'm up uh, $5,000, I don't tip anybody because there's no hand pay. If I am $4,000 down and I hit a $1,200 quote jackpot, I'm still 2800 down and I'm expected to tip. So the, the point is I don't think – I'm just tipping an employee who's doing their job. And these same employees will sometimes come over to fix a jam in the machine or, or for one of many other reasons where they're not expected to be tipped. So that's, to me, it seems extremely arbitrary, and I don't mind so much giving them a little bit, and I do. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll throw them a 20 if I get a $1,200 jackpot. The problem is some of them are pissed off. Some of them snatch it out of my hand and walk away with a sour look on their face. Then I start wondering, like, should I do this at all? So that's, number one, there's no standard to it. You don't know exactly what they're expecting out of you. And number two, I don't feel that this is, something where a tip is warranted. Thank you so much, Todd. That was very beautifully worded, articulate. And I'm just so sorry. I need to stop for a second because there, you know, there's been many disappointments in my life. And, you know, number one would be with my technical advisor here. Also my boyfriend. Test, test. It looks like, are we on the opposite mics? (laughs) Whatever. Are you shitting me? (laughs) Oh, that sounds so much better. So, thank you, Todd. Do that, we need to redo that? No, Todd's Todd's part is great. So now it'll be my. Did response. I get recorded, or do I have to say that all over? Again? No, you're you're oh you're my fine. God. What? Okay. It's it's fine. All right. So were our parts messed up? Uh, I mean, it's still being up? picked up. If Todd can hear it, it's fine. So, but it sounded like what we were in like a tunnel. No, it's just not as good, not as ideal as one would like but oh my gosh. okay anyway so. i mean we could go back and do that but 
I think we're into it now, so let's go. Okay. All right, we're going to so, start I'm so again. Sorry, Todd. No, yeah. Todd, that, that uh, the, and I have to say, one of the things that I enjoyed about that segment on your podcast was that you really you articulated a lot of number one uh, perspectives that a lot of people have, and you also articulated things that are completely logical. Um, and they they are um, it speaks to kind of the bigger issue and and a, what I think is a complicated issue because one of the things you brought up was that a lot of this tipping culture that we have is arbitrary. Uh, so I think we even though I think we may disagree about certain aspects of this, I think we agree about a lot. Uh, I think where we differ is what it what it means or or what necessarily what the behavior that comes out of those uh, observations and conclusions, what that is, should be, whatever. Uh, and I think in this case, you're absolutely right that these uh, attendants are doing a job that they're required to do. This is a, uh, it is required by the government. Uh, so I think where we veer is kind of the, just the idea of Las Vegas culture and tipping culture and uh because i you know i hear people rail about this all the time on twitter that it's that it's a crazy uh system that it's an unfair system it's uh it is in many ways arbitrary uh it goes it speaks to why would this person uh deserve a tip or you know where it's perceived that they deserve a tip and another person maybe doing more uh isn't Getting a tip. So I completely agree with that perspective. I think the bottom line on a lot of this stuff is uh, it, it also goes to this aspect of I've, I'm not a big fan of people that answer questions with that's the way it is. Uh, but I think in tipping and tipping culture, that is a custom and a tradition and um, I think it's just evolved that way. And, you know, do I think it's silly sometimes? Yes. Do I think it's, you know, it's no fun having an expectation that I just give money away, uh, you know, because whether you get it through gambling or hard work or some other means, you're essentially giving your money to somebody. Uh, so it's, I think it's complicated and uh, I appreciate that perspective. And I think it's, it's important to, to air both sides or, or the, the layers of this because it's not black and white. And one of the big frustrations, I think I mentioned this to you, Melissa, is like the other night I got a royal. Everybody's chiming in with, well, how much did you tip? What should you tip? What's the, what's the proper tip? And uh, Todd rightfully mentioned this on his podcast where he said, I don't even think Scott knows the answer to that question. And he's absolutely right. Well, nobody I, knows. Right. I don't know. I can't tell someone. It's established in that's restaurants, the right but amount. not in gambling. Right. You didn't really get very specific about the point of they didn't do very much. So what do you feel? Do you? So you've gotten hand pays before. Yeah. So how do you feel about that? They they filled out your paperwork for you. Like Todd pointed out, it's a federal requirement. Yes, they're doing their job. Yes, they're doing something required by the government. So how do you feel about that? They filled out your paperwork for you. They brought your money. Do you feel like, well, I mean, what what do they really do? Like, well, how do you? 
so so in my world it's it's fairly irrelevant what that person did the primary purpose that they serve is they are bringing me my money they are a pivotal part of the process of being paid so you know as i was saying a lot of this is arbitrary so you either sign up for this is about mojo this is about i did well i was lucky i want to be lucky again i want to share the love it's a feeling that's a vegas feeling a vegas experience of uh that is a, a Vegas impulse for a lot of people. It's not for a lot of people. You know, it's it's pretty evident that it's not because these cocktail waitresses on the casino floor, it's uh, a third to a half do not tip and when somebody brings them a free drink. A valid source told you this? Uh, yes. The, a food and beverage vice president at a major, multiple major Las Vegas casino. So it's not universal. There is, and it's really because tipping is largely perceived as voluntary. And I think Todd, Todd has articulated that as well on his show, uh, that it's a, uh, it's for, depending on your perspective about tipping, it's about a specific service being provided above and beyond. For a lot of people, that's also a criteria. It's like above and beyond what's expected. Uh, tip. You know, it stands for to ensure promptness. So some people in a restaurant feel fully uh, justified in not tipping if they don't get fast service. I don't view it that way. So if how I, do you view it? Well, well, I see, I, I don't either, yeah. though. See, that's, that's the oh, thing is I, 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 I am not that. taking the position that people should leave zero tips at restaurants unless they get wonderful service. And I don't do that personally. So uh, I, I do wish that we had more of a situation like in Europe where – Tipping is just not part of the culture where they pay these people more. Not, and when I say more, I don't mean they're not really highly paid employees, but they're paid approximately what they're worth for the job they're doing compared to the other jobs with uh, the education and uh, requirement and difficulty. And then tipping doesn't happen unless something really extraordinary occurs. It's just not part of the culture. And that's actually part of the reason some people who come to Vegas from foreign countries don't tip is because – they either don't know they're expected to, or they're just so not used to it, it just feels like weird to them, and they can't bring themselves to do it. And I'm not necessarily defending that. They, they should know what the culture is where they're going, and, and uh, they should do what is expected of them. However, I, I think at some point, you also have to look at uh, what is reasonable. And I think the very worst thing to happen is where if you leave a tip, especially in a situation where there is no standard expectation, like at least at a restaurant, People know that uh, right now the expectation is that if the service is normal, you leave uh, around 18%. If it's uh, a little below normal, you leave around 15%. If it's, if it's good or, or better than good, you leave 20% plus. And uh, so people have an idea when they're tipping at a restaurant the way it's going to be perceived by the server. But with jackpots at slots or video poker, anything like a machine, nobody knows whether their tip is going to be perceived as something that is appreciated. And so in this example that uh, you gave, Vital Vegas, of this uh, $120,000 jackpot and a woman tipped $200, I think it's very likely that this woman wasn't thinking, oh, I'm going to be cheap here and only tip 200 because this person didn't do much. I think there's a good chance this woman thought she was being generous, that, she, wow, I hit 120000 jackpot, I'm going to leave a nice tip of 200 And if she only knew that that attendant walked away 
probably resenting them and, and probably talking shit to others who work in the casino and saying, oh, can you believe I only got a $200 tip when this person hit 120K? I bet that person would have left zero if they knew that. And so you have to look at some point and see, does it make sense to tip at all if there is a decent chance that the person is going to resent you for it? Because I will say that any tip I leave to anyone that is resented, if I were to know it's going to be resented, I would not leave a tip at all. That's then I don't want to give anyone money that they're going to resent. If they're going to resent it, I'd rather, I'd rather give them zero. So, uh, like, for example, even in a restaurant, if I left an 18% tip and I knew when I walked out the person was going to talk shit about me and, and say what an awful guy I was, I'd say, you know what? I wish I could go back and leave them zero because you know that's what, uh, very entitled. I think, um, you know, I'm sorry to interject here, but, you know, yeah, again, I, I knew it was hard for me to be impartial. So um, as someone in the service industry, you know, I feel the same way. You know, if, you know, so, for example, for tonight, um, I... I did work at the bar that I am currently employed at. I'm not going to publicly announce that due to issues I've had with the hater. But um, so I did. I um, made about four trips for a particular group of people. Um, perfectly nice. They weren't rude. Um, you know, there were some tequila shots. There were beers. Um, there were some mixed drinks. So, yeah, multiple trips. And um, so I'd say about four trips um, with multiple drinks. And they tipped me a dollar. You know, so in that case, I would say, you know, rather than tip me a dollar, keep it. Like, I'm cool. <laughs> I'm cool with zero well, at so that point. they tip you a dollar for, for everything, everything combined is a dollar? Yes. So I would well, say... Well, okay, obviously that's uh, yeah. huge under tip, yeah. <laughs> right, that's the extreme. That's the other extreme. But yeah, in that case, I would say, you know what? You probably need it more than me. Cool. I'm cool. Just just, just take, save your dollar. You know, so in that case, I think... What a lot of people don't understand that is I think it works both ways. Like, you know, you're saying, well, you know, if you're going to, you know, have a sourpuss attitude about it, then, you know, I'm not... I don't want to give you a tip. And then I'm thinking, well, if you're just going to me, tip me a dollar for all that work, then I don't really want the dollar. So, you know, it actually works out. So maybe in that case, like the zero, I, I knew this was going to be hard. This was going to be hard for me. Well, okay, but I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about the people who were just tipping so far out of the norm on the low side right. that uh, it's pretty obvious to, to anyone except for ones who just think everybody should get zero tips. Yeah. It's pretty obvious to very, a very large majority of the population here that uh, that's inappropriate. And so in this case, you're describing, obviously, these people were huge cheapskates, and I don't know what their problem was. And right. I don't ever behave that way. You know, right. I always try to, in, in, in any kind of service situation, even if I wish the way the tipping was was different, I know the way the societal expectation is, and I know the, way, the expectation of the people who take these jobs. So I, I tip something that's standard, that's uh, probably average of, of what uh, people normally tip. So I, I, right. the only time there's an exception is if... Uh, the server is especially rude to me or confrontational or uh, if they are so bad at their job and get everything wrong constantly and just don't seem to care, those are the only cases where I leave zero. But it doesn't happen very often. Right. So, so for the most part, I, I'm tipping normally. And some people think that anyone who's talking about tip shaming and saying that he doesn't like tip shaming, he's probably a terrible tipper. That's actually not true. But uh, so, And I don't mind servers that resent people who leave just outrageously low tips right. for what most people would think is, is okay. I'm talking about situations where it's hard to know what to tip. Like for a $120,000 jackpot, there's a lot of arguments 
for why the tip shouldn't be that large just because the jackpot was large. Maybe the person is way, way down in gambling. Oh, Maybe there's a high, a high limit gambler and 120,000 doesn't even cover what they're down for the week. So that, Maybe they've, uh, they've, maybe they, they were down to their last penny after gambling away their million-dollar fortune. So there's a lot of times that you could say, well, this isn't necessarily good fortune. Uh, a lot of the way these games are set up, these machines, some more than others, is that you're going to lose, 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 and every so often hit something fairly big, but not quite enough to get you even, and then lose, 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 lose again. That's the way it happens for most people. So when someone's hitting what appears to be an exciting jackpot, and I, you know, I'll be in a casino and I'll see someone hit something like a hundred thousand dollars, and for a moment I'll be jealous and go, "Wow, I wish that was me." And then I'll go, "Wait a minute, I wonder how much they're down lifetime in gambling." I bet I don't wish that was me. Exactly. So, so that brings uh, me to my next so, so, point. So I'm sorry to cut you off, though, but yeah, you actually. So I think did I let. I let you go first, Todd, the last time, but so I'll let uh, Scott take over. Um, but the next point that I wanted to address was on the Vital Vegas excuses why people don't tip is number three, they didn't tip me when I was losing. So basically, this is saying these are you're a fair weather friend. Where were you when it was raining? <laughs> and yeah, exactly. And I was fucking like, you know, sweating balls that I didn't have, I wasn't gonna have my rent money. And I spent thousands and thousands of dollars to get this hand paste. So where were you then? But now here you are with a smile on your face, with your hand out, expecting a part of my riches. How is that fair? So that's a great point. What is Um, your argument? So that happens quite a bit. Uh, Anybody who's won a hand pay will see that their that employees come out of the woodwork. Uh, people that you've not seen the entire evening will come by to congratulate you. Of course, they're congratulating you to make sure you know they're around and then they're, they are open to receiving gratuities. That is a long standing Vegas tradition. Um, it is, it, I use it as, I definitely use it as fodder for humor, humor when I get a hand pay, say at a bar. And I have, you know, my favorite bartenders, people, there's people around, the attendants coming up. I definitely, uh, feel that way. You know, where were you when I was losing? And I think that kind of, that speaks to, you know, the point, uh, Todd made about that there's a history that the people standing there aren't, may or may not be aware of. In my world, it's, it's, I was going to say irrelevant. It's not irrelevant. It's just not an excuse to not tip. So in in my world, it's de- it definitely if I'm up and winning, I am tipping much more than I am if I'm losing. But I'm not not tipping. Right. Uh, and I I think part of this you know part of this discussion is there's an element of it that I don't. Like, I'm not going to tip shame somebody if they leave 10% rather than 20%. The, the reason this has come up is because these are extreme wins. This is a $1.1 million win. So, wait, I'm bad and at so, math. What's 10% of $1.1 million? Like, uh, I mean, it's $10,000 so or something? Think that, would be a, that would be a fair tip. No, 10% is $100,000. Oh, right. So... No, of course not. That's that's absurd. 
Um, and there are people who would say 10, 10%, absolutely. I'm like, you're nuts. You're, you're not going to leave $100,000. But in the other case, it was 129000 I think, and they left two hundred. Then somebody left two hundred on $1.1 million. So I think absolutely those are extreme wins and absolutely shitty tips. So what's a good – what's a good – Number that feels good. To you. That's the trap. Wait, no, there I'm is no number. You. <laughs> you win a million dollars. What's what feels good to you? I I don't know. Oh my god. Okay, but, how about however five thousand? If what do you think about five? Let me throw out five five thousand. That's completely fair. I don't think okay. anybody's getting mad if you give them five thousand dollars. You think ten thousand's a little too, going a little too I, crazy? I wouldn't. Tip ten thousand dollars. That's no. I want to lavish you with gifts. I'm going to spend the ten oh, grand gosh. on you. No, please tip the employees. <laughs> no, but I think it, you know part 7, of it is kind of like I don't think that your this is the mentality. I will stand at a craps table. These dealers are serving people for hours, and because that customer loses, they don't tip. And I think that's insane. Right. There is a service being provided that is rude. It's inconsiderate. It has nothing to do with how you're doing. You're in a flipping casino. You're likely to lose. Those people, that's still their job. They still rely on gratuities. And you don't get to skip right. you know, tipping because you had a bad session exactly. or a bad week or a bad year. Gamblers lose. Right. That's the state of gambling. That's the state of casinos. Right. That's the built-in math. People are going to lose. That doesn't mean that, you know, I'm losing. I'm not going to tip my cocktail waitress. And, and when I get a hit, I'm not going to uh, be generous to the to the attendant because I have a week or a month or a year of losing. That's, that right. is how, how it works. Because otherwise, every time I got a hand pay, I wouldn't tip. Because I'm down, of course I'm down. Oh, I God. gamble all I the time. I don't want to hear that. <laughs> no, well, it's not. The, it's not extreme. All the but. <laughs> trips that I'm missing out on because you're all the going trips into the and jewelry. The anyways, yeah, that kind of brings up a good point. I mean, I know I'm the moderator. I'm not supposed to interject, but Todd didn't hard. get to give um, his response, did he? Or did he? Oh yeah, yeah no, he, I'm, I'm politely he waiting to, here. To, yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, Todd, go ahead and give your retort. <laughs> Okay, so so um, here, here's the problem. You said that uh, people shouldn't tip, people shouldn't skip tipping because they're losing because the employees who are uh, working in these service positions they're uh, they're counting on some tips, and since everybody loses uh, overall for the most part, that that would mean they get no tips. But that, that's not what I'm saying here. In fact, this kind of uh, helps my point about the t- the hand pays here is that uh, just because because you've got a a large hand pay doesn't mean you're expected to tip a large percentage of it. Uh, What you should be arguing for is that even as you're losing, that uh, maybe you should still put out some small tips uh, the times you win, even if you're not up overall. But we're talking about a very large amount of money being given as a tip when you get some kind of hand pay, or at least a large hand pay. And um, if if you look at it this way, let's say – let's say – I were to uh, you were to give me two hundred dollars every week, and I say the deal is you give me two hundred dollars every week for an entire year, and at the end of the year I'm going to give you ten thousand dollars. Now that wouldn't be a very good deal. Uh, we're not ten thousand, one thousand dollars. It'd be great if I could get ten thousand. If I gave you, uh, um, no, no, it is ten thousand. I'm confused here. Okay, so I give you ten thousand at the end of the year, 
and you give me 200 each week. Well, you'd end up down 400 in the whole thing. And that would not be a very good deal for you. Now, if when I gave you that 10,000 on December 31st, if you were to say to me, uh, wow, that's really generous, I would laugh at you because I'd say, ha, 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 you know, I actually made 400 off of you. This isn't generous. This is your money. I'm giving you back. And if anyone were to say, you got good fortune for me handing you that 10000 because 10000 seems like a lot of money to get in one day, they would be in it incorrect because it's your money you're basically getting back minus about 4%. So that's basically what's happening at casinos. And the reason I'm bringing this up is that the reason tipping began in Vegas before any of us were born, even Vital Vegas here, who's the oldest of all of us, even before uh, he was Thank born. you for pointing that out. I and heard that. Uh, well, at least it's not you. At least you're the youngest one yeah, of all of us. Thank God. But, uh, but the tipping goes way, way leverage. back. <laughs> way back. And originally it was something that was kind of seen for good luck, like that you've, uh, you've just had good fortune and you're going to share it. You're going to share your good fortune with others. But here it's not really good fortune in most of these cases. Now, the 1.1 million jackpot, yeah, that's good fortune, but that's one of the very few. Most of them, when people have won this, they're either down or they're going to be down soon. It's just them getting back what they've lost, uh, a, a percentage of it, in a large sum. Now, that doesn't mean nobody should tip ever because, as you said, the, the dealers are expecting tips. They took this job expecting tips. They, they're, they're paid a very low base wage. And if they got no tips, then they would be very poor and they wouldn't be dealers. They'd be doing something else. And, uh, and I understand that. And I wish the dealers were actually paid what uh, they are worth. I don't know what number that would be, but it would not be minimum wage. It would be above that. Uh, so I wish they were paid a proper wage and then tipping wasn't expected, except if somebody just is feeling good and wants to do it. I wish that uh, people didn't feel entitled to tips. And if they don't get that, they're getting screwed in some way. But since they are being paid that minimum wage uh, as their base wage, then okay, uh, I can understand the argument for why you should leave some tips for them. But the, d the difference between some tips and a very large tip, because it's incorrectly perceived that you've hit some kind of good fortune. And then you may say, well, what about the actual very good fortunes, like the 1.1 million? The person who hit the 1.1 million, uh, unless they really step up the level they're gambling, I'm guessing they're never going to give all that back. If they were to keep gambling the same level they were before, they, they probably would not lose that back. So, or let's say maybe they'll quit gambling after that. They probably won't, but let, let's say they did. So the, the $1.1 million hit that that person had recently that you wrote about that left a $200 tip, that person probably is up lifetime gambling now because of that. They're probably a good deal up lifetime. So should they spread around that fortune? And, and to that I say again, it, it's nice for them, but they're one of very few this happens for. All the other gamblers – the vast, vast majority of other gamblers lose overall. So they, they happen to kind of w strike the lottery. They struck, struck it rich there. But uh, again, I don't think that justifies an arbitrary, very large tip. And the problem is I'm not against giving any tip to the people who are uh, doing the paperwork for you, which again, they're just doing tax paperwork as required by law. That's all they're really doing for you and handing you some money. That's all they're doing. And I think these people, yeah, if they'd like a small tip there, just – because it's become customary, fine. When this starts to be the discussion that giving them $1,000 is not sufficient because you won so much, that's where it starts seeming insane to me. These people are doing very little work, and they're getting what uh, would take a fast food worker you know, hundreds of hours to make by doing a few minutes of paperwork. In fact, I'll do the paperwork for $1,000. I'll do all the paperwork for I'll do, I'll do all the paperwork for people for, uh, for $200 uh, 
every, everywhere in Vegas. I'll even do it for less than that because it's, it's not very hard work, and, and that's pretty good pay for that. Uh, it's, that pays better than a lot of very, very skilled jobs. So I just think that's a tremendous overpayment, and that's my problem. And my second problem that spawns from that is you don't know what tip is going to be perceived as sufficient. So here you feel generous. Let's say you leave $1,000 on a $1.1 million hit. So you feel, okay, I'm being real nice to this person. I'm giving him $1,000 just for doing some paperwork for a few minutes. Uh, I'm a real generous guy. You walk away, and they're going, that freaking a-hole, he's uh, that's just an 0.1%. What a jerk. How could he give me less than 0.1%? Like if, if they're seeing it like that, then you look like a terrible cheapskate. So you never know. And then you're talking about that $5,000 tip. They, they may think that 5000 is not enough. That's, that's less than 1%. It's less than a half a percent. So they, they may look at that and say, what the hell? Why, why is he being so cheap? So you can walk away giving away your money that is in your pocket that you own and that you could do a lot of good things with it if you don't keep it yourself. You could give it to charity. You could help out a friend. Go to the strip club. <laughs> yes, you could do that too. Yeah. I mean, that's, that that is better than giving it away for sure. So, so you could do a lot of things with that, that money, and here you're giving it to someone who's resenting you, and that's a big problem. You can't even know what you're expected to leave, so they won't resent you unless you leave something so gigantic that you'll know they can't resent you. And that's, I, I think, that's a terrible situation. And when we have this, and when we have people shamed shamed for this, all it gives the message is, wow, it's never enough. So. I might as well leave zero and be resented rather than leave 500 and be resented or 1,000 and be resented or 200 and be resented. And honestly, I kind of would feel this way when I would hit a $1,200 type hit on video poker and I'd give them a 20. And I didn't think I'm being super generous, but I thought I, I thought that's fine. And then some seem okay. Some say thank you and, and smile and, and seem okay with it. Or if they're not, they're good actors. And then I've had others that just snatch it out of my hand and walk away very quickly. And I go, wow, I wish I hadn't left them anything. Well, so, I guess I'm a good actress because uh, when those people, when I did four rounds of shots and beers, gave me a dollar for the whole shebang, I smiled, but it was fake. I was like, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a well, whole town no, full of really good actors because uh, employees obviously are not allowed to tell tell a customer that's insufficient. They figure out ways to do it, I think, that communicates it. Uh, being rude isn't typically one of those ways. But they'll they'll kind of ask questions like, you know, did did I screw up? Is there kind of anything else I can do for you? Is there you know, there's there's ways they let you know. And and that's why this is all sort of murky because um you know, a lot of these folks, uh, depending on where they work, they're they're not seeing the. You know, it's not a hand pay every five minutes at a lot of these places. It's not a high limit room or something where it's just one hand pay after another. And they, you know, it's. I I think my argument for the tip shaming uh, was that there are examples that are glaringly bad. That it's not, oh, you know, it was a hand pay of a thousand, you gave a hundred. That's kind of, some people Sorry, are going to say it's, you know, that's too much, too little. A thousand bucks on, you know, on a, on a, uh, you know, with a hundred dollar tip on a thousand bucks, there's, you're going to have people split down the middle. It's kind of what you said. Like the, that idea of what are the expectations and is somebody going to, kind of badmouth me after I leave. I think in the case of a million dollars, leaving $200 is so egregiously bad, it's not a gray area. 
it's in a $125,000, $130,000 jackpot to leave $200. It's not a gray area. I don't care if that person thinks they're being generous. They're not. So those are the ones that I, I have picked. I'm not, I'm not out there kind of, you know, doing these while they only tipped, you know, 12%. What a shitty tipper. Like on a, on a, you know, a dinner tab. I shared one from a bar. Uh, it was like a $60 tab. The person went out of their way to write zero, zero, dot, zero, zero, and they underlined the zero, the second because zero, zero. Because they thought like, they got bad service? No, in that case, it was, I heard them grumbling about the drinks being expensive. So there are literally a thousand justifications for either not tipping or being a shitty tipper. Right. There are, I put 10, maybe nine out of the 10 because the last one was I just don't get basically I was saying I don't get Vegas like that's an excuse because if you don't get Vegas you don't get why you would tip a bathroom attendant when you don't have to tip them well it's because in Vegas it's the valet it's the cocktail waitress it's the bartender the attendant and I'm glad you bring that sorry to yes but it is my podcast and I'm feeling a little here we go (laughs) Yeah, like I need to speak a little more. <laughs> oh I need my to God. myself a little more on my own podcast. Yeah, mind you. But um, so here's the thing. I think, and, and Todd, like you mentioned this, I think in your podcast too, where you kind of kept reiterating, well, what did that person really do? So I hear that person, that person, that person, that attendant, that waitress, that cocktail server, that bartender, that whoever, what did they really do? But here's the thing. And this is something that I was naive about you know, entering the service industry that that there is something called pooling. So pooling is where the entire staff get together, they combine their tips, and then they split them, they distribute them evenly. So, you know, and here's the thing, it's, you know, it's not necessarily that person that contributed to your experience. When, you know, before I worked in a bar, I thought they had cleaning staff to clean the bar. Oh, no, the bartenders clean the bar for you, the bar backs stock the ice for you. Um, they contribute the slot attendants. You know, I don't really know what slot attendants do, but they they slot for you. I don't know. They <laughs> they fill up the they tickets fill up the in tickets. the machine. Right. They do the the tax paperwork. The side work, the stuff. behind the scenes that plays into the magic of Las Vegas or wherever you're gambling, an Indian reservation or wherever you're dining, whatever city. You know, this back, you know, this back of the house stuff that you're not seeing that they're doing outside of your view that is contributing to your experience. So when you tip well, you're not just tipping for that moment in time. You're tipping for like the hours of work that went into creating that environment, that experience for you. And that is something that I was naive about because I've only been in the service industry three months. And I noticed, Todd, that you pointed out that you felt that Scott was so passionate about this because I have entered the service industry. Oh, no. Oh, no. Let me tell you something. Scott's feelings for me pale in comparison to his love for Las Vegas. No, he has literally dumped women. Dumped women. (laughs) Because they didn't want to live in Vegas. Like, this is, like, Vegas is number one. And, you know, I will always be, you know, secondary to that. And I've accepted that. But so this comes from... His, you know, he sees this as an affront to his favorite city. You know, this whole tip, you know, not tipping because, you know, this is a city that's built on tipping and service. And so he kind of sees this, you know, yeah, like this, this is going against like the city that he loves. So it's not about me. But I was, in, I worked in 
restaurants for probably eight years. I was a server, Back in 19- server for a day. Wait, do the pappy voice. Back in my day. <laughs> oh God, back in my day. No, it's back in I've the been, 30s. <laughs> I've been thrown out like tip shaming stuff for, for the no, duration before, of my blog. Before it, you this even is met, not. Yeah, yeah, this was pre you. But well, okay, you know, it, it may have been it may have been for a different reason than what, what I was guessing. I, I was just guessing on the show. But uh, as, as far as what uh, Melissa just said. I understand all of that, but there's only so much that uh, the customer has to carry the burden of that. Sure. And uh, if there's, and you also have to look at the end of the day, how much these people are making, not what their actual wage is that's uh, officially uh, paid to them before tips, but but what at the end of the day what they really are taking home, and what job they're doing, and how that compares to jo- similar jobs that require. Uh, a similar similar level of skill and education, and if they're above that, then they're overpaid, which is great for them. I don't fault anybody who's overpaid. I, I would try to be overpaid myself, you know, if the, if in any circumstance. You know, of course, the individual should always try that, but uh, you also can't expect that. So, if you're getting more than what that job would normally be worth, and you're overpaid, if you're getting less than what that job would normally be worth, and you're underpaid, if you're getting around what it would be worth, and you're paid uh, approximately what the current standard would be. So the reason I'm mentioning this is that you, you can't just say, well, we're, we're tipping because there, there's so much stuff behind the scenes and this money is pooled and by the time it's distributed to everybody, uh, th- that's what makes up their pay and uh, that's how the city runs and that's just the way it is. Uh, because if this all comes together to end up where the people receiving this money are getting more than would be expected for the job they're doing, then they are being overpaid. They are being overtipped, and then you do have to look at the system and say, "Well, it looks like some people are being overpaid." And often, when people are being overpaid, it means other people are being underpaid. And and I talked about uh, on my show, and also in, in some write-ups I've done on forums, like uh, in, in hotels, for example, the maids they they do a very unpleasant and tough job. Sure. I know you don't need any skill or education. They don't get paid very much, nor do they get tipped very much. Occasionally, you leave a few bucks for them, but they don't get tipped very much. So the the difference, like in a strip casino, what what a maid gets versus what, or a janitor, if you want to take it out of the hotel and talk about the, uh, the, the casino, what the janitor gets who's cleaning the toilets in the bathroom of the casino versus the, the dealer, it, it's a tremendous difference in, in a major strip casino. So you've got to look at that. Now, again, I'm not begrudging the dealers if they make a lot of money dealing. That's great. I mean, that's, uh, if, if you can do that and, and be successful and make a lot of money that way, then, of course, you should. Uh, and, but what I'm saying here is as far as the expectation on the customer to be subsidizing this, uh, to me, it doesn't make sense past a certain point. And I think the problem here is that uh, this, if you really, like, like I said before, you're looking at the root of this whole thing, where it began because the customer is expected to share their good fortune. But when what they're winning is not really good fortune, and and when they're giving this to a very specific employee, and yeah, I know it's pooled, I know it's shared, I know the spot attendant you're giving it to is probably not pocketing the whole tip, they're probably having to share it with others. But at the same time, then they will get the tips they're receiving from other slot, you know, other slot attendance tips they're going to be getting. So it, it, it somewhat evens out. But what I'm saying here is you've got to look for the customer, what it makes sense for them to give as a tip, as, a, as an actual dollar amount for what is being done. And if, it's, if it really is a matter of, okay, well, I've hit this, I've got to make the whole casino 
feel like the employees here feel whole, well, then you would think that instead of handing it to one person and, and uh, just having it go into that particular pool, that you should walk around the casino, find, find janitors who clean the bathroom, hand them money, walk, and walk around and start handing it to all these different people that work there that you think could use the money uh, so it isn't just in that one pool. And I know, I know the argument back. Well, well, you can do that. Well, yes, but you've already tipped so much because you're expected to have tipped the uh, the slot head so well that uh, there's only so much you can be tipping without giving away a lot of what you made. Because the bottom line is, while the customers are expected to do the tipping, these customers are also playing negative expectation games that keep the casino in business. And if the games were a negative expectation, if most people didn't lose, if the vast, vast majority didn't lose, then the casino would not exist. And so these customers are mostly losing, and you have to realize that the burden is already on the customers because they're losing. And so now they've got an additional burden on their back. Is one of the few times they're not losing, they're expected to give a percentage of it away. And that's why I still don't think the $200 tip for the $120,000 jackpot is insufficient because of what they're tipping for. It's, it's similar if I, if I go to the bank and I withdraw a million dollars to the bank. I don't feel like I owe anyone at that bank anything just because they processed a million dollar withdrawal. It just, just because I'm taking out a lot of money, I, I don't owe anyone any tip for it. I, I've never believed that the cost of something should have, or, or, or what you've received should indicate what the tip is. I'll give another example real quickly. Um, during the pandemic, I was uh, like in 2020, I was really shut down. I mean, massively shut down. I, I didn't go anywhere. I, I didn't do anything. I didn't want to go to a grocery store. I actually very early on realized that the big danger was going indoors. And if you keep away from public and indoor being spaces, on Twitter. you're a lot That was another danger. That, that <laughs> was a, a mental danger. That is dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, uh, so um, I started doing something I never did before, and that was uh, delivery of groceries and, and curbside pickup. So the delivery of groceries, I initially was tipping a percentage of the bill. And then I realized very quickly this wasn't the right thing to be doing because sometimes I would order a bunch of cheap but very bulky things like 24 packs of water and things like that that don't cost very much but are a pain in the ass for the person to bring to my door and, and bring from the store into their car. And then I'd sometimes order things that were expensive but super easy, like like I'm, I'm buying some piece of electronics from Costco that's $500, but it's super easy for them to buy and carry. So I'm thinking, wait a minute. So why am I tipping so much more because they're carrying me a $500 piece of electronics that's super easy than when they have to carry these big bulky things of water that are very cheap? I go, wait a minute, this, none of this makes any sense. This isn't a restaurant. I shouldn't be tipping a percentage. So what I, I changed my whole approach, and I decided that I'm going to be tipping based upon what they're doing. So you know how far they're driving, uh, how tough it is to put, carry the stuff to their car and into my door. And I totally disregarded the price. And sometimes it felt weird. Sometimes I would be tipping very high for what was a relatively low bill. And other times I'd be tipping pretty low percentage-wise for a high bill. And I did that because it made sense. Because I, I didn't want to just hit a percentage. Because I, I, and I was saying to my girlfriend here, I'm saying, this doesn't make sense to leave a percentage. It just, I said, we're not in a restaurant. It just doesn't make any sense why if they're bringing a, a $500 piece of electronic equipment, I need to pay them a, a certain percentage of what that's worth. But somehow I only have to, I'm expected to pay the same percentage of a, a $3 case of water. So th that's an example. Oh, you already, so sometimes yeah. when you're tipping. Oh, Sorry, uh -oh. you already won this round, Todd. And I'm not just saying that because I'm fuming because we did a test run and you 
Oh, didn't good tell God. me that I was speaking in the microphone incorrectly. Oh, Todd God. and I well, actually wanted midnight. We wanted a little bit more time to kind of get in the groove here, and you were the one that pushed the early, the early time. But anyways, Todd so, is the yeah. only sane one in this whole little trifecta oh, okay. of conversation. No, I I appreciate me. no, I appreciate uh, Todd's insight. It, I really enjoyed that segment on his podcast because people chime in on Twitter with their two cents. It's often, uh, you know, I wouldn't tip anything like they don't, they don't really have an articulate reason for why they tip the way they tip. They don't, uh, bring, they, they're not bringing anything to the table other than just being jerks that don't get it. But Todd, uh, I just appreciate that you've, you know, you've thought this through. We dis, you know, we're going to agree to disagree. And I have to say, at, uh, to certain parts of this, and, uh, but I have to say, it's refreshing to, to interact with someone online or off where even if you disagree, you can still stay in communication. Like there's no attacks. There's no blocking. There's no, you're an a-hole because I disagree. It's, it's increasingly rare. And this, uh, I never expected this to stir up the conversation that it has because I thought everybody was on board with me. <laughs> that, you know, some things are just ridiculous. Go but, Raiders. Yeah, huh? Go Raiders. What does that have that to do with it? People are very protective, I guess. Oh. Well, I, I do want to say I, I agree. I actually agreed with your uh, thing, what you did with the Raiders, because um, if, if people who are. You know, celebrities or semi-celebrities that, that they're going out and they're, especially if they're mistreating staff, that definitely shouldn't be happening. But also, if they're just not tipping because they just feel, you know, like I, I don't have to, I, I can get away with it, uh, I'm so important, I don't need to do this, or if they're just young and ignorant. And, uh, and, and so you see these players to this new team in the city and, and they're, and the service staff is being mistreated and, and grossly under-tipped and you want to say, look, you know, hey guys, uh, this is the cus- customary way to handle service people here, and you're not doing it. Uh, th- I think that was fine, and you didn't shame anyone in particular, and, and you just were kind of putting them on notice that they've got to start treating the service staff better. And I, I didn't see anything wrong with that tweet. Uh, I didn't like when, when – well, not from you, but I've seen other service staff shaming individual athletes or celebrities for, oh, look what tip they left – and then a lot of times it comes out later. They had a horrible experience. The service was terrible. The the servers were rude to them. Everything was constantly messed up. Like, and then you find out the rest of the yeah, story. Yeah, the big and boob blonde the was rest- horrible. Yeah, <laughs> everybody blames the big boob blonde. No, I and I heard that. I appreciated that on your podcast as well. And in my world, if if you get great service, twenty percent. If you get bad service, ten percent. Like that's. That's the difference, I think. And, uh, I fully expect to individually shame these folks. I've already heard about a Raiders player just treating staff horribly in the Aria, uh, Baccarat room. This guy is throwing cards at the dealer. He's using obscenities, didn't tip I mean, a dollar. He's obviously sloppy drunk at that point, right? But no, no he's excuse. an ass that he, there's no excuse. Oh, he's absolutely. entitled. He's wealthy. Right. Uh, he, he is you just can come, a You can come back I'm and sorry. make it right. Like you said, even if you're like, cause a lot of excuse people, excuses people use, Oh, I don't have cash on me or, Oh, let me come back. And then they never come back. But it's like, you can make it right. You don't have to tip in that moment. You can come back an hour later than even the next day. Yeah. And this guy needs to come back and freaking apologize to these people because this is not about tipping. This is about an entitled asshole. 
being an asshole. And I'm going to name oh, yeah, names. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to sh- I'm going to tip shame. I'm going to shame them because they they need to be put on notice. That's not acceptable. And this isn't just players. This is a co- the coach's father being a jerk. He's here a week and he doesn't tip a dollar to any limo driver, valet, oh my God, we're dealer, gonna get killed like this. <laughs> whatever, like the Raiders send the Raiders the over. Oh, no, shit. I I actually thought about that. I'm like they're they're in town. They they don't want to be ashamed. But I, you know what? These who is standing up for these folks? The guy that wrote this. He's like, I've been in the industry for decades. I've never seen behavior like this. Horrible. He's like, we just have to take it. And I'm like. No, you don't. So that's what social media exists for. Shame this a-hole so he knows when he walks in, he doesn't get to say vile things to the manager, to the no, dealer. No, you're right, like, because even working you know, at the bar I was before here, when there was someone of great importance that we knew was coming in, it's like they put the word out and they're like, just so you know, when he walks in, he gets whatever he wants. So they set that tone, like management sets that tone because they're just like, this guy's going to drop who knows how much money and we want him to promote us and we want him to, you know, feel great here. So they would let us know like, yeah, basically if he wants to whatever, like spit on your mom, like, yeah, yeah. who cares? Like, yeah. Tell your mom to come over. Yeah. It happens a lot in Vegas because these, these folks are spending so much money. It's part of your job to just kind of like grin, grin and bear Absolutely. it to a certain point, to a certain extent. Yeah, but these I, are, I understand yeah. that. And, and anybody who mistreats, staff and and especially if you know for sure that it happened and there's not more to the story where that where it wasn't the staff mistreating them also and and that led to a confrontation but if you if you know for sure that that someone's just mistreating staff which which happens i've seen it myself i've seen it many times in fact i've even seen at the poker table you have some people that are very similar to the guy you described here who are just needlessly abusive and nasty and and it's put up with a lot of times because these are the bad players in the game and uh, so of course the players want them there and and they tolerate the abuse and i i I feel worse for the dealers there because the dealers are not getting the benefit of this player being horrible and dumping their money so i I feel and the dealers get massive abuse in these players and i feel very bad for the dealers when this happens and i can understand why it's very frustrating that they can't say anything and these people are not uh, thrown out for the way they're behaving and and so you should never mistreat the service employees and anybody who actually is mistreating them and then gets called out for it provided that it wasn't justified why they were uh, doing what they were doing if they weren't mistreated first then uh then i i I think it's completely fine to to call that out i'm just saying with tip shaming sometimes you don't know the story and and i can tell you i'm not going to tell them here but there's I have stories where I have left zero tip, whereas nothing to do with being cheap. It was because they deserve zero no, tip. I, by the way, I've seen that down. as well. Anyway, I feel like you guys have really kind of vibed here. Like I was expecting to have to be the <laughs> the mediator and to kind of be the buffer, but no, we agree about a lot. We agree. I would say we agree about most. Um, I I think part of my world is just you know I don't know that this situation. I would feel as strongly if I were in Washington State or Chicago or like I'm protective of Vegas. I'm protective of those, those casino employees. So I tend to go more. I'm more of an advocate than I would typically be. Uh, you know, I'd still, you know, at any restaurant bar, whatever, wherever you are, I think there's a, a certain amount you can tip. But we I think Todd and I agree that our system is wacky. You know, you go to a, a European it country sucks. where they just don't tip. It this makes no sense at all. They compensate differently. There's no expectation of, t- and they actually sort of seem 
disoriented if you try to give them a tip. Uh, but here, yeah, that's what I've yeah and like too. Japan, yeah. it's an insult to tip. So that's like a whole. That's literally the opposite end of the spectrum. It's an insult. They consider it an insult. They just like, what are you doing? Like, yeah. How dare you? Well, that's not, that is definitely not the culture of Vegas. Hell to the no. <laughs> no, we, we love dumb tips. Keep them coming. Keep them flowing. <laughs> but anyways, I think Todd actually has responsibilities. Um, you know, I know we have a Frenchie that farts a lot that you complain about, mm-hmm. but that's really in the grand, you know, scheme of life. That's really not that big of a burden. But I think Todd actually has adult responsibilities. So. <laughs> I will let you go, Todd, but thank you so much. I do apologize for my, you know, technical expert here that really uh, sold me a bill of goods. No, it it happens to me all the time. On my show, I've even had it where we stop broadcasting, and I realize it like 20 minutes later, and I'm like, oh, Is your show live? Your show's live, too. We got to go say all this again and pretend this didn't happen. Right, and And your show's live, so that's a whole added pressure. But, you know, I think I, you know... It okay considering I'm like four glasses of wine in. Yeah, she did yeah. great. <laughs> ah, you did well. Why, thank you guys. Okay, All right. well, thank you for having well, thank me. Thank you here. so much, Sean. And, and for, the, for those of you that, yeah, you for those plug of you your that, podcast? That, for whatever reason, yeah, for anyone who wants to hear more of me for whatever reason, if you want to hear a lot more of me, I, I really talk for about seven hours every week. I'm not kidding. Oh my God. On uh, pokerfraudalert.com. Pokerfraudalert.com, as it sounds, usually on Friday night, but you can find Poker Fraud Alert Radio on one of many, many uh, podcast apps if you don't uh, catch it live. And uh, some people, they, they listen to every minute of what I'm saying. Even my mom doesn't understand it, why anyone wants, wants to listen to me for that long. But uh, some people do. And if you want to give it a shot, then uh, I'd be happy to have you as a listener. Awesome. Thank you so much, Todd. Thank you, Todd. You're the man. This is Melissa Vegas here, signing off. And always remember, you never have to worry about the glass being half empty or half full if you always just drink straight from the bottle. So now I'm ready to drink this episode and end this bottle. Oh shit, I think I fucked that up. Whatever, till next time folks. Okay, well, that is it. Thank you for listening to Poker Fraud Alert Radio, the special 9-11 20th anniversary retrospective, and of course, our usual type of content. We will probably be back on Friday, September 18th, but we also may not, because I may have something to do that day. And I don't know yet, because I'm making plans right now, and they're kind of open-ended at the moment. So we will see, but we'll have a show next week at some point. We will do that. Thank you, Trader Ruski, for coming on for the final few hours of the show. While I was playing the Vital Vegas segment, I... uh, had a conversation with Brandon and we talked about radio and uh, he was kind of confused. He wanted to come on like minutes after the Vital Vegas thing started that I played on here and he was confused. He's like, well, why are you not answering my calls? And I said, because that's not live. I mean, it's live, but it's not live. It's a live play of a recording. 
that I recorded with Vital Vegas almost a week ago. And he said, oh. <laughs> so I said, you're just a tiny bit too late, Brandon, waking up. So he was waking up early to get ready to watch the NFL. And instead, we just had a phone conversation while the episode played. Because I wasn't here listening to that all over again. I already uh, listened to it after it was put up in podcast form on the Melissa Does Vegas podcast. I'll let you guys know if I change my mind about the World Series. I can't imagine I'm going to go there until I get a booster shot. But it's a long World Series, so maybe I'll get a booster shot, maybe I'll feel comfortable enough to go play a few events towards the end. Probably won't be selling any pieces. Probably won't be time to collect the money for that, but... I'll let you guys know if I play so you can follow my progress and all that. Kind of reactivate the at Dandruff Poker account, which is my poker tournament results account, which I haven't used in um, actually more than two years. Anyway, thank you for listening to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I'm sure we'll have another big slate of topics for you next week. I'll have to think of another story to tell you. I'm running out of stuff from my past. I have to have some new experiences to talk about. That is all. Shalom.